Hey guys, it's Colton here. And before we got started with this episode of the podcast, uh, I just wanted to come in here real quick and uh, talk about some some big Shonen Jump news. Um, I wasn't entirely sure where to put this in the middle of the show, so I just thought I'd get it out of the way here because it is pretty big news. So Shonen Jump, as released through the uh, to the Shonen Jump app from Viz Media over here in North America and in other subsequent countries, uh, will now be released five hours earlier than normal. Um, so just for example, over here in the Midwest, uh, you know, alumni would get shut and jump chapters, uh, basically around like 2 PM central time. Um, which is weird. Cause I thought it was 3 PM central time, but, uh, I don't know. It shows you how well I can tell time, I guess. But yeah, with this new five hour push, Basically, we both in particular will be getting new chapters of Shonen Jump manga around 9 a.m. Uh, Central Time. Uh, also, which I think that would equal uh, 10 a.m. in Eastern Time. I, I'm, I'm not I'm not so good with other time zones, so I'm not going to list all the other time zones. Um, so basically, where, wherever you are uh, that releases Shonen Jump, uh, you'll be getting those chapters five hours earlier than normal. Which, at the very least, sounds pretty convenient for a lot of us. Uh, you know, uh, per- personally, I-, I like I like waking up to shut a jump uh, in the morning. You know, I like that idea. Uh, normally, I don't really get up any earlier, than like you know, nine a.m., ten a.m. in the uh, ten a.m. in the morning. That sounded redundant. Uh, but no, yeah, this is this is apparently a pretty big deal because at least over in Japan. Uh, around the time Shonen Jump is being released in North America now would equate to uh, midnight over on uh, over in Japan on Mondays. And I guess apparently Shueisha doesn't release their weekly Shonen Jump magazine digitally anyway uh, any earlier than like 5 a.m. their time. So if I'm reading this correctly, this means that uh, we're getting Shonen Jump even earlier than Japan, which is um, which is pretty wild. Um Needless to say, like, I'm I'm hoping that this will help with all the leaks and stuff. Um, maybe, I don't know. I mean, you know, mi- midnight on a Monday, like, you know, uh, from, from what I understand, most convenience stores, I think, uh, are, are like just putting out Shun and Jump around then. Or mi- maybe not, not even most, but I, I want to believe like some of them, but I, probably not all of them. I, I can't really speak to that for sure, but... Um, I, I I know Shonen Jump officially isn't really super available around that time uh, in Japan anyway. So, yeah, that's pretty amazing. Um, and yeah, I just thought I'd let you guys know. So uh, in whatever part of uh, N- uh, North America that you live in or, again, any other country where uh, Viz is servicing you Shonen Jump, uh, you are now getting those chapters in particular five hours earlier than you used to. Viz did say that uh, basically on any other days that uh, Shonen Jump would be released, like I know sometimes, uh, you know, they'll put up chapters on Friday to correspond with, uh, you know, Saturday releases over in Japan, uh, that uh, times would change. Um, so that pretty much means that we we don't know necessarily that they'll come out the same time on Fridays. But again, I, I'm sure if you follow Viz Media and Shonen Jump on Twitter, they'll uh, they'll let everybody know and keep people updated. So there's that. Um, and so, yeah, I just thought I'd start off with the podcast with some pretty big news there. And, uh, yeah, 
I think with that, um, we're just going to start the show. This is the Manga Mavericks Podcast from AllComic.com, episode 109. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. And I'm Lum Ramayasha, and welcome to the first Manga Mavericks Podcast recorded in 2020. But we're not looking forward today. We are looking back into the year of 2019 to spend a little more time in there because today is our best manga of 2019 retrospective. That's why we're going through all our superlative awards where we'll be discussing what our favorite series of the last year were and our favorite news stories and manga we're looking forward to reading in this upcoming year. All sorts of exciting things to talk about about but first we also got a lot of different lists and retrospectives to talk about we have a lot of overdue news stories we need to report on and i think we'll get right into them well before we get into that i do just want to remind everybody that uh, our latest uh, monthly bonus podcast over on our patreon at patreon.com slash manga mavericks uh, is now available uh, i know i mentioned it last episode but it bears repeating that for all of our patrons, we we put out a, a at least a three hour long podcast where we invited our good friend Maxi Bernard of Friendship Ever Victory to talk about uh, ba- basically our thoughts on the uh, on the Shonen Jump lineup of series throughout the year of 2019. Uh, we talked about pretty much as much as we could. Um, there were some series I don't think w- that we were all reading, so there were a few that. Uh, we only had so much to say on, but we, we covered at least a pretty good portion of the magazine at the time there. And so, yeah, it was a really fun podcast. I I, had, I actually had a lot of fun editing it and listening back to it. I thought it was a pretty good, uh, pretty good discussion. Um, as we mentioned in that podcast, uh, there were so many series in there that we could have like dedicated an entire episode of the podcast to. So we had a lot of good mini discussions in there about a bunch of different series uh, and some hot takes on a on a few certain ones. I'm <laughs> I'm not going to tell you which ones because uh, that is for you guys to listen to. Um, the most important thing to come out of this is that since it was the holidays and whatnot, I uh, we we kind of figured that we should make that podcast as available as possible. And so basically, if you sign up for our Patreon and if you if you even only have like a dollar to give us. That's okay because with that dollar you get you get a three hour podcast uh, as thanks for your patronage, um, and so yeah, uh, basically if you sign up for Patreon right now again at Patreon.com/slash Manga Mavericks, uh, you will get to listen to that. And hey, you know if you, um, we'll, we'll probably talk about this more at the end of the show, but you know if you happen to have maybe even five dollars or more, you know that's uh, n- n- normally. You know, that's basically the tier where you are guaranteed a bonus podcast at the end of every month. And uh, as for what we're going to be uploading at the end of January, uh, stay tuned for the end of the episode. We'll talk more about that. Um, But Lum is right. We do have news to cover before we even get into 
uh, all of the cool manga stuff that happened in 2019. Indeed, but actually, there is one more thing that I forgot we should mention on the top of the show, and that is the return of the Manga Mavericks annual survey. Oh yeah, that's right. We should talk about that. Once again, every year we do a survey to be taken by our listeners to just reflect on the past year of the show and the manga industry in general. And we collect your guys' feedback and we do this big survey results podcast sometime in February and March. And this year we're doing that again. It's going all the way until January 31st. At the time of this podcast coming out, you'll still have a few days left. And just let us know what your favorite episodes of Manga Matters were, who your favorite guests were, and most importantly, what you want to see us cover on the show in the future, and who you want to see us have on the show as guests in the future. This feedback is very valuable to us. It really helps inform what we do in the show and like what we want to do with the show. So it would be very encouraging for you guys to take the survey and leave that feedback for us. And also, if you take the survey this year, we are given back to the fans by doing a special giveaway that is eligible to all residents in the U.S. for shipping reasons. But basically, take the survey and leave some form of content information and you will be entered to win a free volume of manga of your choice of a certain selection that I have accumulated. And some of the manga up for grabs include Paradise Kiss, the 20th anniversary collection, which is a massive 900-page book. And we also got Don't Toy With Me, this Nagatoria Volume 1. We got Beastars Volume 1, My Academia Smash Volume 1. We got a ton of great manga up for grabs. If you take the survey, up to three people will be winners, uh, will be entered into the contest and receive prizes. So enter yourself and be in with the odds to receive some really cool manga as gifts from us to you for our loyal listeners who've stuck with us for so many years and who we hope will continue to stick with us as we continue to grow even better in 2020 and beyond. Mm-hmm. So yeah, definitely take that survey. Uh, you know, your guys' feedback is very, very valuable to us. We cannot stress that enough. I want to say as far as picking out the winners, we will probably do that you know, on our annual you know survey results podcast. Uh, so far, we are planning to have that come out probably at the beginning of March. We want that to come out, uh, hopefully as soon as possible. So, um, so keep an eye out for that episode because uh, you could be named a winner. Hmm. Uh, but now I think we we do have some news to talk about, and we're going to start off with some serialization news. And uh, Lum, I think you could just go ahead and take this first one. Yeah, just a quick update, considering that the series will no doubt be mentioned later in the podcast, but Boys Over Flowers Season 2 has indeed ended, and it had a pretty satisfying, conclusive ending. This series has been running on Jump Plus and as a free sign up from Viz since early 2015, and so it ended with a good nearly four-year run. It was a very cool kind of modern take on Boys Over Flowers, and a lot of people, I think myself included, would say that they like it even better than the original Boys Over Flowers. 
with a very compelling cast of characters. So the entire 111 chapter run is available on the Shonen Jump app for your reading pleasure. And I highly recommend giving it a try, even if you haven't read the original. In fact, especially if you haven't read the original, to read it and enjoy it because it's a very, very good story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely going to have to get to that at some point. Uh, I imagine at some point that'll probably be a podcast episode uh, at some point in the future. Maybe. I don't know. It's definitely on the list. Yeah, love to cover it. But out with the old, in with the new, as they say. And Jump has a lot of new manga debuting in the coming weeks. Oh, yeah. Uh, I was not expecting this, actually. So, in the sixth and seventh issue, uh, double issue of Weekly Shonen Jump, it was revealed that three new series are coming this early 2020. Uh, the first of which uh, will be Undead Unluck uh, from Yoshifumi Totsuka. And I-, I think this is the only series out of the three we have like read any real info on, in which, uh, according to the magazine, uh, this series of picaresque heroes quote-unquote will center on an unlucky girl and will premiere in the magazine's eighth issue on january 20th uh i think that's a monday for japan so most likely this will probably i'm sure this will probably end up on the shonen jump app from viz on like january 19th or whatnot for us anyway in north america um so yeah we have that to look forward to and so uh the first chapter of this in particular will be 54 pages have a center color page uh totska in particular had previously uh published a one shot uh of this manga in particular back in january 2019 so um can't wait to see what this is all about uh from the preview image it looks very interesting uh an unlikely duo of this very small cute girl and this very uh very uh, maniac-looking guy with a weird haircut, <laughs> and a dead end uh, tattooed on his uh, on his uh, uh, left arm. There, he's 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 very scary looking. I wouldn't want to mess with him. And then let's see. As far as the other two series go, well, like I said, we don't have a lot of info on the other two, uh, other than uh, the series to come afterwards. In the ninth issue of Shonen Jump on January twenty seventh, will be uh, M- Mashal. Mashley? Not sure how you're supposed to pronounce that. Mash Mashle? Mash Mashal. Mashal. I don't know. <laughs> we'll we'll see. We'll have to see. Um this series in particular will be coming from Hajime Komoto, who uh I don't think we have a lot of info on this person in particular. Actually, now that I'm looking at this page from the magazine, like you have Undead Unluck, like the, their key visual like very in the center here and i think the other two yeah actually not not i'm looking at it like in the bottom left corner you can see very tiny like little promotional art for the other two series um Mm -hmm. it's a little it's a little hard to make out like at first uh so it looks like mashal however we're pronouncing that it looks like it's going to be starring a guy with a very big fist and a bowl cut and a suit and that's about as much as i can gather from that series and then as far as our last series goes, uh, we have uh, Majo no Moribito, uh, roughly translated as the Witch's Guardian uh, from Asahi Sakano. And uh, Sakano apparently uh, previously won an award in the Treasure Rookie Manga Award contest in 2014 when they were 19 years old and also have a previously published manga in Shonen Jump Giga. Um, so this person has had at least some work before. 
again, since their art is kind of in the bottom left corner here, it's kind of hard to make out. From like a distance, uh, what I'm assuming is the guy with the black hair kind of looks like Psyche Kusuo from like a distance. Uh, if if I if I squint, he kind of looks different. But yeah, no, again, not a lot of info on these series just yet. I can't really say like which of these I'm looking forward to the most. I guess Unlucky Undead is probably the one that uh, they're probably focusing on the most here. Um, I'm I'm assuming they're pretty excited to release the first chapter of that over there in uh, in Japan and hopefully over here in the West. I'm I'm sure Viz will probably pick up all these. Uh, nothing really, n- n- nothing really suggests to me that like you know, they won't pick up one over the other, probably, but uh, I don't know, I guess we'll have to see. I'm sure I'm sure by the time this episode comes out, like, uh, Viz or Shonen Jump on their Twitter account will, will let people know what's actually coming, and uh, yeah, uh, hopefully when we can find the time here in the next month, uh, we can, you know, cover the first couple chapters of these on the show. Indeed. I definitely am very curious about Undead Unluck because it's given off a very Shaman King S5 and I really enjoyed that series. And it's also worth noting that Asahi Sakano was a an assistant for Yuki Tabata, creator of Black Clover. Oh, so yeah. I definitely feel like you can see some of those inspirations in his character's designs, even though they are in that bottom left corner. The way that he renders the female character's hair, it definitely reminds me of how Tabata draw hair in his series for his characters. So, very curious to see what his work, Richard's Guardian, is like as well. And uh, Mashile, I really wonder why that dude's fist is so gigantic. Why it looks like his arm is as big as the rest of his body. Is definitely very odd, but perhaps very interesting. He kind of looks like Mob from Mob Cycle 100 if Mob had a giant fist. You know, I was just about to say. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe this is Mob, but he has taken the training of the Body Improvement Club to (laughs) heart and has grown a super buff, tough body. Only his fist grew. (laughs) Only his fist grew. (laughs) Oh boy. Um but yeah, no. I'm I'm looking forward to checking all these out. Um I wonder if this means we're going to see anything end in the in the next couple weeks here in Jump. I don't believe so because there were five series that ended in December. Only two spots were filled by A Gravity Boys and Zipman, which means three spots still remain to be filled and I think these series will fill those spots and I don't think we'll see anything end the next coming weeks but in the round after that who knows Mm -hmm. because i I think i was doing some doing a little math earlier and uh if i counted correctly i think with these three new series filling those empty spots in jumps lineup i think we'll have at least 20 series in the magazine yeah we'll be back up to 20 which is the general normal mode of jump yeah i think anything above that or like like 20 21 22 i think is when uh the, the good people at Shueisha are usually like, okay, we got to end something here pretty soon. There's like no room for new series. Yeah. But yeah, we'll definitely find the time to talk about those uh, when those come out. But for now, uh, we have something even cooler coming out, and that is a new chapter of Death Note. No, it's not 2003, I promise. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no. So apparently in the February issue of Jump Square, which which came out this month, it was announced that Sugumi Oba and Takashi Obata 
will be doing a new chapter, like a special one shot for Death Note uh, that will be coming out in the March issue on February 4th. Uh, and that uh, this one shot in particular will have 87 pages, also including a center color page, uh, and will be featured on the cover of the March issue as well. Uh, the February issue basically teased that the chapter will center on Ryuk's death note being brought again to the human world uh, after the end of the main manga. Uh, so I, I think we might have talked about this on an earlier episode last year where you know, there was a lot of hubbub about, you know, Death Note possibly getting another sequel chapter in promotion of uh, Takashi Obata's uh, new exhibition that uh, that had happened from uh, between July and August of last year. And um, I think I think we also talked about how, like, uh, at that at that exhibit, how uh, there were going to be uh, first draft pages from that one shot. So I'm I'm very surprised that, like, I haven't seen any, like, photos. I mean, I'm sure maybe, like, photos probably weren't allowed. Um, but I don't know. I'm I'm really surprised that, like, nothing has come out of that in terms of, like... Because I figured people would have, like, really eaten up whatever kind of info we could have gotten from this uh, from this new one-shot. But, but I digress. Um, I'm sure Viz is probably going to pick this up and put it on the app, right? Yeah, I mean, Death Note is very popular. So... If they have the opportunity, I wouldn't see why they wouldn't translate this. It feels like a big deal. Um, I guess my only other thing is how, how do you how do you feel about the I guess the conceit for this one shot about Ryuk dropping his death note again? Because at first I I think my knee jerk reaction was like, come on, guy, really again? We're gonna gonna do this shit again? But when I thought about it, I was like, well. You know, Ryuk's whole thing in the beginning of Death Note was, you know, he basically did it because he was bored and bored of the Shinigami realm and whatnot because there's fuck all to do. Um, so when I when I thought about it more, it made sense for Ryuk to purposely drop his Death Note again to see if he could make anything fun and interesting happen. Yeah, I don't think it's out of character if Ryuk is bored for him to go, why don't I try this again and see what happens this time? I guess my only thing is I wonder, I mean, I'm sure we're going to see Ryuk again, obviously, but I, I wonder if, I wonder if we're going to get any, like, updates on, like, the old cast and crew, or if maybe this is, or if this is just going to center on a completely new cast of characters. Like, I, I wonder what we're actually going to get from this new one-shot. We'll see. I am more interested, I guess, in the new characters, whatever they would do with a new story, than... Just showing off cameos of older characters. I want to see Matsuda at least once. I want to know what he's up to. <laughs> yeah, I guess that would be a nice check-in if he would get a cameo and we show, oh, maybe he's like police chief now. I don't know. That would, I would love that. That would be great. Or I wonder if, because um, I don't think, um, uh, correct me if I'm if I'm wrong, but like I feel like a big point of contention with the ending of Death Note was... Uh, or at least for some people, I don't know if it's you know like general consensus kind of thing. But I feel like I feel like I remember most people being kind of disappointed about not getting a follow up on uh, on Misa. Yeah, I think she in the manga is kind of forgotten. In the anime, they seem to imply she might commit suicide. So we'll see. I don't know if they'll show an update on Misa or if her fate will be left ambiguous. I'm sorry, I, I I hate to keep bringing up stuff, but, like, 
uh, no, no, I'm just suddenly remembering the last chapter of Death Note and like the the notes it like end, ended off of. Uh, I guess the only other thing that like I'm kind of curious in is like what the state of the world is in. Like I know because I think we ended the series off on that like on that weird like Kira cult, and I wonder if yeah, because like, because I think we've because I think there's been like one other like special epilogue chapter before then that I remember reading somewhere. I forget where. Uh, and I, I want to say that Kira still had a bit of an influence then, but I wonder how much that's weighing off or how much that's grown possibly. Um, I'm kind of interested in like seeing that as well, if that maybe will play a part in this or maybe, maybe, maybe Kira's been completely forgotten at this point. I don't know. I'm, there's just so many things I'm kind of interested in the world of Death Note and like where it's gone and where it is where it will be in this epilogue chapter so yeah actually looking at the teaser image near is pictured with ryuk so i wonder if near is going to appear in this chapter too i feel like that's probably a pretty good possibility yeah, it's like a much older near but very clearly him holding an l puppet on his finger a much so. older much hotter near yeah <laughs> i suppose Huh. But uh yeah, no, I'm I'm actually pretty excited for this. Uh how about you? Yeah, I'm curious. I'm not excited I guess, but um you know, I like that note. I'm interested to see like what new take they might have on it or just what they'll do with this eighty seven page story that they're doing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm sure it's safe to say that we'll definitely be covering this on the podcast, uh, you know, uh, when it, whenever it gets picked up by Viz and definitely put on the Shonen Jump app. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's really about it for serialization news. And so uh, we kind of want to take just a little bit to revisit some of the Jump Festa news that uh, I had reported on on our last episode of 2019, where we talked about Golden Kamui. And uh, I don't think we're going to go over, like, all of it again, but uh, I know, Lum, you had some thoughts and, and whatnot to kind of contribute to some of these announcements, uh, if you just want to go ahead and take that away. Yeah, so starting off the Boruto announcement that they are entering the Mujina Bandits arc, which in the manga is the arc that directly follows the retelling of the movie arc, and... I guess to me it's quite surprising that they are finally going to cover content that the manga has done after a long stretch of time since when the anime had covered the movie. Like, I think that the gap in terms of episodes mirrors the filler gap between the Sasuke retrieval arc and the beginning of Naruto Shippuden in the anime. It's almost that long of basically anime-only content. But the thing with the Boruto anime, of course, is that it is not adapting the manga. It's like doing its own thing, much in the same way Dragon Ball Super's anime manga are doing their own same things, even though they were telling the same story. So I'm curious to see how this version of the arc differs from the manga version. I do find it interesting that the consensus is that the arc is called Mujina Bandit's arc, because to me, it's like more about Bordo's friendship with the daimyo on Tento. But we'll see. The cover poster for this arc definitely shows a very menacing Shojoji, the main antagonist of the arc. So 
you know, maybe they'll expand on the role of the titular villainous group and Shidoji as an antagonist, and we'll see how they handle it. I'm definitely curious now that they are entering back into the realm of, like, the really, really plot-important stuff that's in the manga. Next up is Food Wars' announcement of the fifth season coming in April 2020. I think a lot of people were surprised that they are going to be covering presumably the Blue Arc, though there has been rumors that they will go off in an original direction. And I guess I would prefer the original direction, if only because people generally were not fond of the Blue Arc, and perhaps they can address some of the complaints people had with it if they did take it in an original direction. And considering that, like, the teaser poster shows off Hayama, Alice, and Kurogiba, who are barely in the blue arc, maybe they'll expand on the roles of, like, the Totsuki characters who are in the Council of Ten. And just completely reimagine that final stretch of the story from the ground up. It'll be curious to see for sure. But... If nothing else, Food Wars in its entirety, for better or worse, will be adapted into the anime. I'm quite surprised that Promise Neverland's second season is debuting so late into this year in October. By the time it premieres, I imagine the manga will already be over, which leaves me curious whether they will try and adapt through the rest of the manga in one season. If so, hopefully they will at least give it two cores, but... I am curious to see how much they will cover when Promised Neverland anime really does return. World Trigger getting a second season was definitely a nice surprise. I definitely think it is a good time considering that they are nearing the end of the B-Rank Wars. So at the very least, they could do a season just covering through there in terms of chapters of content. I think there isn't necessarily a ton more they have to cover so i wouldn't imagine it'd be longer than one core two cores since i don't think that they are doing this from the ground up they're just continuing from where they left off but we will see it's definitely nice to see world trigger get some attention and love and the anime continue moving past the jump festa news we previously reported that the Sleepy Princess in Demon Castle anime was in development, and now we have confirmation that it will indeed premiere this year, and I'm sure that our good friend Bomber is very delighted that there will be a new Sunday anime that everyone will be very excited about and will be talking about. Hopefully shed more attention to both this series and Shonen Sunday as a whole. You know, Bomber definitely complains a lot that uh, Shigak Khan does not produce enough Shonen Sunday anime compared to Jump, but here's hoping this one will start a new trend of new adaptations of very popular Shonen Sunday series currently running. And then the final bit of TV anime news is that Netflix has added more episodes of the original Saint Seiya with the English dub and subtitles. And this is episodes 42 through 73 of the series, which is now available for users in North America, New Zealand, and Australia. And I believe that they indeed are also, or have also added, the Asgard arc, which would be the first time those episodes would be made available legally on any platform in the U.S. So that is also very exciting to hear, and I am interested in watching those episodes. 
Because uh, it is an anime original arc, I have not really uh, checked it out. Well, I'm glad that more people are getting to watch Saint Seiya. I mean, like, Saint Netflix is probably the best place to put Saint Seiya on, considering, you know, how much of a wide reach Netflix has, so, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's cool to hear. Uh, and then we're going to move on to two pieces of of, uh, of theatrical movie news. Uh, these are pretty cool. So uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, Tokyo Godfathers is, is an anime film by the late and great Satoshi Kon. Uh, compared to his other really trippy, psychedelic sort of movies that make you question reality... Um, Tokyo Godfathers is a little more down to earth. Uh, it's about this group of, uh, of homeless people who basically find a baby in the cold, cold streets of Tokyo and basically try to take care of it and find its mother. It's a, it's a very good movie. Uh, I only just watched it like I think two or three years ago. And I mean, it's, I don't know. I don't know what else to say other than it's a good movie. Like you, if you haven't seen it, you should, with that being said, uh, it looks like G-Kids has uh, acquired the theatrical and home entertainment distribution rights for the movie, and they will be releasing the film with a 4K restoration and a new English dub and subtitles uh, this early 2020. So I can only assume that like this will probably be in theaters before like April, maybe, some somewhere around then. Um, or at least pretty pretty soon. Um, so yeah, I'm 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 really glad that G Kids has been like looking into getting more Satoshi Kon stuff. I know they have I know they brought out Perfect Blue and uh, Millennium Actress, I believe. And so yeah, uh, me myself, I need I need to watch more Satoshi Kon. I think I've only ever seen Tokyo Godfathers and Paprika. Uh, I definitely need to see more of his stuff. Uh, Lum, how about you? How, how do you feel about Tokyo Godfathers? Yeah, I'm a fan of Satoshi Kon. I've seen. All his films and Paranoia Agent. Tokyo Godfathers is indeed a great film. I really enjoyed it. It may be my favorite of his. It's a very nice, almost feel-good story. And like you said, very down-to-earth. Very much focusing on just a group of homeless characters and their living situation in Christmas and them trying to return this baby. It's very, very nice. But... Yeah, I'm very surprised that they're not waiting till Christmas to give it a theatrical run. But, you know, I'm glad that I'll have a chance to see it in theaters. And this, I think, is the last of Cone's works that really need to be licensed, rescued, and be made available on a format that people can purchase. So that's very nice. And, of course, it has been available to stream on Crackle for many years now, and it's still available for free there. I wonder if that'll change in your future now that G-Kids has the license. But, you know, until then, if you're curious, I would recommend checking it out on there. Or, you know, if you want to wait for the theatrical one, that's also a good choice. I'm definitely very excited to see the film on the big screen. I really enjoyed seeing Perfect Blue on the big screen when they gave that a screening. Oh, yeah. As someone who has a friend who hasn't seen Tokyo Godfathers yet, that gives me the perfect excuse to go see this in theaters. I mean, I look, I probably would have seen it anyway, but, like, I, I, lo- I love showing this movie to people who haven't seen it, so uh, it always gets a pretty good reaction. But, yeah, speaking of theatrical releases, uh, it has finally been confirmed uh, at this point by Funimation 
that uh, they will be bringing over My Hero Academia Heroes Rising, the second My Hero Academia film, uh, over to the United States and Canada in more than 1,000 total theaters this 2020. Uh, They specifically say early 2020. So again, this will probably be coming out pretty soon. All right, so just a quick update on the release date for this movie. Uh, So about five days after we recorded this podcast... Uh, Funimation uploaded their own trailer uh, for Heroes Rising, and at the end of the trailer, it was revealed that uh, that the movie will be in theaters starting from February 26th, so that is a Wednesday, and this is just speculation on my part, but um, I, I wonder how long they're going to be having this movie in theaters, because usually if it's like a real limited release thing, like, you know, uh, Funimation would be at least I would think Funimation would be pretty upfront about like, you know, hey, we're going to have this movie uh, between this date and this date. But yeah, we, we don't really have any, we don't really have any other information at this time about how long this movie will be running in theaters. Uh, all we have to go on is that the movie will be in theaters starting on February 26th. So, all right. And yeah, um, that's, that's about all we know for now. Um, back to the show. And screenings will be made available in both uh, with both an English dub and English subtitles. Um, so yeah, I'm really excited to see this. Um, I was kind of double checking, and uh, this is this is definitely a step up from the two heroes screening. You know, uh, last no, I guess it was about a year or two ago at this point, 2018. Yeah, 2018. Yeah, fall 2018, where the movie was only screening in about 508 theaters total, according to BoxOfficeMojo.com. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised at all that they would double the screenings for a My Hero Academia movie, considering how well the first one did for them. I I can only assume that, like, this movie in particular is probably going to earn double what Two Heroes did. I would hope so, considering it'll be in double the theaters. I'm glad they recognize that My Hero has a very passionate, big audience, and that they will hopefully be doing the same model of release that they did with Dragon Ball Super Broly, in which some locations will be playing the movie multiple showtimes throughout the day and not just the limited one showtime screening style. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't think the movie will make Broly money uh, in particular, but I, but I do think it'll, like I said, it'll definitely do better than, than Two Heroes did, I think. But that's, that's, those are just my predictions. I do think it is a contender to make over $10 million at the very least. Oh, for sure. But no, yeah, I'm I'm really glad this is coming out because I've honestly, I've been, I've been really itching for this movie to come out. I'm, I'm really excited because I, I really don't know that much about the movie other than I guess Hawks is in it, which for some reason people think is a spoiler when it's, it's not, you don't have any context for who the character is or what their deal is. So please miss me with that bullshit um but no yeah like in general this this seems to be i mean it it also looks like it's going to be an improvement over two heroes and where it looks like it's going to be it's going to it's going to make an attempt to like involve all of the class instead of like just a select few which i'm generally um excited to see how they're going to utilize more of the class this time i'm very interested in this film because it is based on scrapped ideas Horikoshi had for the very ending of the series. So from the early reviews I've heard from people about it, like it definitely feels like this is some super climactic, epic kind of story. And I am very intrigued by that. 
I still think this movie is also leading up to a big climactic moment where Deku and Bakugo have to team up. I think, yeah, that's very likely based on the trailers, especially. Also, based on like the little I've seen of... uh, Because I I think when the movie came out in Japan, Jump had a special like two-part one-shot related to the movie that... We haven't gotten over here on uh, through Viz and shown a jump yet, but I'm assuming, like with All Might Rising, uh, they're probably going to post that on the app around the time this movie comes out. But no, yeah, I'm, I'm, I mean, look, uh, we're both huge fans of My Hero Academia, so I think it's safe to assume that we're looking forward to more. Yeah. And so, yeah, uh, I think that's really about it for all the anime-related stuff. Uh, but we're not really done with movie news just yet, as we head into all the lists we have to talk about. Uh, Lum, if you want to talk about the first one. Yes, we'll start off discussing the top films in the Japanese box office in 2019, which was very dominated by anime and anime-related films. Though, I do want to quickly... Follow up on the Saint Seiya Netflix news because I was confused. I thought I had seen that the Asgard had been uploaded to Netflix already. And apparently what had happened is that they did indeed upload it at the same time as they did the other episodes in season four. But it was in Japanese only with no subtitles. And so then they very quickly removed it. Which explains why it's not on there now. But it was on there before, which is why I was seeing people tweet about it when it did come out. And I, in any case, I definitely think it is a confirmation that they are going to add the Asgard arc and beyond to uh, Netflix. Which, again, is very great because that'll be the first time those episodes have been legally available in any form in the U.S., But yes, now we will continue with the top films of the Japanese box office in 2019. And like I said, anime really, really pushes the Japanese box office because the number one film at the box office for Japan in 2019 was Weathering With You, the new film by Makoto Shikai, which is in theaters at the time you're listening to this in the United States. And in Japan, it grossed over $129 million, which is a very huge amount. And 1.3 time, no, 1.5 times more than what the number two film made. So that is very impressive. It shows that uh, Shinkai has a lot of power. While this film is probably not going to recapture the same financial heights as your name, it was still a very seen film and it did very, very well. But number two is, of course, a staple of the Japanese box office and of anime. It's Detective Conan, the latest film, Fist of Blue Sapphire, which is Makoto Kyogoku versus Kaito Kid. That is the entire, like, central gimmick of the film. That grossed about $86.2 million, which was very impressive. And it also did very well in China when it debuted there earlier in the fall too so it also made it quite a bit internationally as well at number three we have the kingdom live action film adaptation which made 52.7 million dollars i reviewed kingdom i got to see the premiere screening of it at anime expo last year and really really enjoyed it as someone who had not 
read the manga and then I went and saw it again uh, in theaters. And I really thought this film was superbly made fantasy filmmaking with like great locations and costume designs, a really epic feel. Like I thought it was an absolute treat to watch and I'm very glad to see that it did very well. And hopefully they continue to make more kingdom films. Man, and number I, four. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, I really wanted to see the kingdom movie, but I couldn't find a theater near me. I was so upset because I really wanted, because you, you guys convinced me to want to go see it and I couldn't. So I guess I'll probably just have to rent that or buy it on Blu-ray or something. Yes, hopefully, if it is not out already, hopefully it does come to home video very soon, because it is a really good film that I would definitely recommend. And at number four, we have One Piece Stampede, the latest One Piece movie that made $50.9 million. It, I believe, is the most financially successful One Piece film to date when you factor in the international box office grosses. And we discussed it on the show before, an episode of Manga Mavericks Movies. We overall enjoyed it. It was a great celebration of One Piece and 20 years of the anime. And had a lot of fun cameos and it was generally a good time. In terms of other staple anime franchises, of course, we have Doraemon the movie, the latest new Doraemon movie. Doobitus Chronicle the Moon Exploration that made $46.1 million. At uh, number six, we have a film called Masquerade Hotel, which I don't know if it's adapting anything, but that made $42.7 million. At seven, we have Dragon Ball Super Broly did uh, really well in the U.S. And actually in Japan made not that much more than what its U.S. gross was in the year of 2019, which was $36.8 million. But in the U.S., it made just over $30 million. So very interesting to see that they made almost the same amount in the U.S. and in Japan this year, which is very cool. And I'll skip number eight and nine since I don't quite know. I haven't seen these films, don't know much about them. But number ten was the latest Pokemon film, the remake of Mewtwo Strikes Back Evolution, which I also got to see at Anime Expo. And that has been the only official U.S. screening of that film so far. Very surprisingly, Pokemon International has not announced any dub plans for it. It has not released the film yet, even though generally they release these films in the winter of the same year they come out in Japan. So very, very surprising that has not come out yet. We still don't know anything about what's going on with the dub or release date of that. But, you know, I really enjoyed my time watching this film at the premiere screening, and it seemed to do pretty well in the Japanese box office, considering it's here at number 10, because it grows $27.4 million. So pretty successful. I guess the only film I'm kind of surprised that I'm not seeing on here is Premiere. Like, I I know it's been doing pretty well over here, considering it's uh, very sporadic uh, releases in theaters and the fact that it's been going in and out of theaters for uh, for so long over the past couple months. Uh, I'm really wondering how how it did over in over in its home country of Japan. Well, worldwide, Premiere made thirteen point one million. So in Japan. It would be a little less than that. So it made about half as much as the new Pokemon film. But, you know, it is still quite a success for Trigger, I think. And here in the U.S., it made about a million dollars, which is quite good. Yeah, for for, for, as, for as many screenings as it had, yeah, I think that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. 
Now let's move on from the talk of movies and let's go into some character popularity polls. And we're going to start off with a very amusing one for Konosuba. So apparently that Konosuba has done this before, but they ran a general election character popularity poll. And in the first one, Aqua, who is ostensibly the main heroine of the series, lost to other characters. She lost to Megamine, Eris, and Iris in the first popularity poll. So with this second popularity poll, they kind of rigged it so Aqua could come in at number one because the way the poll was set up is that it ran from November 1st to December 5th and anyone could vote one in the poll once a day and every vote was worth 10 points but anyone who voted for Aqua could choose to give her 10 points or 50 points so five times as many points she could receive and so as a result of that Aqua earned like six times as many votes as the number two runner-up in this character popularity poll. His Aqua came in ultimately with 3,389,400 and 400 points, which is, again, like five, six times more than Megumin, who came in as number two, with 755,870 points. And then Darkness came in at number three with 208,570 points. And the rest of the character popularity points are the top 10. Iris came in with 207, 910 points. Union, 193, 600 points. Eris, 174, 990 points. Kazuma, 102, 490 points. Uh, Riz at number 8 with 95,070 points. Chris at number 9, 69,520 points. And Veneer rounds off the top 10 with 51,830 points. So, not too unexpected what the most popular characters are. I mean, I guess... I am kind of surprised Iris and Eris are as popular as they are because they are so, they are more minor characters than the rest of these guys. But it is still pretty amusing to me just that they they rigged this election in Aqua's favor because you could choose to give her more, like five times as many points as any other characters. So... It was really funny to me, the results of these polls. But yes, I think that uh, Aqua, I mean, I think Megumin would have definitely won if they did not do this gimmick, considering how popular she is. But uh, as a result of this contest, uh, the author of Konosuba, Natsume Akatsuki, will write short stories about the top three characters. So Aqua, Megumin, Darkness, all three main characters. And these short stories will be bundled with future volumes of series. The Aqua short story is going to be bundled with God's Blessing on this Wonderful World Detour, which is already out in Japan, and the Megumin and Darkness short stories are going to be bundled with pre-ordered copies of Combatants Will Be Dispatched, Volume 5, which is one of Akatsuki's other series, and that has also come out at this point. And both books come with an audio drama about Aqua and Kazuma called God's Punishment on a Cheating God. This and apparently you're gonna have to order both books to receive the whole story told in this audio drama. So very cool, fun little marketing gimmicks there. And yeah, thought 
all that was very amusing. But now let's move on to our second character popularity poll we need to talk about. And that's the latest My Hero Academia character popularity poll. Yes, we could finally talk about the results. We couldn't talk about them last time we recorded because uh, we literally recorded right before they were officially out. So uh, now we can do that. Um, You want to go over the top 10 in Japan first, I guess? It probably makes the most sense. Sure. So starting from the bottom up, at number 10, we have Momo Yaoyorozu, which personally, I'm, I'm happy to see my Momo on there. She's, uh, she, I, I think I think at this, well, I guess I wouldn't say she's an underrated character, considering she's in the top 10 at least, but um, I feel like she hasn't had much of a chance to do much in the story lately, but, uh, you know, she's, she still ha- has had her good moments. I, I enjoy her for, for the character she is. Uh, and then we have Himiko Toga at number nine, which uh, you know I I know that there probably a there's probably a certain type of person that's into Toga, and uh, I gotta say I'm I'm not one of them. I'm really not a big fan of like the the really crazy yandere kind of chicks who are like oh I'll do anything for you, even kill or whatever. So you know what, whatever floats your boat, but yeah. I mean, her backstory was also this year, which was pretty interesting. She had some good moments. See, I didn't really think her backstory was like... I didn't think it was that interesting, personally. But, I don't know, that, that might have been just me. Like, I... N- not to give away too much from our Patreon podcast, but I kind of agree with what Maxie said about uh, about her in that arc last year in particular. Where it's like, uh, she's kind of what you expect, you know? But I don't know, that's just me. Um, at number eight, we have the... The the actual best girl, uh, Ochiko Uraraka. Ochiko is kind of a basic choice. Yeah, maybe, but I don't know. She 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 kind of falls in line with, you know, uh, what I what I like in a what I like in a character. She's cute. She's uh, uh, I can't think of any other examples, but she's pretty cute. basic. <laughs> Just fawning over the main character, getting sidelined. Hey, look, she knows martial arts, which is pretty cool. She doesn't use them all that often, unfortunately. Doesn't get a chance to. I will say we we have given her flack before for not having the chance to use them. But actually, after like going over the series again, she's had a few moments where she's gotten to use them. Uh, I mean, uh, granted, I, I, I do wish she had a bit more to do in the story. Um, but still, I think she's a fun character that... Uh, you know, I always enjoy seeing you on screen personally. Um, at number seven, we have possibly, I'm going to say at this moment, probably my favorite character, Shoto Aizawa, or Shota Aizawa, I should say, Mr. Eraserhead himself. I feel like the longer I stick with My Hero Academia and the, the, the more I read it, the more I just like, I just love Aizawa. Like, I, and maybe this is because I'm a Gintama fan, but like, I'm a real big fan of the older more tired, uh, mature type of character. Uh, the, the, the old tired, like, mentor character that, uh, that Aizawa is. Uh, he, he's, ba- he's basically the Kakashi of, uh, of My Hero Academia, and I'm pretty okay with that. He had a lot of really good moments near the end of the year, what with the latest reveal, which, uh, I won't say for anyone who's not caught up, but a uh, lot of really cool stuff between that and, like, even Vigilantes as well. Well, especially Vigilantes, because that's where we actually get his backstory. Mm-hmm, for sure. And and obviously, like we discussed, now that's tying into the main series almost. And, uh, and yeah, like, 
man, uh, we'll, we'll talk more about him later. But uh, at number six, we have Tomura Shigaraki, which uh, I I don't believe. I think this is his first time in the top ten, I want to say. But I also don't know if that's right. I know he doesn't usually rank very high, at least not that I can remember. But, uh, I mean, honestly, like, after what we got of him this, uh, this past year in the manga, like, I would have been surprised if he didn't rank as high as he did. He... I feel like out of all the villains in the My My Villain Academia arc, I feel like he, obviously with him being the leader, he 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 got the most time to shine, and you know what with his huge uh, backstory and whatnot, like you know, I, I think I think he he out of all the League of Villains, obviously got to do the got to do the most, and I got I think got the most time to shine, thankfully. But then at number five, we have uh, another one of my favorites, Tanya Ida. You know, again, not somebody who has had an active role in the story, but I'm hoping that Horikoshi will make do on what he mentioned at uh, at his last appearance at San Diego Comic Con, where he mentioned that he was going to focus more on the uh, on the Ida family at some point. I hope I'm hoping he makes good on that because I want to see what Ida's up to. I, I love that kid. Um, at number four, we have Mister Ajiro Kirishima, Red Riot himself. Um, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm sure like that's probably carrying over from the overhaul arc, and I'm sure it especially helps that uh, you know uh, that that arc has been uh, it has been animated at this point, and uh, I'm sure that probably helped his popularity quite a lot. Uh, probably carried over from the anime, but it just in general, like I've really grown to like Kirishima a lot. He's just a bundle of of rock hard positivity. <laughs> I will say the 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 top three are pretty predictable. Though, uh, it is interesting because uh, Todoroki is at number three, while Midoriya is at number two, uh, whereas in the last poll, Midoriya was number three. So they basically switched places at this point, which I'm conflicted because I'm glad that Midoriya is moving up, but at the same time, like, I don't know if he really deserves it, considering he really hasn't had much to do in the story in the past, like, year or two. What? No, he had a lot of things to do this year this is the year where he got to know that he has access to all of the previous one for all powers and he learned how to kind of use them and he showed he was learning from endeavor and kind of showed up and was growing in that way he got involved with the whole Todoroki family thing giving Todoroki advice like he's done stuff he's had his character development and he's done stuff but like I, I I feel like over the past year, he, you know, uh, I mean, not that I, I don't know, it's weird. I'm a two minds because he, he hasn't really been the main character of the series in a little bit because of like, you know, because of Horikoshi wanting to focus on, you know, the League of Villains and Hawks and Endeavor. Like, I feel like, I feel like those have been like the main characters of the story for a little while now. Um, where Midoriya kind of feels like he's his, like, he kind of feels like the secondary character to his own series to me personally. Like, yeah, he, he, he had, he got access to all these new powers and like, I'm really looking forward to seeing what he does with those. But in terms of like real standout moments with Midoriya, I feel like he hasn't really had a lot this past year, but again, that's just me. Yeah, I wouldn't disagree. I, I mean, just, I guess, in contrast to Todoroki, he has had more to do than Todoroki. Todoroki is like just kind of been more he's involved with the Endeavor thing but like 
he's more like reacting to the Endeavor stuff. Meanwhile, Midoriya is more has been more active in different things growing this year. That that is true. I'll, I'll give you that. Um, but at number one, in case you couldn't see it coming, is Katsuki Bakugo. Uh, I believe this is his third time being first in a row. Fourth in a row, I believe. Oh, and man. once again, he got double the votes of the number two person. Jeez. So, yeah, he's overwhelmingly the most popular My Hero character. Oh, man, I really, I really just want Midoriya to take him, take him down at least once. It's gotta happen. If it doesn't happen, that'll that'll make me sad. Um, but yeah, no. Uh, I guess we can move on to uh, the Western poll here, uh, given by uh, Viz Media and Shonen Jump over here in North America, where we also have Bakugo at number one. He is both popular in America and in Japan, and I, I gotta be honest, I'm. I don't know, maybe this will be an unpopular opinion with some people, but, like, I've turned around on Bakugo enough to, at this point to, you know, to kind of agree that I, I, I can I see why he's he's the most popular character. He's he's a good character, all things considered. But, yeah, no, I guess just to kind of go uh, with the rest here from the bottom up, at number 10 we have Mirio Togata, who, you know, I'm sure this is carried over from the anime. He's, uh, I, I feel like... I think a lot of his stuff at the time of this recording has been animated what with him uh protecting Airy from overhaul and whatnot. And it's I got I mean, look, Mirio, I feel like at this point is like I feel like ever ever since after the overhaul arc, we haven't really like seen much of him, which is a shame because like honestly, like rewatching the overhaul arc really makes me appreciate him uh more than I did the first time I read uh his stuff in the manga. He's 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 a he's a really underrated character. I feel like compared to everybody else. I feel like, but uh, and then at number nine we have All Might, which uh, you know uh, he he hasn't had like a lot to do, but it's always nice to have him around. Like All Might, I think even after his big battle with One for All or uh, All for One, I keep getting that confused. Still, um, he's still I think one of the most interesting characters in my hero, and I'm and I'm. I'm glad that we still have him around. At number eight, we have Ochiko Uraraka. Little down compared to, uh, or actually, no, it's same same place, same place as the uh, as the Japanese poll. Uh, so p- probably the same level of uh, of popularity, I guess, if you want to call it that. Uh, at number seven, we have Hawks, which I'm really surprised Hawks is not in the top ten in the Japanese poll. Like I really would have figured Japanese readers would. Uh, would uh, would flock to him a bit more yeah especially because he was number four in the poll the year previous it is worth knowing that hawks only barely missed the top 10 though he came in at number 11 mm, i see i see at number six we have aizawa who uh, seems like over here he's a bit more popular than he is in japan uh since he has a a spot higher in the Western pole, which, you know what? I'm fine with that. Aizawa is really cool, and I love him. Um, at number five, we have Momoyao Yozoru. Uh, try saying... No, actually, you know what? I'm not going to say that, because then you're actually going to say it five times fast. I, I, should, I should learn my lesson at this <laughs> point. Momoyao Yozoru, Momoyao Yozoru, Momoyao Yozoru, Momoyao Yozoru, Momoyao Yozoru. There we go. Joke complete. Uh, so, we, uh, we have her at number five, which... Uh, it's kind of interesting to see that she's so high up for the Western poll. I'm assuming a lot more people like her over here or something. At number four, we have Todoroki, who is a spot down from the uh, 
from the Japanese poll at number four. Uh, Midoriya, again, uh, keeping his th- uh, number three spot uh, in the Western poll, uh, again, down from the Japanese poll. Uh, and then we have Kirishima at number two, who uh, is definitely higher in this poll, uh, at least a little bit than he is in the uh, Japanese poll. Uh, uh, two whole spots, again, I'm sure that is because of his stuff in the overhaul uh, anime adaptation, which, I I mean, look... Like, uh, after, after watching that part of the arc, like that, that was, that was basically my, my, uh, my, uh, uh, I don't know what you would call it a moment of rebirth where I was like, you know what? Kirishima is a good character and I love him. And, uh, you know, like I said earlier, like Bakugo is also at number one in this poll. So not much of a difference here with the Western poll, again, with the exceptions of, uh, of additions like Hawks and, and Mirio and, and All Might, um, which, I mean, personally, if I uh, like, if we were talking about my top ten, I think uh, I think all three of those would probably be in my personal top ten as well. Um, and uh, you know, uh, Viz is was uh, so nice enough to give us uh, the other ninety characters that uh, made it into their poll, which we won't go over. But uh, yeah, they're also doubles in this listing because they listed some characters with their last name first and their first name. So there were du- there were double entries for some characters. If you go down the list, you'll notice. Huh, that's that's interesting. I'm I'm kind of looking through the list right now, and uh, I haven't seen anything yet. But oh yeah, that, that's interesting. Uh, just 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 for just for the hell of it, uh, I looked at the number one hundred, uh, no, the 100th most popular character in My Hero Academia, and that is Cementos. Which you know what I'm okay with that. He's he's he seems like a pretty cool guy. Very practical quirk. Uh, probably good for construction. He's probably making a lot of money from his quirk. Yeah, yeah. See, actually, at the bottom ten, you can notice one of the examples I'm talking about. So at ninety one, we have uh, Shirakumo, and then we also have Shirakumo at ninety five. So again, there are like some duplicates in here. Ah, oh, that is really interesting, huh? Oh, at eighty nine, we have Kohei Horikoshi. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> uh, that's that's pretty great. But yeah, I, I think overall uh, a good list. Um, man, I just saw Best Genist, and now I'm trying to find him again. He's at 89 and 83, Horikoshi. Ah, oh, see, man, yeah, there are a lot of doubles. Uh, but no, yeah, um, yeah. Okay, sorry, I was looking at this list, and yeah, it's it's just, it's a shame Best Genus isn't in the top ten. That's that's the only thing missing is I would put Best Genus in top ten. Yeah, Best Genus actually was in the top ten in the Japanese poll last year, but I guess he's been out of the story for so long. It's just not uh, there. Maybe he's not fresh in people's minds. Very interesting that uh, Shigaraki is number eighteen overall in the Western list. Um, I mean, I guess I could see why, like. It's it's so interesting. I have this weird thing with Shigaraki where I think he's a good villain, but uh, I don't know. I know some people who don't really like care for him as a character or really as a villain and think he's kind of lame. But like, I but I, I also always, I always I I always argue with people that like that's kind of the point almost. Like, you know, yeah, sure he's threatened. Like you're supposed to be threatened by his potential almost. Uh, you're supposed to be kind of threatened by like what he could do, but the whole point of his character is that he's learning alongside with with Deku in in how to become a villain and a powerful one, I should say. But you know, to each his own. 
But uh, I don't know. I guess was there was there anything else you wanted to mention with this list before we move on? No, it's pretty interesting to see how favorites can change year to year. But some things remain constant, and which is Bakugo is by far the most popular character. Yep. Uh, really looking forward to seeing him get taken down, if only for the fact that I want Midoriya to be one at least once. But yeah, anyway. So I guess uh, we'll move on from that to just a little more My Hero Academia talk, uh, because uh, My Hero Academia had two rankings in the latest New York Times uh, graphic books bestseller list for January. Uh, Volume 1 of My Hero Academia ranked at number 8, while Volume 2 ranked at number 10. So it's finally starting to happen. We're, we're, We're getting multiples of My Hero Academia in the New York Times bestselling list. Yeah. Some additional representation. Very, very interesting to see. Um, interesting how Volume 1 bumped up a place, uh, considering how I believe it was number... I'm kind of double-checking here. Number 11 on the last list, uh, which just means that more people over the month have probably bought the first volume of My Hero Academia. Mm-hmm. I'm sure a lot of people probably, like, you know, bought bought it for their friends or their family as, like, Christmas gifts or whatever. But no, yeah, not a lot of other manga on the list. Uh, again, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing the day where at least half the New York Times list is My Hero Academia, because it could happen. Well, now we're going to move on to some best of the year lists. And first, we'll start off with Yalza's Great Graphic Novels for Teens list. This is a comprehensive list of all the graphic novels that came out last year that the American Library Association's Young Adult Library Sur- Services Association, which is a sub-organization within that large organization, uh, considers to be, you know, some of the best graphic novels they'd recommend for teen readers. And they had, uh, like, 97 titles that they uh, listed and ranked. And of those 97 titles, 13 of which were manga. And in their top 10 recommendations was Kamome Shirahama's, which had Atelier, which... In terms of early results from our survey, it's also a manga that has brought, been brought up by several people as one of their favorite manga of last year as well. So it's definitely something worth checking out for sure. Yeah, we'll definitely have to check that out at some point. Other manga that ranked in Yalza's Great Graphic Novels for Teens list include Blank Canvas, my so-called artist journey from Akiko Igashimura, her autobiographical manga about her time in art school and becoming a mangaka. Then we got Ao Harurai by Yosaki Saka, Become You by Ichigo Takano, Frankenstein, the Junjijo Story Collection. I believe it is the manga version of I Want to Eat Your Pancreas, written by Yoro Sumino and drawn by Idumi Grehara. We got Kaiju Girl Caramelese by Spika Aoki, which We Lord has reviewed and really enjoyed, so you can check that out on allcomic.com. We've got Love and Focus by Yoko Nogiri, Mob Psycho 100 by One, Our Dreams of Dash, Himanami Tazakar by Yuki Kamatani, which is something I wish I had gotten around to reading because I know that it made several people's best of the year's lists. It probably definitely would have made mine too. But regardless, I think we will talk about it at some point. I definitely have plans to read this. Uh, Satoko Inada is one that I did read, though, and I also really, really enjoy. That comes from Anishin, and that's just a wonderful story about friendship from two people from different places, you know, just being roomies and, you know, learning about each other's cultures. 
Then we got another Junjito book, Smash the Junjito Story Collection. And then finally, we have Wonderland by Yugo Ishikawa. So uh, quite a variety of titles from different publishers on this list and all very strong recommendations, very diverse and very worth checking out. Mm-hmm, for sure, for sure. But now we're going to move on to some Japanese lists. And this one's kind of fun because this is Brutus Magazine's quote-unquote most dangerous books list. And by dangerous, they mean works that are like stimulating, kind of cutting edge and thought-provoking. And there are a lot of manga on this list, some of which we have not received a North American release. So I will just mention the ones that are available in uh, North America, have been licensed or are going to be in the near future. And those include Spy Family by Tatsuya Endo. 1112 for Happy Marriage by Peko Watanabe. I Want to Hold Aonokan So Badly I Could Die by Umi Shina. This is not licensed, but I'm going to mention anyway, because of course I will. Mao by Rumiko Takahashi, they recommend. Octodge by Totsuya Matsuki and Shiro Uzazaki. And uh, finally, Heavenly Delusion by Masakazu Ishiguro. So if you're looking for some talk-provoking, cutting-edge manga that uh, will really stimulate you, then those titles are definitely recommendations for you. I think Heavenly Delusion in particular is being released by Denpa, if I remember correctly. In which case, I'll, I'll, have, to, I'll have to pick that up. Uh, I remember being interested by that title in particular. Indeed, and it definitely looks like a very interesting title, for sure. And uh, honestly, like I don't know much about Rumiko Takahashi, and I haven't really like explored her works that much. But he got me really interested in reading Mal, honestly, what, from, what I, from what I've been hearing about it. It sounds really interesting. Yeah, I definitely will mention it a little bit later on into the show, but we will go into the next big retrospective list. So why don't we head into the Kono Mango Gasegoi Editors 2020 Rankings. So they have two lists. They have one for male readers and for female readers. Sadly, I know more of the titles in the male readers list than I do the female readers. But the number one for female readers was Sayonara Miniskirt by Aoi Makino, which again is being released in English by Biz Media as Not Your Idol. I am very much looking forward to reading that, so that is definitely something I'm excited about. But uh, not in terms of other names I recognize. Yumi Tamura created a Basara and Seven Seeds. She has a manga on this list coming in number four called Do Not Say Mystery. So perhaps that could pick up some traction and get a license sometime too, because I'm definitely interested in more of her works as well. And then, uh, yeah, I, I, unfortunately, I have to agree. I, I don't really recognize a lot of the titles on uh, on the female list. Uh, I'm I'm not even sure if any of any of these are licensed besides uh, number one. Sadly, I don't think any of them are besides number one. Uh, one other name I recognize is Asumiko Nakamura, creator of Utsubatora, and she has a manga on the list called Majoro Bana Nosaku, and that comes in right at the very end, tied for 18th, with a few other titles. Uh, but there are at least, there are at least like a, a few titles on, on the male readers list that I'm sure we do recognize. Yeah, I mean, we'd have to recognize number one, which is Spy Family by Tatsuyendo. Then number four, we have Chainsaw Man. Number six is Demon Slayer. 
And Dr. Stone comes in at number 17. And I think that's about it. Unsurprisingly, it's uh, mostly the Shonen Jump stuff we recognize. The one series I, I don't think is... Um... Uh, one of the ones I don't think is licensed, uh, Robo Sapiens Zen- uh, Zenshi, I kind of looked up because the title just kind of stood out to me. And uh, yeah, uh, I can't seem to find a lot of info about it, but from like the cover of the first volume, it seems it seems very interesting. And uh, let's see, it says it's listed as a mecha mystery psychological sci-fi seinen series. So it's two volumes and it's uh, published by Kodansha. So uh yeah, I don't know. That sounds kind of interesting. Maybe, maybe, maybe that'll get picked up by Kodansha over here. I'm not sure. But uh, anyway, yeah, a lot, lot of good titles on the, on the mail readers list, at least. Uh, there are a few other titles that have been licensed or are pending to come out. There are a few Kodansha series, Blue Period, Sweat and Soap. Then Dress Up Darling is a new license by Square Enix. And Ride on King will be coming to us from Soul Press. Mm, there we go. Uh, real quickly, just to kind of, we don't, we're, we're not going to go over all of them, but uh, Konamanga Sugoi also included the top twenty list of uh, manga magazines, and uh, Shonen Jump Plus ranked at number one with Weekly Shonen Jump right below it. Which uh, I'm surprised Shonen Jump Plus ranked over the main Weekly Shonen Jump uh, magazine. Uh, that that really tells me that. Uh, uh, people are really finding a lot of the Jump Plus stuff in particular uh, quite interesting. Yeah, I think that the Jump Plus stuff is a little more adventurous and exploring different kinds of content. And just on the grounds for being the place where Blue Flag runs alone, I think that definitely makes a great case for being a really good place for some very creative and uh, play- a place for stories to be told, stories that might not be able to be told in the traditional Weekly Shonen Jump magazine. Um, I'm kind of looking at the list. I don't think I see Shonen Sunday on this list, which is a real shame. That is uh, definitely very sad. I think Bomber would definitely be very, very disappointed by that. Magazine comes in the list uh, here at number seven, and uh, I don't know. I feel Sunday is better than magazine. That might be a little bit of bias from talking, but can't win them all, I guess. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I guess we can move on from that to possibly our biggest list, uh, in which we will have a lot to talk about. Let's just say, and so I guess it's it's that time of the year where we talk about Oricon's top-selling manga in Japan by series for the year of 2019. And I think we are going to start from the bottom, where we have uh, the manga adaptation of That Time I Got Reincarnated as a Slime, uh, which sold over 3 million copies. And I believe, because uh, I, um, I have the 2018 list on me as a comparison, uh, it seems like uh, that time I got reincarnated as a slime in particular is uh, is a place down from where it was at in 2018 at number nine on the list. It only sold slightly less copies, though, just uh, different by a few thousands. Yeah, I mean, the, the, obviously, that's not me saying like, oh, well, it's clearly doing way worse than last year. It's still doing pretty good, all things considered. Um, at number nine on the 2019 list, we have Kaguya-sama Love is War. Uh, selling just a little over uh, 4 million copies, whereas I believe, I don't think it was on the list it was last year, not. Uh, which is really interesting. Um, this is one of the ones that I think got 
propelled up thanks to the strength of a uh, of its anime adaptation, which I think is very similar to a few others up the list. Okay, I was just going to ask if the anime was this year because I'm having so much trouble remembering what came out this year and what came out last year. Yeah, the anime was like the very beginning of this year. God. The same with number five and number four. <laughs> okay, um, enough of me not getting times right. So uh, at number eight, we have Q, which uh, is down from last year where it was at Previously at number five, though, uh, it, it seems to be selling uh, roughly like 500,000 copies less. Um, but it, again, Haikyuu is still, is still a pretty powerful franchise at this point. People still love it. This next one is an interesting one because it's a couple places down from last year. Uh, number seven, we have Attack on Titan, which is selling about over 4.5 million copies at this point. Um, well, it's 500,000 copies down, basically, from last year. Essentially, yeah. But again, Attack on Titan, I'm, I I want to say Attack on Titan will probably be higher next uh, this next year, just because I... Uh, It'll be ending, presumably. Essentially, yeah. Like, it's it's going to come to an end this year, I'm sure, and I'm sure that'll, that'll increase interest uh, somewhat. Uh, and then at number six, we have My Hero Academia, again, selling just a little over 5 million copies. Uh, whereas My Hero Academia last year was uh, at number two, selling just a little over a million copies less. But again, My Hero Academia is still a pretty big powerhouse. Well, I mean, last year, My Hero Academia was selling 6.7 million copies. So this is like almost a drop of 2 million copies. So that is quite surprising, considering My Hero Academia you would think has maintained its popularity and continues to be driving up sales. But actually, this is quite a significant sales slump when you think about it. Like, this is like... That is true, yeah. It's like down a third in sales, so very surprising. I wonder if if, it, if it's partially because, like, maybe, maybe people over in Japan just weren't as into the My Villain Academia arc. Because I remember when that arc was running, I had heard a lot of, like discourse about how like uh people in japan were like really against that arc and generally didn't really want an arc about the league of villains i did hear rumors about that yeah so it'd be interesting if i'm, I'm sure that probably wasn't like the main factor but i'm sure maybe that was probably part of the reason i don't know it's just kind of interesting but i'm not too worried about my hero academia it's still in the top 10 and is it, like it's still doing pretty well again all things considered uh, and number five, um, serendipitous, quite a very amusing coincidence. Yes, very much so. We have the quintessential quintuplets, again, selling over 5.5 million copies, uh, closer to 6 million, it seems like. Uh, I don't think this was on the list last year. No, again, this is another one propelled by the success of a very well-received anime. Uh, at number four, we have The Promised Neverland, uh, selling nearly, uh, 7.5 million copies. Again, uh, uh, it went, shot up, uh, four places be basically because of its anime this year. Yeah, and, uh, over three million more in sales, too. Like, it really, really grew. Mm-hmm. I'll be interested in seeing what its place will be like on the list, uh, in 2020 at the end of this year here uh when the when the second season comes out. At number 3 we have Kingdom 
uh, selling just over 7.5 million copies. Uh, I'm sure the live action uh, movie probably had something to do with it. But then again, like Kingdom was already selling pretty well uh, without the live action movie. So I really just in general, I know Kingdom is just a really popular series. So yeah, I definitely think it got a bump from the movie. But in general, whenever I hear people talk about Kingdom, they're always really, really excited about it. So I think it's a series that continues to draw buzz. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in seeing how it'll do once this next season of the anime comes out. Mm-hmm. Um, and at number two, um, this is where things get really interesting. Because for the first time in 11 years, One Piece is at number two. You heard me right. One Piece is at number two, not number one, number two. The king of the pirates has been dethroned. He has been cut down, slain, if you would. Oh, man. Uh, Yes, so One Piece is at number two with sales of just a little over 10 million copies. Again, definite. See, it's it's interesting because it's in second place, but still... It sold more than last year, like, by... Two million more, so it's doing. It's, it's, still, it's still doing pretty good. People are pretty hyped for Wano in Japan, I think. Oh yeah, for sure, and I'm sure like stuff like the One Piece Stampede probably drove a few, drove a little bit of sales here and there. I'm sure. Yeah, I think the whole 28th anniversary of the anime vibes helped the manga sales too. Mm-hmm, for sure. Uh, but at number one, we have. Demon Slayer, Kimetsu no Yaiba, that's right. This is what the power of anime does. This is what happens when you have the power of God and anime out on your side. And uh, UFO table. And UFO table, that's right. Uh, the three most important powers. Uh, so, yeah, D- Demon Slayer, really the only thing in a while that's been able to dethrone One Piece with year with the yearly sales of 12 million copies. And uh, this is where things get interesting, because this... We purposely waited a bit to talk about this because this is this is this news is about almost two months old at this point, admittedly. But we decided to wait on this because there was a lot of hubbub going on about Demon Slayer and One Piece in particular because it was reported by Shueisha themselves that Demon Slayer was only their second highest selling manga in 2019. So obviously that kind of contradicts what we have uh, Oricon telling us for 2019. And uh, at this point, I can't really tell you like what the miscommunication is here. Like, I mean, according to Shueisha, like uh, One Piece sold 12 million copies while Demon Slayer sold 10 million, which is obviously has to be incorrect because, you know, uh, Oricon has their sales essentially switched. So I'm not really sure what the deal is with that. And unfortunately, uh, this caused a whole lot of discourse amongst Demon Slayer and One Piece fans because, you know, sales matter at the end of the day, you know? I don't know. I'm so tired. Well, at that at this level, they almost don't because they are undeniably successful. And it doesn't matter which one is number one, other than the bragging rights of Demon Slayer being able to say that it's the drone One Piece. Uh-huh. But, uh, you know, obviously, they have uh, earned a lot of profit, and they have surely done very well for the creators. Uh, so that's really all that matters at the end of the day. And, but I will say that uh, if early reports for that I've been hearing about are to be believed, that Demon Slayer 
will probably end 2020 undeniably as number one because already, from what I've heard, is already accumulated like four million in sales just in the first month of this sales year alone. Jeez. Just in December and early January alone. So already it's like leaps and bounds of, of anything else. And uh, yeah, I think uh, 2020 will be another good year for Demon Slayer. I can I cannot believe that when we covered this initially as a jump start, I I didn't I didn't really think it was gonna last. <laughs> Demon Slayer Fervor is so hype in Japan right now that not only are they running out of their stock of volumes and have to <laughs> continue reprint more and more, but also people are so obsessed with it that there are reports that people have been shoplifting volumes. Like it's an obsession. It's uh, really blown up into a cultural phenomenon. Oh my god! Yeah, I can only imagine the headlines we're going to be seeing soon. Uh, forty forty year old man shoplifts uh, all twenty something volumes of Demon Slayer to sell to sell <laughs> online themselves or some bullshit. I don't know. I'm sure. I'm sure it's going to happen. We're gonna we're gonna see that reported at least once or twice. Mm-hmm. Oh man! But yeah, no, like. God, you know, with how well Demon Slayer's doing, like, I understand, like, why Ufo Table decided to do a movie for the next arc. Like, I know they had their reasons, and I think they're valid reasons. Like, realistically, they'll probably make more money from a movie than they would by... I mean, I don't know. Like, I I thought I heard that Demon Slayer Blu-ray sales were pretty good at some point. I don't have the exact numbers offhand, but I thought I heard they were doing pretty good. But, I mean, I don't know, like... I'm sure they'll probably make more money from a movie than they would on home video releases, but like, I have to imagine they're gonna make more TV anime at least, at least like another season. Like, I would be surprised if they if they weren't at least thinking about oh, it. Oh yeah, I think it's a given. I have to imagine. Yeah, at this point. like it has to happen at some point. I would be very. I mean, e- even even if for some weird reason they decided to just keep doing movies, like. Look, as long as we get more anime adaptation of this series, like, I guess at this point, I don't really care how we get it as long as we get it, because I think Yufo Table would be fools if they didn't animate more of this. Because, it, you know, at this point, it's licensed to print money. Yeah, I mean, we're getting that movie, so after that, we gotta get more seasons. I mean, Demon Slayer may end this year as well. We have to see how this final arc plays out, or this current arc, if it's not the final one. But it feels climactic. We'll see, but in any case, you know, Demon Slayer, very, very popular right now. Do you think there's any chance that they'll force uh, Gotoge to keep going even after its, uh, like, natural conclusion? I hope not. I hope they, I hope that if the series reaches the natural conclusion, it just ends. Yeah, I hope so, too. I would be really sad if they just kind of force Demon Slayer to keep going. But no, yeah, that's uh, that's the Oricon list again—a really, really big list this year. And uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know, I don't know what else to say. Like, One Piece has finally been dethroned. I mean, I'm sure it'll probably reclaim it next year. Uh, I mean, uh, there's probably a good chance it'll probably be number one again next year. Uh, but I don't know. I guess we'll have to see. We'll have to see how Demon Slayer keeps going for this next year. But I think that's I think that's about it for news. Um, but you know what, Lum? I'll tell you what. I think I think we should take a break, and then when we come back from the break, I think we should get started with our best of manga discussion. That sounds like a good plan to me. 
Hey guys, it's me again. Um, I promise this is the very last interruption for this podcast that I'm going to make. Uh, but I did just kind of want to step in uh, during the break and uh, just kind of talk about one or two things here. The first being I wanted to apologize for for how inconsistent our uh, releasing schedule has been. Uh, the last episode we put up before this one, our Anime NYC coverage uh, was meant to be up on the site and online a lot earlier, but um, things just didn't work out that way. Uh, Lum handled that behemoth of a podcast all on their own, and uh, I I don't I don't envy them because from what I hear, uh, there were a lot of technical difficulties with that uh, with that episode in particular, and so yeah, Lum. I, honestly, I listened to the podcast and I think Love did a really good job hiding all that stuff. But I just wanted to be transparent and let you guys know that uh, you know we we don't we don't like putting two big podcasts like we don't we don't like releasing big podcasts so shortly within each other. Uh, at the time you're listening to this, you know we're literally putting up this episode like a few days after that one. And, uh, you know, some, sometimes we get people who are like, oh, I'm not caught up on the podcast. You guys, podcasts are too long. And trust me, we, we know. Um, we'll probably talk more about it in the future, but, uh, we're, we're trying to take small baby steps to try and figure out how much time we want to spend on, uh, on certain discussions and certain segments of the show. And, but, but basically to, try to come up with a more consistent runtime for our podcast so that way it's not too long but i mean look i'm just gonna be honest with you i don't think we're i don't think we're capable of uh recording anything that's less than like 90 minutes because we always have so much to talk about um but we'll we'll talk more about that kind of stuff at a later date uh the real reason i wanted to come on and interrupt the podcast once again is to uh, talk to you guys about what we're going to be doing next episode because uh, we didn't w- normally we talk about this kind of stuff at the end, but we didn't really mention it at the end of the episode. This episode, but next episode we have we have a huge huge guest next episode. Um, you probably won't even believe it, but next episode we had on On Takahashi, manga and doujinshi translator, uh, video game translator as well. Uh, as well as the CEO of Iridori Comics, and so yeah, uh, you, you may remember him from uh, from when we talked about all the uh, controversial manga rock stuff uh, happening a, a few months ago. At this point, he was very adamant about uh, tweeting about them and uh, the damage that they were doing to the manga industry and whatnot. Um, though I think the last time we talked about him, I, I didn't do a very good job of, like explaining who he is. Like this is somebody like who works in the manga industry uh, in in Japan, and so yeah, this is uh, you know he 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 works with like Japanese creators and whatnot. So this is uh, this was a pretty like big episode for us that we recorded, which uh, by the time you're listening to this uh, should be out about two weeks after this episode. Uh, sometime in the sometime in the beginning of February, um, but yeah, no, we had On Takahashi on to basically just talk about his time as a translator. Uh, we we originally wanted to talk to him about uh, his uh, Iridori Aqua line, which is basically uh, their non erotic uh, doujinshi collection, uh, which uh, Lum has been reviewing titles from that line on AllComic.com. And we'll probably put links to those in the show notes for anybody who wants to read those. But uh, 
um, I will say that we, our conversation went on so long that we didn't even get to talk about those, but, but we still had a really good conversation with all. And like, I, I like, I, I really want to have him back on the show at some point because like, it was just such a great conversation we had with him. Like we really got to learn about how he, uh, how he became, uh, the CEO of his own company. Uh, and he's had quite the journey. He tells a lot of really good stories. So, I really want you guys to look forward to that episode. Uh, Lum and I had a really fun time talking with Owen. And uh, if we didn't only have like so much time back then, uh, it would have been a way longer podcast. I think we got about two and a half hours worth of audio with Owen alone. Uh, we might shorten that a little bit, but uh, it's a big conversation. It's a really fun one. And again, I hope you guys look forward to that. And, uh, yeah, I think with that, uh, th- that should be about all the interruptions for this episode. Again, I'm so sorry for interrupting your listening experience. But now let's move on to our best of manga discussion. All right. Welcome back from the break. And, uh, yeah, I think it is about time. It is that time of the year once again for our annual best of manga discussion this is our best of manga discussion for 2019, and I'm very excited. Indeed, there was a lot that happened in 2019, and there's a lot to talk about. Man, you know, uh, I was I was re-listening to parts of like our past uh, best of manga discussions lately, and like I I, I always get really excited talking about these because I, I love having the chance to talk about like. You know, so some of the best highlights from the podcast and all the manga we've been reading and all that. I just, I I love doing these episodes. These are probably some of my favorite episodes of the podcast to record. I just wanted to put that out there. But was there, uh, I guess I don't, I don't want to spend like a lot, a lot of time because I feel like we, uh, we, we spent a lot of time talking about, uh, a lot of the podcast in 2019 in our, uh, in part two of our episode 100 special. Um, but I don't know, was, was there anything you like, I guess, was there anything you wanted to say about the podcast this year or, cause I, I don't know, I, I think we've done a pretty good job with the podcast this year, personally speaking. It was definitely the best year of the podcast yet, which is something that I had said in last year's best of retrospective. I thought that year before was the best year yet, but now we have topped that and 2019 is our best year yet. And hopefully I will continue to be able to say in the year's future that we keep better and bettering ourselves because last year we did a lot more variety of different kinds of episodes we covered more series outside of just the stuff in jump even though we were so little jump focused we did have a lot more variety and most importantly we expanded the number of guests we had on the show by a considerable degree in the Previous years combined, we had only had 16 guests on the show before 2019. In 2019 itself, we had 25 guests on the show, 21 of which were completely new first-time guests to the show in 2019. So once again, we significantly increased the number of guests we had on the show last year. And we had a lot of different kinds of people on the show last year including official uh, translators, people who worked in the manga industry as editors, lots of very cool people we had on the show. 
Yeah. A lot of industry people. I, I really enjoyed um I really enjoyed a lot of the guests we had on this year because I thought we had a pretty good variety of people come on the show. But yeah, as I guess while we're talking about the podcast, we might as well get into our very first category, and that is our favorite podcast intros of 2019. And uh I will say as far as like really specifically like edited intros and whatnot, there wasn't really like a lot of them, but you know, we, we at least had some funny intros to the sh- uh, to certain discussions, I guess. But uh, I have an idea for like what my favorites were. But uh, Lum, you can go first if you want. Well, my favorite was basically the entirety of the Ghibli conspiracy because pretty much every transitional segment of that was its own new intro. Just the entire conceit of that was a lot of fun to edit and work on. And it is probably the podcast that I have listened to most. I generally don't re-listen to a lot of the podcasts that I edit myself, but that one always entertains me. A lot of it is because of the combination of the theatrics and the editing of the sound cues and clips. I, I did have a fun time listening to that while I was at uh, at work or whatnot that was uh that was pretty fun i could tell you put a lot of work into that <laughs> and how about yourself well i guess uh in terms of um at least in terms of a lot of the stuff i edited i think the best one that i did this year was our intro to banana fish mm-hmm. that was a good mood setter i what was funny is that uh when i when i made that intro and i i said it to our friends in our local like discord server i, I remember I don't know if you were disappointed, but I remember you pointing out like, oh, well, I was actually reciting lyrics to like one of the openings. And I was like, yeah. oh, I mean, that was kind of the kind of the joke there is that I was the entire point of the musing rant was just to work in the lyrics from the banana fish opening. And I, I felt I felt kind of bad because it was like I wasn't sure if I should have like maybe put that over to like the actual opening. But that would have been that probably would have been kind of hard to do. Yeah, I like what you did with using that mood music. In the in the rain, I thought it really set the tone very well. Yeah, that was definitely one where I had to find a lot of sound effects and put them together. <laughs> and 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 like I specifically, like I specifically like went onto YouTube and found like ten hour loops of like of like cafe background noise, specifically with music playing in the background. <laughs> because whenever I tried to put music like soothing music in the background, it didn't sound as authentic. It sounded kind of fake. And, like, I did some Foley work in there, too, what with, uh, you know, uh, you sipping on whatever you're drinking and, like, you, like, flipping through the book. I They're very, very quiet, so I don't know if, like, anybody caught those, but, like, I recorded a lot of those sounds myself, so. The ambiance was definitely what made it really stand out. Like, it was a really, really good bit, for sure. Yeah, I think I think that's the one I like put the most work into. Like there really isn't there really aren't a lot of like intros or transitions in the podcast this year that like really come to that at least not the ones I edited that really come to that level of quality um in terms of like how much work I put in. Like I think the only other one I did was uh, I did an impromptu uh thing where uh for for our We Never Learn episode where I basically realized that I'm going to be late for the podcast and I I went around my room shuffling all kinds of things to try to put in my backpack and and, and run to <laughs> class. Um, again, it was very impromptu, and it probably wasn't the most like polished, but I thought it was pretty fun. Yeah, that was also really funny. 
but yeah, I think I think the uh, out of like the really really edited ones, those are my favorite. And then I guess uh, was it were there any ones any other ones we wanted to mention? Unless we want to move on, or I also like the ones I did for Saint Seiya and the New York Comic Con twenty nineteen episodes, which was just me singing, kind of or and the Saint Seiya one was me just doing this big hype speech set to Pegasus Fantasy. And then in the New York Comic Con one, it was like a modified lyrics of the Frank Sinatra New York New York song, except it was about New York Comic Con. That was pretty fun, yeah. I haven't listened to the Saint Seiya episode yet for um for reasons, I'll just say that. But uh I th- that that's one I definitely want to listen to at some point. Mm-hmm. Best not to listen to it if you are worried about spoilers, because uh we don't worry about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Good. I'll 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 wait on that. Uh. Then. But uh, anyway. So. Uh. I guess we can move on to our favorite podcast thumbnails of 2019. Which. Uh. You know. I wasn't sure. Uh. How consistent you would be with the thumbnails this year. And granted, I think there were a couple of weeks where either we just didn't have the time, or I just kind of like threw up something together as a placeholder that definitely don't look nearly as good as your photoshops anyway. But like. I, I thought a lot of the ones you drew this year were really good. It was actually really hard for me to pick my favorite. Yeah, I wish I had been able to draw them for more episodes this year. But I was very happy with the ones that I did draw. And I was pretty happy that they were so well received. I think my favorite is the state of manga piracy. Because a lot of the other ones... I'm drawing other people's characters from a manga series, or I'm drawing something that is referencing something. And this one, it was kind of like a completely original idea in terms of the illustration and the character design choices. And I really just like the entire composition of the image and how it turned out. I think it's cute and very enjoyable. Oh yeah, I, I know a lot of people really respond to that image. It's it's a very cute one. Though the one criticism I have of it is that I feel like we forgot Buggy. <laughs> I did forget Buggy. That's what I realized after Megan that I am very uh sad about. Like I remember in my roughs he was there, but I guess when it came time to inking I forgot about him. But yeah, I, I do apologize to Buggy for that. I will have to make up for that at some point uh, whenever you have him on the show again to, you know, draw a really good thumbnail for whenever we have him on again and uh for that episode. I'm sure you can make it up to him by drawing him like a like a like a uh, a picture of Mafuyu or something. That too, maybe I'll <laughs> draw that for him and send it over sometime but yeah no i i i do like that one too um i just i i love it whenever you draw thumbnails with maxi in them because he always looks like deranged and crazy (laughs) (laughs) yeah like in the episode 101 he's like holding up like a sword and he's like really giving a big scowl uh, like bet- between that and his pretzelite self, um, I don't know which one is better. Probably the pretzelite one, actually. But uh, man, yeah, the, I-, I love it when you draw Maxi. Those, those are always those are always pretty funny um, because he's totally not like that at all. <laughs> yeah, I think in terms of mine, I I actually had a tough time. Uh, I actually, I'm sure you do prefer like drawing your own style most of the time, probably. Um, but I don't know. Like I, I really. Uh, the ones I find interesting are the ones where you like really try your best to try to copy a style 
because I, I, I think you usually do a pretty good job of that kind of thing. Like, uh, oh, thank you. And, and they might be tied. Um, but I had a really hard time uh, between choosing the Golden Kamui one that you drew pretty recently. Um, I just, I just love the way you capture yourself as a, as a Shiraishi. That face in particular is, is like, it's definitely a face he would make in, in Golden Kamui. Or I'm sure that he probably has, and I just don't remember. Um, and then if I, like, my second choice was, uh, was the one you drew, uh, uh Stefan in the style of Jujutsu Kaisen, which I, I thought was really good. And I know he appreciated it as well. Oh, yeah. I was very happy that he was pleased with that one. And yeah, I, those were really, both of those were really fun to draw. I do really like the expressions in the Golden Kamui one. Those were really, really fun to emulate. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, I don't know if we've mentioned this on the podcast at all. We we may have probably mentioned this, but uh, there was a point where you did draw, you did draw a thumbnail for... Um, for when we the did Heart Gear and Spy Family episode, yeah, that's one I wanted to bring up because that got noticed by the editor of both those series, and he retweeted it and said that this is like the first fan art of the series, and I truly feel that now uh, this is becoming international, and that made him happy, and I was very happy to make him happy. That was really cool to get the attention of the editor of those series, and. uh have them like the art. Oh yeah, that that was really cool to have them like shout us out like that on Twitter. Uh, I thought that was pretty cool. But uh, yeah, I think that's about it. Unless there were there were any ones that you wanted to shout out before we move on. I also really liked the one uh, I drew for the episode we had Aiden on. That oh yeah, that one's really good too. A volume of Twentieth Century Boys, but I just really like how the illustration came out, and that's when I had uh, printed on a T shirt. Because I enjoyed it a lot. I saw that, and I and I got kind of jealous because it's like, man, I kind of I wish I had a Manga Mavericks T-shirt. Um, maybe maybe I'll have to maybe I'll have to work on that or something. But uh, also, I, I it's not from this year, but I really love how you have that. Uh, I really love how you have the thumbnail from that episode where uh, where we covered the Promise Neverland uh, uh, character popularity poll. Yeah, also got that one on the T-shirt. That's also pretty funny. Yeah, so that was pretty good. But, uh, all right, I think we can move on to our next category, and that is uh, favorite title we read for the podcast in 2019. And, uh, yeah, so I guess I guess I can go first for this one. So uh, I, I have a couple of choices uh, that I kind of have ranked here. It was really hard to choose one. But when I really think on the past year, and I think about all the stuff we read for the show, man, I don't know, like, and it's, it's really hard for me, too, because, like, we still have two podcasts that we recorded at the end of 2019 that won't be released <laughs> until later that I really, really want to count because we recorded it, but I won't. And you'll, you'll see which ones those are hopefully within the next month. But uh, yeah, but as far as like what we released last year, um, I would have to say that in terms of like a full series, Golden Conway was probably my favorite thing to read last year. It's It's just such a solid story, like all the way through. Like I... Like, it, it's very rare that, like, I read something and that, like, I, I don't have, like, any problems with it whatsoever. Um, again, like, whatever problems I have with Golden Kami were, like, probably very small nitpicks that, like, I probably don't even remember having at this point because it's, like, I'm too busy thinking about all the stuff that I love about Golden Kami. Like, it's just such a, like, and again, I hate to pull up the Gintama comparison again, but it's very much like Gintama where it's, like, 
it's such a combination of a lot of different things to make up this really great story. Like, you know, Golden Kamui, it's it's a combination action adventure, spaghetti western, slash cooking, slash edutainment manga about Hokkaido and the and the culture of the Ainu. Like it's just such a it's such an eclectic combination of a lot of different things that when you combine them together somehow make this really great comic and like I'm glad that we had the chance to read it and talk about it on the show. And I think I think in terms of like my second choice, it would probably have to be like my love story. I think emotionally speaking, that was the series we th- that was that was the comic we read this year that like uh, that really did the most for me emotionally, just because I loved the relationship between Takio and uh, and Rinko. And uh, e- even though we probably had, I know we had some criticisms on how certain parts of the relationship were handled and whatnot, and I think those are all valid. But like, I just, I just love seeing them together, and I love being able to uh, see Takio grow and mature as a person and whatnot. Uh, his character arc was definitely the one I was the most invested in. But uh, yeah, no, but both of those are definitely like my favorites out of everything we covered last year. Uh, but uh, how about you? I'm definitely in agreement with Golden Conway. That was a pleasure to read because it was a mishmash of some really cool different genres in terms of being like a historical action epic, but also a cooking manga and oftentimes a bara manga. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Really crossed into a lot of different genres there. And I quite enjoyed it. I kind of really loved all the crazy places it went to it. I like learning about the Ainu culture and uh, their cooking. And I liked kind of how it played with historical figures in really fun, crazy ways. I love their reimaginings. So Golden Kami was a delight to read, and I just really loved my time with it. But beyond Golden Kami, I also really, really love Beastars. Beastars explores a lot of intersectional themes of race and uh, gender class. And it's just a superbly drawn manga with endearing characters, and it's very compelling to read. And I just read the third volume recently, which introduced a lot of the stuff that the Manga Mac crew were kind of biting their tongue, but still hyping <laughs> up to us on our discussion. Yeah. And I love just every part of it. It's like I love the world building in the series. I love the world that part of gets created in terms of kind of reconciling how these different anthropomorphic animals would live together in a society and some of the dark undercurrents in that society. It's really fascinating, and I am so super excited to continue reading it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Beastars, I really wanted to nominate, but again, like I said, I it, it, in terms of, like, f- full series, like, you know, Golden Kami and My Love Story, I think I had, I, I was definitely more engaged in, though Beastars, Beastars was something that, like, when we read for the show, I was like, God damn, I need more of this. <laughs> but no, yeah, was there anything else you wanted to mention, or is that about it? Well, in terms of other complete series, Banana Fish was on my bucket list for years, and it was really great to uh, finally read it and kind of explore what makes it so special. And, uh, you know, I am a history nut, and I like the setting. I like how it was very much a part of its time and kind of exploring, like, kind of these cold war themes and kind of references to like actual real life political events interspersed in banana fish i thought that added a lot of flavor to the story but ultimately at the core i also just really liked the banana fish was kind of a story about 
like overcoming trauma and abuse through love, which I thought was very powerful. And I thought the Ashley relationship was very compelling. And even though the manga ends in tragedy, I think there is still a lot of catharsis along the journey alongside all the pain, of course. And it was a great discussion we had with Marion about it too. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, I definitely enjoyed banana fish, but just me personally, the other series I mentioned, I just, I just happened to love so much more. Um, and that's not a knock against Banana Fish because Banana Fish is also very good. But uh, yeah, I think we can just move on from that to our next topic or to our next category. And that is our favorite guest slash interviews of 2019. And boy, did we have a lot of them this year. Uh, just we had so many different people on that like it's, it was really hard for me to choose. But like I would have to say that like uh, it, it was really hard for me to choose one. But I think like out of all the guests that like I was on to talk to or out of the, all the podcasts I ended up listening to later that I couldn't be a part of for whatever reason, it's it, for me, it's a toss up between Jason Thompson and Stefan Koza. Like, I think I talked about here how like, you know, when we were getting ready to talk with Jason about show to jump and everything and have him on the show, like. I think up until then, I didn't really think anything of it. I was just like, oh, well, you know, we're having another guest. It's an, it's another podcast or, or whatnot. Um, I don't think it really hit me until like maybe like the night before where I was like, oh, my God, we're talking to the guy, one of the major people responsible for bringing Shonen Jump over to the West. Uh, this guy is literally responsible for a lot of my formative teenage years in manga. It almost got kind of stressful because it's like, oh, man, I... Uh, like it was, it was one of those things where it's like, oh man, I hope I don't fuck up or say something stupid. But J- Jason was a really, really nice guy, like so nice that he was that he was uh, willing to come back on the show again and, and cover Yu Gi Oh with us, and assumedly wants to cover more stuff with us in the near future. You know, depending on what we decide to cover, like he he was he was so gung ho about coming back on, I wasn't really expecting that. Um, but yeah, no, Jason's a really great guy, and I thought we got a really, a, a lot of really good insight into what it was like starting up Shonen Jump, uh, at Viz in the early aughts and late 90s and whatnot, and just hearing him talk about what it was like working with Viz back then, and a lot of the technology that they had at their disposal, you know, uh, hand lettering and, you know, all those comics that they had to do, like, I don't, I don't envy them at all. But yeah, and, and just in general, Jason's just a really fun guy to talk to, and I can't wait to have him back on again at some point. Absolutely. Jason Thompson was very formative to me uh, when I was really getting into manga, both on his work on various manga that itself, but also his column on A&N, House of a Thousand Manga, was something that I absolutely loved reading and really broadened my horizons and uh, taught me about all sorts of different manga that was out there. So it was really an honor to have Jason on the show and be able to talk uh, about the early days of the industry with him and how Shonen Jump was brought over to America and has become the powerful force it is now. It was really, really awesome. Mm -hmm. And then uh, just to talk about Stefan a little bit, you know, uh, Stefan was somebody that, like, I think I, I think I was following on Twitter, but wasn't really paying attention to because, like, I, I haven't read Jujutsu Kaisen, so like, you know, a lot of the stuff he was actually tweeting about when it came to Jujutsu Kaisen, I wasn't super interested in at the time. But, uh, you know, actually getting to talk to him was a really great experience because it's like, 
you know, he's he's like us. He's he's just a big he's just, he's a big nerd. Uh, he's a big <laughs> manga head, and I, I I love those moments where like where, where like he would he would bring up a particular manga, and like you know, and we would like react to it. And he'd be like, oh, I'm like I, I, look, I, I should know who I'm talking to here. Like I thought those moments were really funny. Yeah, I mean, uh, the night before we recorded that interview, you know, I was uh, got on a call with Stefan just to check our setup and make sure everything's good to go for the next day. And we had like a really nice kind of hour long conversation just chatting about, you know, our thoughts on manga and kind of gushing over like Ranma and Yurziatsu, which he watched like as a kid. So it was really fun. So yeah, it was nice to talk to talk to somebody who was who's just a big old fan like us, and he it, it made him feel it made him feel more approachable and whatnot. You know that, and and not to say like none of our guests have been that way, but you know it it didn't always feel like oh we're talking to a industry professional and whatnot. Like it it felt a little more laid back, I think, compared to other interviews we might have had where. It's like, well, well, we're take we're talking to Jason Thompson. He's kind of a, uh, he's kind of a legend, like and whatnot. Um, there, there, there wasn't. I, I didn't feel any like weird pressure or whatever put on by myself talking to him, and I thought that was nice. Yeah, Stefan was awesome, and I'm really excited to talk to him uh, pretty soon about another manga. Yeah, we'll talk about that at the end of the show. But uh... I really loved all the interviews we recorded this year, and I'm very. Happy that we interviewed quite a variety of different people from different backgrounds and experiences. We interviewed translators and editors, historians, and artists, and that was really, really awesome. Yeah, that's right. We had a uh, we had our first comic creator with Joey Weiser on, and uh, again, you'll you'll get to hear him again on the show soon during our uh, for our Dragon Ball podcast. That was a that was a big deal as well. Like I, I loved having Joey on. And just having him talk about his uh, comics and actually get it, like actually talking to somebody who I've read their comics for, that was a that was an experience. I hope we can have another comic artist on at some point. That was really cool. I love talking to Joey about his process and his philosophy creating art, and that was a lot, a lot of fun. But I believe I mentioned it on our 100 episode retrospective that my favorite interviews were the David Butters and Erica Friedman interviews because those were. Our longest interviews and also our densest in terms of the conversations we had and like the topics we went over. And I personally spent a lot of time prepping for them and doing a lot of research. And I was very happy with how the conversations turned out. And I think that, you know, we covered a lot of ground and explored a lot of really cool background on both the guests themselves, but also, you know, topics and that they're they're very passionate about, and uh, that was really awesome. And I'm also very happy with our interview with Dr. Mari Morimoto because I think that was really nice to do because that was we were Dr. Morimoto hasn't really given a whole lot of interviews in the past, so it was really nice to kind of chat with her and you know kind of really talk about some stuff that about her background and also, you know, about her experiences translating manga that I hadn't really been out there before, which is really fun to kind of learn about from for the first time. And also that was a really, really fun conversation. And it was a pleasure to have Dr. Morimoto on again for St. Sia and later to meet her during Anime NYC. So that was really cool. 
we gotta remember to have her on whenever whenever we cover something like Cage of Eden. I, I definitely want to put that on our list. Mm-hmm. And definitely both Erica and Mari. I'd love to have them on whenever we talk about Rose of Versailles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel bad. I couldn't. I couldn't be there for the Erica interview. I think I was there for a little bit, but I, I had something come up, so I, I couldn't really join for the whole thing. But no, I'm, I'm glad you got to talk to Erica. It sounded like a really good conversation. So. Oh yeah. David Brothers, you know, the, the, he was a really cool guy to have on as well, just talking about his, uh, you know, what he loves about just comics in general and, you know, what makes certain comics work and whatnot. And, you know, j- just really discussing the in and outs of just how comics work. And I thought that was really interesting. So uh, mm-hmm. hopefully we can have him on soon, maybe, possibly. I don't, we'll have to see. Oh, yeah, I definitely love to talk to David again about a whole variety of uh, manga that he's passionate about. Like, I love his philosophy on comics, and he's always a pleasure to hear talk about comics. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, it, it was one of the few times where we, we, we went on for such a long time that, like, I didn't, re- I didn't really feel that restless at all. I was just kind of <laughs> like, oh, I'm just kind of into the conversation, you know, and, uh, and, and yeah, it's just, it's just nice. Um. But uh, I think we should move on to our favorite podcast episode of 2019. And uh, this was definitely hard for me. Well, actually, I should rephrase that. It was hard to pick something other than my actual favorite. Um, Because I have to be honest, I do think my favorite episode out of anything we've done in 2019 was our episode where we had Aiden on to talk about uh, the Urasawa exhibit. Like, I re-listened to that recently, and I'm just like, wow, I just... I, I love hearing Aiden talk about this stuff because it's like it's it, it's 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 just so cool that we got somebody to come on to talk about you know a manga related event like this something that I know I would never be able to visit myself because of time or money or both and uh, I really wish we could have gotten someone to talk about the about the British Manga Museum exhibit that happened a couple months back at this point kind of a shame we didn't get anybody on to talk about that because I would have loved to hear people go and nauseam about that but. Yeah, no, it was just so cool to have Aiden talk about all the Urasawa-related uh, stuff and have him talk about, you know, the panel with Urasawa and how he started singing with the crowd. And it was it was really it was really magical just hearing him talk about that kind of stuff. Yeah, I hope to do more episodes like that in the future. That was really fun, just talking to someone about attending, like, these once-in-a-lifetime kind of events. Mm-hmm. I think as far as like any honorable mentions go, I, I think our my love story conversation with uh, with Ashley from uh, Shoujo and Tell was pro- was pretty fun, uh, especially with the addition of the mini manga fight that we had. That was pretty fun. In, in general, I also love it when we when I get to do episodes with Bomber just kind of talking about the news, you know, whenever Lam is out for whatever reason. Um, especially the news episode where we ended up talking about a lot of BL, uh, <laughs> a, a lot just happened to come out that past summer. So that was kind of hard to get away from, but, uh, yeah, we just, uh, it's always fun talking to Bomber about news. And then I think that episode, we, I, I, I transitioned from that into, uh, you, you like us and Maxi talking about Hina change and dear Sachan. I love it when I get the. I love it when we record like a bunch of different conversations, and I get to like just kind of combine them all together. Because uh, that ended up being a really long podcast too. Uh, I think like almost four hours. It was pretty long, surprisingly. Uh, 
and and that and that's where I got to exhibit my podcasting powers. Uh, <laughs> where I get to send all you guys to different dimensions. It was it was pretty fun. What did it cost, Colton? Uh, uh, a lot of time editing. That's what it cost. Um, <laughs> and uh, I guess one other one I want to mention is uh, I really I, I really just enjoyed our episode 100 retrospective where we just got to talk about the podcast and stuff for hours and hours on end. Again, it, that meant to be like the last 40 minutes of our actual episode 100, but Again, with the Manga Mavericks curse, we talked for way for way longer than we wanted to, but it was still pretty fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what about you, Lum? This is hard because we had a lot of amazing episodes this year. I felt, you know, that I remember fondly, and I thought, man, what an experience! I mean, to have on Jason Thompson and Shane and Garrity, who are both very formative influences to me getting into manga, those that was really special to me to talk to them about. Uh, some of their favorite manga, some of their history and experiences. So, I mean, I love the Jason Thompson interview and the Saint Seiya episode because of that. And, you know, so many of the interviews in general, I just absolutely love. In terms of just the depth of the review, if we were talking about like a review episode, I would say... Shaman King was actually my favorite in terms of like really covering in full like all the themes of that series and dissecting the characters in detail. I thought that conversation me, we Lord and Maxi had about that was very satisfying. Technically, that's a carryover from 2018, but it was released in 2019. And I really enjoyed that a lot. But it is very hard to choose like just one favorite because there are a lot of different types of episodes this year and a lot of amazing experiences i guess what are your favorite types of episodes then i i know i know you mentioned interviews yeah. definitely but actually uh I, I just realized you know beyond i guess the main show i, I did mention before but gable conspiracy is the podcast i will listen to uh, I definitely really enjoy that. And then I really loved talking with AC and recording that first episode of Lum Squad. And we recorded a second episode that uh, there is a couple months overdue that one of these days I will find release and then me and AC will continue Lum Squad. But that was also a really, really fun podcast to do. I mean, I love yours, the Astra. We will talk about it among the merits proper this year. But yeah, I mean... Just to go over the first volume, go over you know our fondness for the manga, and then dissect Dataro's character a little bit was really nice. Um, but I guess we can move on to our last podcast topic, and that is our favorite podcast moments of 2019. And uh, I, I, I think in terms of like, um, I, I guess I should say when I say podcast moments, it, you know, they don't have to be moments like you know, on the show, but they could also just be milestones for our podcast in general. Like I think I think the I think the biggest moment for our podcast this year is when we finally launched our Patreon. Yeah. That was a pretty big step for us. And thanks to the Patreon, we are now able to basically pay our hosting fees and for a lot of the cost associated with the show, which is really nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're I think we're doing good enough to, uh, at least for as, as far as like our first year goes, uh, we've been doing, we, we've been doing a lot of experimenting with like bonus podcasts and stuff, which, uh, I, I really hope people enjoy those, uh, those book club read throughs because I really want to do more of those. 
uh, in the future for sure. Um, maybe sprinkle in some, uh, uh, some, some one-off bonus podcasts, you know, in between maybe, I don't know. Well, we're kind of figuring that out. But I guess besides that, like, uh, I still remember when, uh, when I tweeted about Gintama finally ending and that became our most viral tweet. Oh yeah. And we gained like a hundred followers from that tweet. Oh, it, that was insane. Um, I haven't checked it recently, but I'm pretty sure at the time of this recording, that tweet in particular is definitely over like 4,000 retweets. Yeah, every now and again, I still see it getting like some retweets. Yeah, I mean, every once in a while, yeah, I, I'll still see it come up. And I mean, like, man, like that, that it was so weird because like the, the day I tweeted that it didn't get like a lot, a lot of traction, but like, you know, it, it got like, it got like likes and retweets uh, like every once in a while throughout the day. And then like, I went to bed for I don't know, like at least seven or eight hours. And then when I woke up in the morning, we were, we were, I think we were at like 500, 700 retweets. Um, and then it just through, throughout the next day, it just, it just didn't stop. Like every, every couple of seconds, I would get like at least like 10 or 15 different retweets. It was, it was insane. I, and I think it also has to do with the hashtag I use because I use the, I use a, spe- a specific like official hashtag that I guess they, the Shueisha set up to send to Sirachi in particular. Um, so that probably helped. Um, I know Doc was a little jealous because uh, I, I think he made a joke on on an episode of Justin Gintama podcast where he was like, "Man, I should have given you uh, access to our Justin Gintama podcast account." <laughs> oh man, we could have. Could have could have used it for that account, but I'm I'm glad it really helped. Uh, it, like it's like you said, we gained a hundred followers from that tweet alone. It was it was insane. Um, okay, so I found it. I'm looking at it right now. So at the time of this recording, uh, that tweet is sitting at uh 2,500 retweets, uh, and just almost 4,200 likes. So yeah, that got a lot of attention. Uh, I think one other moment for our podcast, and I don't know if maybe you were going to mention this, but like, I think the moment we released our piracy episode is was a big one because uh, uh, Miss Emma Hashimoto, who uh, I believe is one of the editors at uh, at Futakia, uh, I know she's a big proponent of like anti piracy and whatnot, especially for uh, BL manga. And uh, I know she she was really she was really signaling that episode of the podcast in particular, and even like sent us an email asking us for more of our thoughts on the subject. Uh, I, I think the piracy episode was probably the episode of the podcast where like our podcast got like the most attention. I saw a lot of people retweeting it and like talking about it, and uh, Emma started up a whole bunch of discussion points and polls on Twitter because of it, and it was a pretty big deal. Indeed. You know, that might be my favorite episode just because not only was the quality of our conversation really great, but it spurred discussion beyond us, which I thought was really amazing. Mm-hmm. I'm see, I, I feel I feel weird because it's like I really love that episode of the podcast and I think we I think we did as good of a job as we could have with a with a topic as broad as piracy, especially manga piracy. Because it, it was something we've been wanting to do for, like, at least a year, but it, originally it just didn't work out. And we just kind of decided, well, episode 100 is coming up, we might as well save it for then. And, uh, you know, like, looking back on that conversation, I think it's a good conversation 
but it's also one of those things where it's like I like I I've gotten we I feel like we've gotten like at least one or two comments from people who are like, well, why didn't you talk about this? Or uh, you could you could tackle it from this side. And I'm just like, look, we did as best as we could. <laughs> like there's there's so much we could have talked about on that episode, but we only had like so much time. Like it's one of those topics that like we could easily revisit with different points. And, you know, there's a good chance that we're not just going to that like i'm i'm hoping if we do revisit that topic uh that you know i i hopefully there's a good chance we won't just like regurgitate a lot of what we talked about uh originally like i'm sure more stuff will happen and there there'll be another point of contention like there is like at least every other month um with piracy and whatnot just it was just a combination of like the manga rock stuff, the one uh, one piece trending for three weeks in a row because of scans, and just a lot of that stuff where we were just kind of like, okay, now's probably a good time to talk about this. But yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I think that's what's keeping me from like from saying like, oh yeah, this is my favorite episode because like we could talk about as much as we can and want, but like it'll never feel like a complete discussion almost. I, that might be a weird, a weird qualifier for my fate for like what I consider like my favorite episodes, but I don't know. It's just, it's just something I constantly think about with that episode. I think there is always something more to say pretty much with every topic series that we've covered. The piracy discussion is uh, no stranger in that respect. And I think it was very thorough and there are still things to address beyond that. But the good thing about that episode is that it kind of led us to recognize oh here are some other areas we did not consider thanks to the conversation that resulted from that on social media and people sharing their thoughts and that's great and i think that will lead to another follow-up discussion on the subject where we can talk about those issues and go into those more deeply and then the conversation continues to grow and evolve so i think this was like a great kind of first step in a sense and i think i'm really interested in pursuing uh follow-ups oh yeah for sure um i can't promise when but that is something we definitely want to revisit at some point but yeah no like i, I can't believe we didn't mention our manga piracy during our favorite episodes uh, just because it, it I mean, it, it might not be like a favorite episode, but like, I think it's definitely like one of our most important episodes from the past year, for sure. But I guess, uh, were there any moments that uh, you wanted to mention, Lum? Mostly there were amusing moments from the show itself that I suppose I would like to mention, because we did mention some out of the podcast moments that I thought was very special. You know, in terms of people reaching out to us and, like, really enjoying, like, our podcast or thumbnails. But within the podcasts themselves, some of my favorite moments included when I spontaneously introduced V-Lord on the 100th episode, part 2 episode. Because you guys did not know V-Lord was going to be on beforehand. And I just uh, had introduced him out of the loop, which is very funny. I will say that is those are probably some of my favorite moments uh, on the podcast is when you introduce V-Lord and then immediately kick him out. Yeah, I mean, that time we did not kick him out, but indeed, the get out of here V-Lord bit is a great runner that I really enjoy whenever it happens. Uh, I also really enjoyed on our Manga Plus episode where I argued with Maxi about whether Octage was the Bojack Horseman to... 
I don't remember what was the thing. Oh, High School Musical. I compared like curtains up to. Yeah. So, yeah. I thought it was a weird comparison. I I thought that was like a funny little argument we had there. And the final moment I'll mention is that I really thought it was funny when Buggy asked me on the We Never Learn Q&A pod if my best girl was Seki Joe, and I replied, no shit! <laughs> and, like, I thought that was a really funny delivery, and, uh, yeah, another funny moment. Um, and t- in terms of funnier moments, I think uh, I think on the podcast, one of my favorite like little bits of conversation was when uh, when we were on the uh, My Love Story episode with Ashley, and uh, we were talking about how dumb it is that you know how how nowadays like the whole 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 trope in romance stories where it's like I'm gonna chase you to the airport or whatever and stop you, <laughs> which just really shouldn't work nowadays because of. Because of stuff like nine eleven and everything and security. And- yeah, you can't get that security. It's like total fantasy to get, actually get to the terminal. Yeah, and 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 how we want to see that challenged in in more media, and I think that would be amazing if it was. But I, I've not seen anything like that yet. <laughs> it should happen though. I'm I'm waiting for the I'm waiting for that moment to be parodied and pointed out. No, actually, in reality, you can't actually do this. I feel like I feel like that is something that has ha- have to have happened at some point, but whatever. Um, I think that's about it for all the podcast type stuff. I mean, like we said, overall, this was a really good year for the podcast in terms of guests, episodes, uh, you know, all the stuff we managed to do and uh, and and whatnot, and just yeah, I'm really looking forward to this next year. I I, I think if there's like one thing, like one tiny thing that I and not not really regret, but I do feel kind of bad that like we we couldn't get to all of our fan requests this year. But that's kind of, that that that's kind of what this year is going to be at least for the most part. Yeah, this year I think our goal is just to make sure that we fulfill all those requests made last year and finish those off, and then going forward next year we will be a little more careful in terms of how many requests we take on kind of plan more accordingly but yes basically everything that was voted on last year's survey that people want to see us cover that we didn't get to last year we will hopefully get to this year yeah that's the plan anyway but uh yeah no i guess uh i guess we can move on to our manga categories uh this will be fun yeah. Uh, and so we're gonna start off with our favorite manga news stories of 2019 and uh, Lam, I'll let you go first because I'm kind of interested in what you'll pick. I've got a few. So these aren't necessarily all my favorite in the sense that I like all these things that happen. These are favorite slash most important stories of last year that I think are very relevant and pertinent to the, the conversation. But the first thing I'll mention is not really one of those things. It's just something that I really enjoyed, and that was NHK's Rimuko Takashi Mega Poll. That was just a lot of fun to see people vote on and then see the results of. I had a blast watching the NHK special live and kind of watching the countdown as it was going on, seeing what series ranked where and then what characters ranked where on the character popularity list. And I made a lot of treads on that on Twitter that people also really enjoyed. Uh, me reporting on what happened in the specials. So 
yeah, that was a lot of fun. And as a big Rungo Takahashi fan, it was, it was really nice to just kind of celebrate all it works and have that big celebration just be done by NHK on that scale. Uh, at nine, uh, I have the conversation around Shueisha's statements about the lack of female jump editors. I thought that was a story that was very frustrating, you know, but it, I do think that, you know, pe- the conversation that resulted from those statements uh, by those editors about, like, how do we address or how, how do we encourage change? Uh, I think those were good conversations to have. So even though it's unpleasant news and there's no sign yet that Shueisha will rectify or realize that their policies are wrong, I think just the awareness of this and the backlash towards it could be a good spark for change because there were mangaka themselves who were you know work for shueisha work on jump plus series who were very upset about this idea that women don't understand the heart of boys that's why there's no female jump editors so i think the fact that it did upset a lot of people and then got backlash will maybe hopefully encourage change at 8, uh, I have Iridori Comics launches their non-erotic Gujinchi label, Iridori Aqua. Um, I do think that it's really cool that uh, there is now like a licensor who is bringing over more Gujinchi independent comics. And I think that is, you know, just great for both the artists themselves to get their work out there, but also, you know, just for the availability of more different kinds of comics that normally wouldn't be published through traditional licensors. Which I think is really cool. At 7, I have Kodansha launches the complete works of the Katsuhiro Otomo project, which is their plan to basically make all of Otomo's manga anime available in English. Uh, so I'm really keen to see that ambitious effort come to fruition and have all of his uh, works be available over here. At 6, I have Wiz launches the Wiz Originals imprint and holds for four years at console year. I think that there's a really interesting, cool new thing going into the new decade. It's like kind of just the influence manga has had internationally on so many artists, creators. Now they want to start kind of making their own comics that are very manga inspired. And that's what like Viz's original implant is all about. And I'm really curious to see all the manga or com- manga inspired comics they'll publish through that. And... You know, I definitely think there is a lot of, you know, of demand and interest in OEL manga type series. Because recently I saw news that, like, this new independent comic, uh, Akai, uh, which is very manga inspired, it kind of has topped the charts of, like, uh, Amazon's digital sales list, like, beating out, like, established manga series like My Hero Academia. And I thought that was pretty cool. See, the first, like, that have so much buzz and uh, do so well right off the bat. So I'm very curious to see what the future has in store for OEL among inspired comics and the Viz original line in particular. Oh, yeah. At number five, I have um, the whole manga rock, manga stream, Japanese box discontinue operations, kind of just the whole in general, a lot of scam groups deciding to uh, discontinue themselves, or at least give the lip service of discontinuing. I mean, the manga stream Gemini's box thing is like more definite. Like they are definitely gone, and we've seen the results based on like the surge in traffic on Manga Plus. 
And I think it's a great victory for the anti-piracy efforts to have like some of the bigger distributors of Shonen Jump scanlations uh, discontinue. So that was a huge, huge thing. And then related to that, you know, I think kind of what has led to this and what has, you know, really uh, helped this downfall is Manga Plus launching worldwide. I think that Manga Plus making Shonen Jump simulpubs available in practically every country worldwide has been a huge boon to the anti-scanlation, uh, anti-piracy effort. And it's just a great service uh, to offer, you know, English translated manga officially, legally to different people around the globe. And number three, I have the whole series of stories about Japanese lawmakers discussing how to revise the copyright law, you know, to take down and target pirated materials and the conversation we were worried about of whether they'll go so far as to criminalize taking screenshots and ultimately then backing away after, you know, backlash and criticism from mangaka and other artists in the industry. So I thought that this is a very important story to keep track of. It's going to have uh, interesting ramifications, I think, once it's passed. So, going to be very curious to see, like, uh, how this might help the anti-piracy efforts. And number two, I have Kazuo Koike and Monkey Punch passing away. You know, those are established uh, manga creators. They were very influential, very important. Uh, I love their works, and it was very heartbreaking to see both of them pass away within a week of each other. And I think their losses is definitely one of the most uh, important stories uh, this year, like loss of these two great creators. And Hideo Azuma too also passed away this year, and I and another very important influential creator. And it's definitely very sad to to lose creators of such influential important series. Uh, and then of course number one on the subject of you know. Uh, kind of downer stories, tragic stories, is uh, the Kyoto Animation Arts and Tragedy. That's not explicitly a manga story, but it is an industry story that is very important. Like, over 35 people lost their lives, several more were injured, the entire first studio building burned down. Uh, it still has lasting ramifications and, uh, you know, after effects that uh, people are still grappling with. I do think, though, that the one silver lining of this story is just all the fan support internationally for Kyoto Animation, the fundraisers set up by Sentai and many others to be sent to the families of the victims to help them heal. I think in the wake of the tragedy, it did show that the community is very loving and supportive. And I think that is very valuable to take note of, even though it was such a heartbreaking story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of stuff happened this year, uh, both good and bad. Um, I'll keep mine short because you basically already mentioned Manga Plus, which I nominated as uh, my either favorite or most important uh, manga news story of 2019. Because, you know, especially since like we were already kind of coming off the high of like having access to, sh- to the Shonen Jump app. And so, like, Manga Plus just really felt like it just kind of came out of nowhere. <laughs> like, l- literally, like, a month or two later, it's like, oh, yeah, Shueisha's just offering manga for free in English now. Oh, oh, and here's the rest of the Jump lineup that's not available from Viz. Like, oh, okay, now we suddenly have all of Shonen Jump available in English. Yeah, I think the one weird thing about that is the fact that 
Viz refuses to acknowledge Manga Plus. Yeah, that is really weird. I'm not sure what's up with that. Yeah, I think that there might be some bad blood, some bitterness over that. But uh, again, it's an amazing service for international fans. It could it could be just because they want people to pay for their service, probably. Yeah, I think it did kind of steal some of their thunder for Manga Plus to launch one month later and offer like kind of the same thing. I mean, look, in terms of like international readers, I think this is a very important first step. Yeah. Like, I was really tempted to make a joke about all the people who complained about, you know, Manga Stream and Jamini's Box being shut down or whatever, because unfortunately, a lot of discourse has happened, especially like in like One Piece fandom because of all that stuff, you know, people switching from scans to the official. And that's a whole other thing. And I won't spend too much time on it. But it's just like, you know, like, it's important that we have something like Manga Plus. And then, like, like I, I get it's not perfect, and, you know, I, I'm sure we still have our criticisms of the service and whatnot, but, like, you know, like, I think the important thing is that, like, I'm sure they're, like, I'm sure the service will only get better. Like, the more people use it, the more that's going to incentivize them to, to work on the service. And I think it's important that it, that it, that it, that it, that it, it, that it exists that took me four times to say um but no yeah like we we need something like manga plus so um and that's and that's why basically it was my my most important to me the most important news story from last year uh that and gintama finally ending <laughs> yeah that's pretty big Oh man, it finally ended for real. I promise. You could go you could go look it up. The, the 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 final chapter of the manga is out there. Unfortunately, we're going to have to wait an entire year for the anime to probably end or not. I don't know at this point. So, that's going to be fun to wait for, but the important thing is that it finally finally ended for real. But yeah, as I just uh figured that was probably another very important news story at least to me anyway. Um but yeah, man, no, a lot of lot of big industry stuff happened this year that uh, I'm glad you went over because like I I didn't have any of it listed, so I'm 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 glad you I'm glad you at least listed a lot of those off. But um, I think uh, I think we should move on to our favorite new North American manga licenses of 2019, and uh, I'll go ahead and start us off. And um, honestly, like I'm I'm glad that's. <laughs> Even though it means, you know, we spend like 20 to 30 minutes talking about it on the podcast. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm still glad that like more manga is being licensed from all these different publishers. And I think that's important. But uh, I mean, as far as like licenses that like I'm looking forward to, there's I got to be honest, there's not like a lot that I'm like, like, like a, there's a lot that like if I happen to see it and I find it interesting, I, I like I'll flip through it or something. But like. There aren't a lot of licenses that, like, I have seen that I usually see where I'm like, yes, yes, I need this in my life, you know? Like, there are very few licenses that, like, I actually, like, actively, actively look forward to. But, uh, so here, wait, so did, did was Heavenly Delusion announced in 2019? Was the license for that um, announced last year? Yes. Okay, so that's definitely one of them. Uh, just because I had seen, um, cause I think they did like an, like an animated commercial for it and it looked really interesting and it piqued my interest. And just from what I've heard about it in general, it just sounds really interesting. And it sounds like the kind of thing Dempa would, 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 uh, would pick up, which, uh, 
I think it's out already. Um, if it is, I need to get it, but uh, I'll have to check on that on my own time here. Uh, other than that, let's see. Uh, Sazon and the Comet Girl uh, was one that like really stood out to me because like from the cover, it looked like very retro. I love the colors. Uh, and it just looked like a really cool space adventure comedy thing. And like, just from the cover alone, like it just, it looked really interesting and I really want to read it. Um, but I think the, the license that, uh, and this might make you happy, love the one that I'm looking forward to the most, because I've heard so many good things about it and you and V Lord never shut up about it. Um, the, the license I am looking forward to the most is my Sonny Koku. You know, surprisingly enough, I don't think I mentioned it all that much, but indeed, Meizama Koku, uh, that is like, you know, one of my favorites is Rumiko Takahashi series, of course, and yeah, like this was very exciting. That made me very happy to see that they announced that they are going to be republishing it because, you know, uh, the old release is very much out of print, and now with these new editions, all of Ruko Takashi's major series, all of her big five long-running series, will be back in print and very readily available for everyone to read and enjoy. And then uh, beyond this, all we really need is uh, them to republish Mermaid Saga, One Punk Gospel, the Wimic World uh, one-shots, and maybe some of her other one-shots which is not published yet, but you know, I'm very happy to see them continue to republish uh, Rumiko Takahashi, and that makes me very happy. And, and then Mao. Koku definitely, yeah, Mao definitely should, uh, hopefully they will license that uh, sometime. Maybe they can announce that this year and start publishing it next year. I would definitely be very happy to, I mean, I definitely it's going to get licensed at some point, but, you know, the sooner the better. But yeah, you know, Amazing Koku is a lot of people's favorites. Uh, of Rumiko Takahashi series for very good reason. Uh, it stands out as a very mature romantic comedy, uh, very satisfying cathartic ending. So I am definitely looking forward to rereading and falling in love with the series all over again. Um, but I guess I guess besides that, what what are some new licenses that you're looking forward to? Well, I'm very happy that there continues to be a variety of great new titles that continue to be brought out. In terms of other classic manga or manga that people have long requested that have been announced to come out, and some of which have already come out, uh, Saint Young Man and Ping Pong were both announced this year. And Saint Young Man is already out, and you can buy it print and digital. And that's a title that people thought for years might never fly because of uh, the religious content in it. But it is available, and people are enjoying it, and that's really great. And Ping Pong, of course, is... The uh, very famous manga by Taiyo Matsumoto that everyone has always been really, really passionate about. And people have wanted to have the manga of that over here for a long time now. And I'm glad that Viz is finally bringing that over. I uh, continue to be really happy that there is more manga uh, focusing on LGBTQ characters and themes. So stuff like My Androgynous Boyfriend, uh, Metamorphose, you know, Ngawa, which is the manga about the young woman and elderly woman bonding over their love of BL manga. Uh, Not Your Idol, as mentioned before, is like one of the most acclaimed manga in Japan, as we uh, discussed. It's all the top list we recapped earlier, so I'm really, really excited for that. And of course, Love Me for What I Am. You know, I've seen so much buzz and praise for this series about uh, exploring a non-binary character. So I'm really, really, really excited for this one. 
like actually Unica on Twitter did a, has done many threads just showering the series of praise. So I'm super excited to like have this officially out in English. And then of course, Blue Flag, which, you know, I was able to read pretty much all of on Manga Plus before they you know, kind of took down some of the chapters uh, after we licensed it. But Blue Flag is a really, really compelling uh, drama, like focusing just on the kind of struggles of being true to your feelings and forming relationships with people and maintaining those relationships and also how the struggle of trying to share your true self in a society where really oftentimes people judge you based on misconceptions or based on their own biases uh, so there are some really great explorations of those kind of themes in the series and uh it's got really amazing characters i'm really glad that kaitu it's kind of really come up with a great hit with this series and i'm super excited that it's being worked on with people who have loved it for years because it's being worked on by uh marlene first and annalisa crispin and yeah i'm just super excited for this to come out like in print and uh, beyond that, uh, the last thing I mentioned uh, in terms of like a cool new license from Denpa is that I, you know, as I really enjoy Denpa and I, I mean, I really enjoy Gundam and I really enjoy sort of accounts of how media was created. So I, I'm really looking forward to the men who created Gundam kind of exploring like how Gundam was created by Tomino and a bunch of other collaborators. Like that sounds like a really fun story. So, yeah. I think those are my picks for what I'm really looking forward to next year. Mm-hmm. Some good picks there, for sure. Um, but I guess as far as um, licenses and releases go, we should close this part of the show out by uh, talking about our favorite new North American manga releases of 2019. And uh, uh, when we were talking about you know our favorite series to cover on the podcast this year, I I was kind of reluctant to mention it because I wanted to save one of those titles for now because uh, I really think the best new release of this year is by far Beastars, with uh, my second choice being uh, Comey Can't Communicate. I mean, look, we we could sit here and just talk about it all day, but Beastars is just, like, I knew, I knew people liked it, but I didn't really have any, like, I had no expect, expectations going in, but... Wow, like B Stars is so good. Like I need more of that. Like I need to buy Volume Three when I get the chance here because I still haven't bought it yet. But uh, it's just it's just so like the world of B Stars is so much more interesting than I ever thought it could be. It really is just like an interesting take on an animal society, kind of a la Zootopia, except very different in many ways. And uh, you know, we we also dedicated an episode to Comey. Uh, again, it was one of those episodes where we covered the first volume and Maxi and Bomber really tried their best not to, not, not to talk about too much past that. But, you know, from what I've heard about it, like, it seems like, it seems like the, the kind of skit dance-esque thing that I've been looking for, you know, just a nice comedic slice of life series with a lot of different characters that I could really grow to love. And, uh, I definitely can't wait to read more of that. Special honorable mention goes to Kaiji, which uh, was finally released near the end of the year in 2019. And uh, just as proof, uh, I have my book right here. I got my copy uh, just the other day, so uh, I could flip through it and look at Fukumoto's art all day. And 
I'm definitely going to be uh, buying the rest of uh, buying the rest of this release because I really want Kaiji to do well over here, and I hope it does. But uh, what about you, Lum? Well, I'll also have to kind of split this off into a few subcategories here. So, as far as Kaiji goes, I have the I've also had the book for a while, though I haven't uh, read through it much yet. But just in terms of packaging. I think that Kaiji and Paradise Gifts are both books where I'm very impressed with the thickness of the books. They're releases of classic manga that are very, very dense and they have really great cover design and binding. And I just think that the books are superbly well made and absolutely uh, perfect for these kind of prestige releases. I mean, Kaiji is not necessarily packaged like a prestige release, but this is like a very classic important manga. I think it has some good packaging to match that. And uh, I also will shout out The Drifting Classroom, No Longer Human, and JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, Diamonds Unbreakable for being really great hardcover editions uh, made by Viz Media with really great covers. And the JoJo's uh, Diamond is Unbreakable volumes in particular I want to praise for, you know, being kind of completely designed from the ground up on Viz's part. Like, they really put a lot of effort because there's not equivalent hardcover editions for Diamonds Unbreakable in Japan. But they did a really good job to kind of like the match the look a little bit of the Dijoniums. I mean, kind of go off in their own thing, but kind of come up with a really great cover, cover designs and packaging. And it's, the books, you know, they feel really good to hold, really good sturdy hardcovers, good paper quality. So they are really, really great on that front. Uh, but in terms of content-wise, in terms of like things that I really read this year and really enjoyed... I'll just uh, list off a few. I mentioned it before, but Satoko and Nada I really enjoyed as a friendship between two characters who come from different cultural backgrounds, you know, kind of bonding over uh, what they mutually love and learning about each other's culture. And there are a lot of really heartfelt, heartwarming moments in the relationship. And I feel like one thing that really is kind of striking to me is, uh, I mean, a lot of the manga is from Nada's perspective. Uh, from Satoko's perspective, kind of learning about Nada, but like the last chapter of the first volume is kind of recounting Nada trying her best to kind of find roommate, a roommate. To, you know, she wanted to kind of live with someone who isn't also from her cultural background, also isn't like Muslim Saudi Arabian. Like she generally wanted to, you know, meet new people and so she wanted a different kind of roommate but unfortunately like uh the people who were responding to her kind of ad you know they all had like a uncomfortable reaction to her like one person i think literally said oh this was not what i was expecting and it was really heartbreaking and uh, so when you kind of circle back to like uh, the beginning of the first chapter when Nada, you know, meets Satoko. It's like kind of, it's a nice heartwarming bent to it. It's like, you know, they are, you know, they both found like someone they could be really good friends with, not a predictor. You know, I thought that was, I think their friendship is really nice. It's just how much they care about each other. Like, there's one point where Satoko is in danger and Nada is like yelling at her because she was so worried and they're like crying. Uh, it's like really, really good friendship. Like, very, very charming, moving comic. And then uh, number nine, we have the house husband. It's just really funny. Uh, you know, it's just, it's like kind of just one joke. It's just the, oh, this Yakuza dude, he's doing domestic chores, but he's treating it like he would a Yakuza mafia type situation. But 
damn it, the comedic timing, uh, the characters themselves, they're all very charming, and the relationship between the main character and his wife is also very adorable as well. So it was a really fun read. Uh, number eight, I got A Tropical Fish Yearns for Love. It's a new Yuri title recently released that a lot of people have uh, been saying is one of their favorite Yuri titles, like, on the scene right now. And I we definitely agree, like, it's a really cool little romance story, like, with an interesting perspective of kind of, like, both characters in their own way have dealt with this idea or, or these feelings of loneliness. And then together, they're kind of finding uh, opportunities to grow in each other's company. And I, I really enjoy that angle of it. And uh, the setting of like a high school aquarium club is also very unique and it leads to some cool imagery as well. Uh, number seven, I have Secretly I'm Suffering From Being Sexless, which is a very kind of, it's a very funny, but also it gets to be a little uh, kind of emotionally raw kind of take on like this woman's struggle to kind of, you know, engage her husband in like kind of a sexually active marriage and kind of just the heartbreak of like her kind of feeling bad and almost cheating on him and them having like fights over the fact that, you know, her husband kind of has a low libido and sex drive. And then ultimately it all circles around to them just learning to communicate better and be more attentive and responsive to each other's feelings and needs and not just kind of ignore the problem. And so it ultimately ends up very sweetly as they like repair the relationship and go forward. So it's a lot of very funny moments, but ultimately it's it's a very sweet story. Uh, number six, uh, like you mentioned, Komi Can't Communicate, you know, uh, hyped up for many years is one of the best manga currently running in Sunday. I would agree, because uh, it's very funny, you know, very, Komi's very relatable in her communication disorder. Uh, she's cute, but also at times, like, it's such a struggle, it is heartbreaking, because she wants so badly to communicate her feelings, and a lot of t situations she gets in are, is like, oh, I could feel that, for sure, so... Uh, definitely not a fun to read. And then, uh, the character whose gender is uncertain, I also just really love. Like, they, they are really funny. Like, Nanami, or whatever their name is. I, I really enjoy them. Uh, five, Jujutsu Kaisen. I, the first two volumes where the chapters are now in the vault, and when I, I, reading through them, and then just keeping up with Jujutsu Kaisen in general, you know, I, really got into the series like this it has a really great aesthetic to it it has really good characters fight concept of you know in terms of a power system uh i yeah it's just really really uh engrossing to read it's like some of the best uh action supernatural stuff going on in jump right now uh, also had some interesting to nap thematic richness too uh number four blank canvas uh my so-called artist journey by Kiko Gashimura. You know, I'd read this before a long time ago, uh, through Scanlations, but you know, I'm glad this is finally coming out in English because it's a very pretty emotionally honest and also relatable if you're an artist story about Higashimura basically, you know, learning art in high school and then going off to art school and then kind of struggling for a long time until like she finally ultimately is kind of pushed to to draw to survive you know and to, to in order to you know continue make sure she has art as a career and not have to fall back on something she doesn't want to do but also it's about her relationship with her sensei and kind of like her feelings of regret in terms of like time she disappointed him and so it's also 
very poignant and touching on that respect. Like, kind of her reflecting on her sensei and just, like, kind of thinking about, like, the time she... Uh, the missed opportunity she had in life and, like, things she regrets she had done back then. She wished she'd done differently. Uh, number three, I got the Po clan by Moto Hagio. This is, like, classic from uh, Hagio that... Well, it was released this year by Fan Graphics, uh, you know, deluxe hardcover edition, uh, pristine paper quality. And the biggest standout thing about the book beyond like the you know beauty of Hagio's art is the literary quality of the basically all the words, the text in the manga. Like, like it reads like a series of poems almost like some of the, the dialogue in this book, some of the narration the songs, like, you could tell that translator, you know, Rachel Torn, loves Hagia because, like, every word felt, like, precise and poignant and purposeful, and that really drew me into it. But also, content-wise, like, this story is very much an allegory for the discrimination of, like, anyone who is different, really, but especially uh, queer people in society, demonized and uh, killed and excluded and having to hide themselves in plain sight. But, like, explicitly, several of the characters are gay and get into relationships. Like, the central relationship between Edgar and Alan, they are, like, a couple. So, it's dealing on that both quite literally in terms of relationships, but also, like, just the, the figurative metaphor of, you know, the vampire Nella. You know, they feed on the lifeblood of other people, but, you know, they are persecuted and murdered because people fear them they don't even really try to understand them so it's very hard there's a lot of heartbreak in this manga it's a, it's a pretty pretty intense uh it, f- it focuses on some dark territories and uh, some sad stuff uh but it's very compelling to read and i'm, I'm really excited for volume two and then uh, as you mentioned before my number two is b stars and i mentioned why before but like just amazing world building and themes and then of course number one you know me it's your siatra and i think the reason why should be obvious and then i will just give a quick shout out to things that were not new this year but were ongoing that i really enjoyed uh behind the scenes ended this year they published the final two volumes and i read through that all this year before biscottory came to the u.s for anime expo and i really enjoyed that I might like it more than Yoron, but I never really finished Yoron manga, so I won't say for sure. But just in general, I really got attached to the art club. I got attached to Ron Maru kind of growing confidence and really starting to, like, fight to keep this community of friends that he loves, you know, together. And, like, also encourage them to, you know, fight for their creative passions and not resign themselves to, like, kind of giving up on their ambitions. And I thought that was very moving and the ending was very satisfying. Uh, Demon Slayer, a lot of volumes came out this year, basically encompassing the uh, Spider Mountain, the train arc, and then the beginning of the Red Light District arc. And uh, it was all really good stuff. And, you know, uh, if I wasn't already into Demon Slayer before, I'm super into it now, because which each successive volume and arc, it just continues, continues to top itself. Uh, I'm really looking forward to Gap closing next year. Uh, Number three, Blue Into You, Volume 6. 
I caught up on Bloom into You this year, the English release of that. Volume 6 is, was the newest volume, and it was like a super emotional climax of them finally putting on the stage play and you basically communicating to the to Nanami that Nanami does not have to emulate and follow her in her sister's footsteps. Like, she is many different things to many people, and she can choose to just be her own person. And she doesn't have to, like, live up to the expectations of what other people want her to be. She should pursue just, like, who she wants to be herself. And it was very poignant and, uh, like, a big cathartic moment. But also then it was followed by the confusion and uh, distress because you confesses that she does indeed love Nanami. And that kind of makes Nanami run away because she was at once embarrassed that she did not pick up on the fact that she had feelings for her, but also she does not know how to respond to someone who has real feelings to her. And like the entire reason, like she wanted a fake relationship with you to begin with is because she didn't think that you really cared about her in the same way that like her family or Sayaka people, like she was afraid of disappointing them. So, you know, uh, really curious to see how the series ends going on from there. But uh, like big, big uh, climactic stuff happened in the sixth volume. Uh, number two, Twin Star Exorcist, volumes 14 through 16, like, some really big stuff happened in, uh, the volumes that was released at Twin Star Exorcist this year. Like, we had the big arc with Benio and Kongwe, like, exploring the Magano realm, and, uh, there was some really tough stuff, because Benio was, like, kind of struggling, like, kind of to traverse the realm, like, without her powers, like, kind of fending off Higari attacks and being reliant for protection from the person who murdered her parents. Uh, but also then Kamui also kind of growing feelings for Benyo and then acting on it in cruel ways and then ultimately trying to want to redeem himself and then Benyo just telling him like fuck off you don't think that I will forgive you if you die and think that will redeem you you know you just live on to fight and then just try and prove to become you can become a better person. But, like, like there was uh, some really good stuff in that, like, Benio Kami mini art. But then beyond that, when they got back to the main action of them, like, going to the depths of uh, Magado and then fighting old, like, the upper Basara, like, so many big climactic uh, sacrifices and battles. Like, they lost two of, like, the senior exorcists and, like, it was really emotional. Like, the passing the torch kind of atmosphere and just the the heartbreak tragedy of like just the intensity of the the battles like uh it was really really gripping stuff and i'm curious to see how the arc ends uh hopefully they publish their remaining volumes uh, to fill that gap between where volume 16 leads off and like where the new simul pub uh, chapter begins so because I'm, I'm really super curious to see how where the arc, the rest of the arc goes considering like all the insane stuff that kind of happened in the series uh, in the volumes we published here. And then uh, my number one for ongoing stuff was the second one of My Solo Exchange Diary, which was very heartbreaking as Kabi hospitalizes herself and kind of feels the pressure from having to put out manga and having like her life kind of out there on display and feeling like she has to live up to people's expectations of her. And uh, it was just really tough to read. It doesn't really end on too optimistic a note, but, you know, just the... It ends on the idea that Kavi is continuing to try to better himself and she kind of understands her family better and, you know, realizes that they do love her and, you know, she has some emotional stuff there where she kind of, like, realizes that. And, uh, and just you know, Kavi has another 
comic that's coming out continuing like her experiences you know being hospitalized so i'm curious to see when that gets licensed you know what happens to her next but you know it, it's solo exchange her one she was a tough read but like it was very emotionally gripping very relatable and uh, i do definitely pray for the best for Kabi and hope uh, she does find like the happiness that she is uh searching for but uh yeah that's uh some of my favorite manga that i read this year for sure all right, a lot of a lot of good choices, but uh, I think we should move on to our more manga specific stuff, and uh, we're gonna start off with our favorite manga moments of 2019. And uh, mom, I guess, uh, well, what, what were your what were some of your favorite manga moments? I'll just mention uh, in terms of like the biggest shock, in terms of a moment that was like incredibly shocking and. It completely throws you off. I don't think that anything tops the series of epilogue chapters Seven Deadly Sins had, like towards the beginning of this year. And we all thought, oh, the series is going to end soon. They beat the Demon King. You know, here are a few epilogue chapters where characters saying goodbye. There's like this big sense of closure. And then you have, like, towards the end of a chapter, you know, uh, Meliodas and Elizabeth are going to be parting ways. And Meliodas is, like, is about to leave and waves goodbye and Elizabeth's waving goodbye. And then you turn the page and Elizabeth is crushed by a giant rock. And you're like, what? What, what, what just happened? Elizabeth was crushed by a, a giant rock? It's, it's incredibly shocking because you're like, oh, the series is wrapping up, characters saying well, going different directions, but nope. And this one moment is like, is Elizabeth dead? And it turns out she's not dead, but it's like, no, the curse on Elizabeth is still in effect. The Demon King is still alive. The series is not over. Nakaba Suzuki was trolling us the entire time because the series is actually far from over. There's still more uh, where there's going to be another arc, it seems, based on where the, the year of Settling Down Sense has ended. And so to me, that was like the biggest, biggest shock because everyone thought the series was going to be over. And then in this just one moment, this one just like complete left turn. It was like, no, no, we're far from done. And uh, there were a lot of good moments from Seven Leagues Deadly Sins after that. Like, I think the most touching moment is just uh, Eskinor sacrifices himself. And ultimately, he, you know, he's he's burning away and singing farewell to his friends and saying, and, you know, uh, you know, he has his farewell to Merlin, which, you know, he has unrequited feelings for throughout the entire series. And he's literally burning away like he's on fire as, as his like body is like being disintegrated or whatever. And his last words, like, Eskinor, like, encourages Merlin, like, kind of hints that he knows Merlin's secret, which was recently revealed in recent chapters. Uh, but he doesn't judge her for it. And, you know, he will and always has loved her. And then Merlin kind of, like, you know, apologizes for not being able to return his feelings. But she leans in and she kisses him. Like, Eskinor is burning, keep in mind. So she's kissing him through, like, the flames that is burning up Eskinor. And so, like, when we see her, like, afterwards, like, her face is all scarred with burn marks. But just, just like, her, like, feeling so moved by Eskinor's statement of compassion to her that she felt compelled, like, even through the pain to just give him one last embrace uh, to see him off as he dies that was super super moving and memorable so another really good moment from seven lily sins uh and then beyond that i will mention that uh 
man, in terms of other big shocks, the confession, I will just say, not to spoil it, that Hanako tells Yanagi and Akdodge bef- right before they're about to put on the Princess Arnfan play that, like, sets her off the edge. Like, that was just an insanely shocking moment. That, that sends chills down your spine, just the way Hanako delivers it, and then just Yanagi's reaction of, like, just absolutely losing it as the gears are turning in her head, and she kind of, like, loses control and snaps Hanako, and this, that anger just consuming her. Uh, and then it's still, like, affecting her, like, as the play is going on in subsequent chapters. Like, man, that was... I'll talk about it more later. Hanako is going to come up, come up again in uh, another mention. But, man, uh, that was a, sh- a really, really me- incredibly memorable scene from Akdodge. And Akdodge had tons of memorable scenes. And then, uh, I guess, finally... Well, okay, two more things. So, uh, I also just enjoy Toma and Fudaba fighting over which one of is cuter in Blue Flag. Because this is, after all the fallout of the fact that Toma, you know, kind of confessed his feelings uh, to... What's the main character's look like? But uh, basically, they're just fighting. You know, uh, Futaba has also envied Toma... For, like, the entire series. Because she, you know, kind of admired that he seems so big and uh, strong. And she kind of wished she was more like him. But Tom, on the other hand, kind of wished he was more like Futaba. And so they kind of fight over whichever each other has the best qualities. And it's kind of adorable. Like, they're kind of reconciling over kind of the awkward situation. Over the fact that, you know, Toma confessed to Tai Chi that he loved him and so you know Futaba being Taiji's girlfriend is you know as someone who also uh you know admired Toma is you know has a lot of mixed feelings about this and insecurities about whether she's right for Taiji or whether she got in the way of Toma and Taiji's relationship but you know it's just kind of a cute moment as they were kind of reconcile and be honest about their feelings and I enjoyed that a lot and then finally I will say that there were several like confession scenes in manga this year but uh, I thought all of them were very memorable. And those include, like, Lloyd proposing to Yor in the second chapter of Spy Family, where, like, he gives her the ring, like, behind, like, a blockade where their bonds go off in the background. That was really f- just a fun visual. In tr- the first chapter of the new Twin Stars uh, Exorcist arc uh, that's being simul-pub, like, them finally proposing to each other and actually, like, getting married, which has, like, been the big thing that has been leading up towards since, like, the very beginning. Like, it's the central conceit. That was super, super moving. And then, of course, uh, most recently, uh, Aruka confessing her feelings to Uega, and we never learn. Like, just outward saying that she loves Uega. And that is, uh, you know, huge moment that, like, is so satisfying to finally witness. So... Like, all those, all those were really memorable and some of my favorite moments of the year, for sure. All right. But um, I guess I could talk about my favorite manga, uh, my favorite manga moments real quick. Um, and man, you know, it was really hard for me to pick, like, singular moments. It was really hard for me to pick something that wasn't just, like, an entire chapter. Um, we'll get to that later. I, like, after thinking about it, I think my, I think my favorite singular moment that landed the like the biggest gut punch in anything I've read all throughout the year. Uh, came with uh, what chapter was it? It was uh, chapter two forty nine of My Hero Academia. 
uh and it's 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 just it's just the first page of that of that chapter where basically endeavor is thinking to himself about how like you know every time he he falls asleep he has this reoccurring dream where he'll just watch his family you know just eating dinner at the table and looking happy but he's obviously not there he's never with them and I think that might be the first time I ever like legitimately felt sorry for this guy because like up to up to this point you know we we saw that like he kept saying like he he, he like you, you could tell that like he had like wanted to do something to kind of atone for what he's done to not just Todoroki but like his entire family and all the trauma that he's put him through but uh, but I feel like this singular moment really captures his 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 humanity uh something that i'm sure most people still don't believe that he has and i think that's what i love about horikoshi's character writing is that cuz you know i i i used to be somebody who absolutely despised bakugo uh from the beginning but as you kind of spend more time with him and you learn more about him you realize that like yeah he has a lot of issues and a lot of problems but like the guy is still a kid and he's he goes through the same kind of insecurities that like most kids do, and when you think about Bakugo like that, you really kind of realize like oh like obviously his behavior is very exaggerated, but like in a way it makes sense. I, I'm not saying that's the exact same thing with Endeavor because obviously you know when you're first introduced to Endeavor, he is a giant asshole who put Todoroki in particular through you know so much hell as a. I think a six-year-old. He was pretty young and obviously had his wife like admitted to the hospital and just caused all sorts of tragedy in his family. And now he's now he's finally kind of realizing like the weight of what he's done. And now in in a way like in a way like he, he wants to atone for it, but the way he sees it, like the only way that he can atone for what he's done to his family is if, is if he just leaves him alone. And there's something really, really sad about that. And uh, I don't know if this is an unpopular opinion, but I surprisingly kind of feel for the guy, you know, despite all the horrible things he's done. And that's not that's not easy for me to say, like, especially coming from somebody who, you know, I, I know what it's like to have a very antagonistic, abusive father figure. And it's not it's it's not to get too blue, but it's it's not easy at all. It's some of the most it's it's it's. It's it's hard to put in the words, but like, just just coming from somebody who's been in this kind of situation, like I'm kind of surprised that like how how amazingly Horikoshi has really dealt with uh, Endeavor's sort of I don't want to call it a redemption arc, but it's the best word I can think of to use is his atonement slash redemption arc. I think is been handled surprisingly really well. Like I was legitimately afraid that like. It was going to go all sorts of really weird directions and, you know, Todoroki, like, it would have been so easy for, like, any other series to just have Todoroki be like, it's okay, father, I forgive you because I'm the main character and I'm supposed to be the good guy and we're just supposed to forgive everybody. But, no, there's, there's still real pain there and I think it's really, and that's another thing I like about Todoroki this year, too, is that, like, despite all the stuff that his father's done to him, like... He's still a human being with complicated feelings. Like, it's... He's still struggling with whether he should forgive him or not. And I think the only reason he does that is because that is... Like, Endeavor is his father. 
and he's the only father he'll ever have. And so on that familiar familial connection alone, you know, that's all there is to it. Like, I, I understand those feelings where it's like, oh, well, yeah, this guy's a piece of shit, but he's he's still like my family. And those are some really difficult emotions to to sift through. And I feel like My Hero Academia really captures that struggle really well. Again, it's another very small moment, but like I think it really says a lot about his character. But uh, I also wanted to pick something a little lighter. And um, in, in terms of like other very small moments, the only other moment I kind of want to bring up is um, is from Chapter Twenty Four of Chainsaw Man, uh, which is where uh, what's his name Aki is uh, is fighting against the. Uh, I wish I remember this guy's name. Who whoever whoever the guy is with like the blades for arms and stuff. With, like, the leather coat and hat that uh, Denji eventually fights on the train. During, like, his first attack, uh, Aki is fighting with him. And there's a really great moment where, like, he... I'm not even sure what he does. Like, I don't know if he, like, freezes time and, like, summons a demon to, like, flick the sword into this guy's head or what. But, like, just the way that Fujimoto, like, draws this scene and, like, sequences it. Like, it's uh, it's almost as if, you know, th- this demon comes from outside of the manga... And, like, helps with the fight. Because, like, the, the demon finger is, like, drawn outside of the border panels. So it's almost like he's summoning a... It's, it's, it feels like he's de- summoning a demon from another dimension to flick a sword into this guy's head. And I don't know, just something about that really just, like, really just, like, impresses me. Uh, it, it's really hard for me to describe, like, why I think that's just such a cool effect. But, again, it's very small, but, like, it really stood out to me. Like, okay, this this dude knows how to play with comics. And I think that's a that's a big reason I've really like turned around on Chainsaw Man by the end of the year this year. Oh yeah. Um, but that's really about it for uh, my favorite moments. Um, but here's the big one. Let's get into our favorite manga chapters of 2019. And Lum, I'll let you go first. This is another difficult one because there are so many great chapters, but. Honestly, one of my favorite chapters was probably one that happened like right at the beginning of this year, and that was Octodge chapter 54. This is after the conclusion of their first performance of the Night of the Galactic Railroad play, and Yunagi is approached by Amanji, a producer who wants to sell her as a sort of tragic heroine in the media uh, to promote her. And so everyone is worried about Yunaki taking this predatory offer from this dude and being manipulated by him, uh, preying upon like her image of herself or, and also tempting her with like literally throwing money at her. Like literally he throws money at her and shows her how much <laughs> she could make. And which, like, she's, like, just her instinctual reaction to being thrown with money is, like, to fall on the floor and, like, roll around in the money. Because Yunagi is very desperate for money. But, like, ultimately, she asks Amanchi for a pen. And she takes the pen. She asks all her friends, like, how they would describe her. And they all tell her, like, how they see her. That she's, like, a little sister to them. That she's, like, a pet. That she's like her friend, that she's stylish, so she's cute. And then she asks Kuriyama, you know, hey, Kuriyama, do you think I'm tragic? And Kuriyama's like, no, like, that's up to you to decide. How should I know? And so she, like, writes 
in like this book that Amanji had like given her that was like this entire proposal about how he would sell her as like a tragic heroine and rising actress. And she has crossed out everything he has written and written all the things that her friends have said about her instead and tells him like, no, this is the real me. I'm going to play a character that I like always. And I'm not going to do that with you because I won't let you define who I am. Like I define myself. And it's such, like, a great character moment for Yanagi, a character who, you know, up to the series at this point, like, her whole thing was that she would lose her sense of self in her acting. Like, she'd forget who she really is as she begins acting because she gets so into the method acting. And so this moment for Yanagi is, like, her, like, outright kind of defi- saying, hey, I am a lot of different things. There is a lot of different sides to me and I am very sure and know of my own identity and I trust in the friends who know me better than anyone, more than you. And I, it's just such a great chapter and moment for Yanagi to like stand up to this producer and like to show just how much she's grown in her understanding of herself and her identity. And uh, it was very powerful movie and like there's been amazing chapters of acting throughout the year. But that still sticks to me as like one of the defining moments for the series and one of its best. Haikyuu chapter 365 was incredibly pivotal for the series because it's like the big climactic game in this tournament arc that they've been doing for like the past couple of years. And, you know, it seems like Karasuno is like kind of on the winning edge, but like just when things seem to be going great and like everyone has had all these amazing character revelations and breakthroughs and uh, understanding like how they want to define themselves. Like Hinata is like, I'm no longer going to inter- be interested in the being the little giant, giant. I'm going to be like the greatest decoy, the greatest something else. And it's it's a big character development stuff. But then, you know, especially as, you know, Hinata is facing off the other person who wants to kind of follow in the footsteps of the little giant. So, like, it's a great kind of moment in that match for that rivalry, too. But ultimately, Hinata has pushed himself too far. So he collapses and he has to be taken out of the game. And it's heartbreaking because he wanted to see it through to the end. But he can't. He has to take care of his health and his teammates encourage him, you know, don't worry about it. Leave it to us. But, you know, like he's encouraged by, uh, you know, their coach and told that I can't let you back on that court. You need to take care of your health. I know how much you love playing the game. And I know you're feeling really frustrated hurting right now. But, you know, engrave that feeling to your heart. Remember this feeling. Tell yourself it will never happen. Never to let it happen again. Make sure it never does. Because, you know, you'll get into actions. Actions in the future. Unforeseen will happen. But just reflect on that. Engrave that feeling. Because this is not the end for you. Like, this one game is not, like, going to be the climax of your career in volleyball. You off the court right now, recovering from this injury. This uh, is still the game of volleyball. And he tells them that you're not finished growing, you know, because of your stature, you're not often going to be given the same opportunities or chances as other people. But because of that, you know, you more than anyone else have to be, you know, prepared to take care of yourself. But you also have to be prepared to, at a moment's notice, take advantage of opportunities when they present themselves to you. And it's just these huge words of encouragement from the, the coach. And then the big thing is like Kageyama tells him that, oh, you know, I thought you said you're going to stand on the court longer than anyone else. Well, look what happens now. I guess I win again. And he says that to 
uh, incite Hinata and Flamen to kind of encourage him that, yeah, you be motivated to not let this happen again. Like, we are still, like, rivals, competitors, and, you know, take care of yourselves so you can play another day, and then we will uh, play on the court again, and, you know, we will continue just, you know, that rivalry and stuff. But, yeah, and then, of course, uh, the other little giant also encourages Hinata and says, hey, I'm going to be waiting for you. Don't take too long. And so, you know, not to spoil anything what happens after this chapter, but Karasuno ultimately does lose the game. Hinata ultimately does not get back in the game. But, like, the message of this chapter is really powerful and kind of resonates with Hinata and just the, and it kind of defines, like, where the series goes next is that basically, you know, they realize that the high, the high school volleyball is not, like, going to be their peak of the volleyball career. And, like, just one loss like one accident is not does not have to define like what happens to the next and they continue to strive to new heights and better themselves and uh, that kind of is a message that Hanada takes to heart like in the chapters after this but like it's such a like a moving like pivotal chapter for the series in terms of like just an emotional climax to this big game and also like really redefining like Hanada's goals and like where the series goes next and just uh, also just paying off on like some teams that the series had been exploring up to that point. But another chapter I want to mention uh, as something that also hit me uh, very hard, Demon Slayer chapter 163 was probably the most emotional chapter uh, for me of anything I read because it's the big denouement of the fight with uh, Doma. They've just beaten him. Doma is reflecting on like, oh, well, I've, uh, well, I guess I've been destroying myself and I'm going to die. But like he has this, you know, it's very satisfying the conversation he has with uh, Kanao as he's dying. And he's kind of, you know, reflecting about like, oh, I didn't think I would lose. But, uh, you know, I guess for the first time, my heart is really beating. I kind of feel like some sort of excitement in this. And it's like a kind of an interesting end to this character who is, I guess I'll talk about him more later, but like the big emotional thing is that like just spoke in the aftermath of this battle, Kanao and Osuke are like broken down in tears, like reflecting about like this really incredibly hard fought victory they have just had. And Kanao in particular has this flashback. She's reflecting about the time when Kanai died and you know, when they were paying respects to her grave, you know, Kanao could not cry. And she was very upset at herself for not being able to cry to show grief that her sister was dead. But, like, the big emotional thing here is that no one criticized her. Or no one, you know, was upset for her for not being able to cry. And so she was just moved by that kindness. But it, like, deeply affected her. The fact that she could not express herself, her emotions, because she just had that emotional block from her childhood where if she showed emotions you know she would be beaten and abused so she had to close off her emotions but like finally in this moment like after this hard-fought battle and like reflecting on like the struggle and like her comrades that have helped her get here and then her sister passing the torch and like Kanao is like finally finally able to cry and grieve you know finally able like finally broken through that block just inside her and finally kind of having avenged her sister. So it's like, it's really, really powerful stuff. It was very moving. And uh, yeah, 
Uh, it, it, to me, it also just hit hard on a personal level because uh, my grandfather passed away this year and I also kind of had a similar reaction to Kanao about not really knowing how to process grief or like sh- not knowing like how to express my emotions and just being upset with myself but not being able to like force myself or like to to really articulate my emotions or or show my grief uh, and so just the the kind like similar to how Kanao's family showed her her understanding to her uh, and like was not we're not upset with her you know that was also kind of the reaction of my dad you know as we just like kind of embraced each other you know just you know quietly kind of understanding you know the the depth of this loss and the sadness and that really moved me and touched me you know upon uh reflection just like the message of this chapter and then just the catharsis of canal being able to cry so so Demon Slayer 160 Street, probably my favorite chapter in terms of like emotional impact on me personally. But uh, yeah, what are some of your favorite chapters? All right. So uh, this first one may surprise you because this series did not last very long into the beginning of uh, 2019. This was really hard because I had a lot of chapters that I really liked this year, like single chapters that I thought were really good, really enjoyable, but it all came back to this one. I'm not even sure how many people remember this series at this point, but uh, my favorite chapter of 2019 has to be chapter eight of Neolation. And uh, we we talked about this chapter on the podcast once before, because I think uh, there was a time where we were talking about Shonen Jump and we were talking about our feelings on both Neolation and Hellward and Higuma, like as they were coming out. Uh, this is the chapter where where Neo is visited by Gavaldon and uh, Gavaldon literally just like shoots Neo in the side and is going to kill him. But, you know, it, t- it turns into this whole big like bluff game where like, you know, Neo's like, well, hey, if you kill me, you know, this watch on my wrist is like, like it's set to read my heartbeat. And if it starts reading my heartbeat or whatever, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to send out all this incriminating evidence that'll get you locked up in jail. When obviously that's that's a huge pile of shit. That's not going to actually happen. He's just trying to keep himself from being killed by Gavaldon, which ultimately works. And um, it, it's it's just this like just this like huge like it 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 really reminded me of like the the, the of the like the Darby fight from JoJo, where it's like it's really just all about who could bluff better. And even Neo's like, you know, this is really fucked up, but. It's also really exciting like just i remember the art in that chapter being so intense and it really captures the intensity and the tension of of what was going on in the moment and uh you know even though neo is like ultimately left alive he basically tries to retrieve data that'll like get this guy in trouble but like you know gavaldon ultimately you know jams all his programs so he doesn't have any more evidence against him and what I liked about this chapter also was that, like, because, you know, I think one of the things that uh, we might have talked about when Neolation started was, you know, I, I really liked the premise and everything for the series, and I thought it was really interesting. But, like, w- one of the issues that could have been pretty prevalent with Neo as a character is that, like, he, he was so good at, like, hacking and everything that, like, you know, uh, there was a real fear of, like, nobody being able to challenge him, and that's where Gavaldon steps in, because he's throughout the entirety of the series he's really the only one who gives neo a run for his money and like actively like outsmarts him and i really felt like chapter eight it like it might be the best chapter of neolation just because like 
you know, it, it was it was something where it's like, man, if this series keeps going, I wanna I wanna see these guys keep going at it. I I wanna I wanna see the rivalry between these two guys. Like I was so hooked from then on. And uh, it's 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 the chapter that makes me that makes me realize like what a shame it was that this series was canceled. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a really compelling chapter in terms of like the tension between Neo and Gavaudin, and just like Neo utterly losing for the first time in the series. Like it really set up Gavaudin as a real threat and like a really interesting antagonist. And it is a shame that we never got to see a rematch between them again. Yeah, I I love manga where like. You're presented with this, with this character who like who's really good at one thing and can do no wrong. Like I, I feel, I feel like uh, Food Wars also kind of comes to mind, where it's like, you know, as much as I loved Food Wars in the beginning, like it was real, it was finally nice to see like Soma lose after seeing him win so many of his uh, of his uh, Shokugeki matches and whatnot. And which uh, I, I think that that's something that Neolation does a little better is that it it hum it, it it humbles the main character a lot faster, so that way you don't feel like oh well this guy's just gonna win like he's you know like you can count on him to win at the end of the day and have there be no tension whatsoever. I like seeing characters that are good at something but all, but are also still like fallible because that means there's room for them to grow. And I felt like Chapter Eight was like the best example of that kind of thing. And I think my uh, my 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 runner up actually has to be uh, a chapter from Spy Family, uh, chapter sixteen, where uh, it, it's the story where Twilight has to try to figure out a way is still trying to figure out a way to get Anya uh, another another gold star um, to basically move her up in school uh, for the sake of the mission, and uh, it, it's the chapter that ends with her saving a drowning kid and she gets a star that way. Um, and I really like that chapter because uh, in the beginning, you know, Anya is totally okay with using her powers to cheat off of other people's tests so she doesn't have to study. Um, but then Twilight thinks about how, like, oh, well, I could I could help her cheat, but if I help her cheat, like, that's going to make her look bad in front of all of her classmates and probably turn her into an outcast. And, you know, that helps Anya realize, like, oh, wow, wait, if I use my powers, like, nobody's going to like me. And it's really sad. Um, but then she gets to use her powers for good at the end of the day, and she feels she feels better about herself, and it's it's really sweet. It's like a little mini character arc that she kind of goes through in uh, in that chapter alone, and uh, I I thought I thought it was a really good chapter of development for Anya in particular. But uh, that's about it for my picks, um, and I guess we can move on to favorite manga fights of 2019. Yeah. So this is kind of going off of my one of my favorite manga chapters, but again, Kanao and Inosuke versus Doma was definitely my favorite, you know, from Demon Slayer. And the reason why is because it's incredibly hard fought because, you know, we had just come off of the fight with Akaza, which was Tanjiro and Giro, Giyu versus Akaza. And that was difficult for them. And Akaza was ranked number three. But Doma is the number two ranked of the Kiski. And he has just finished killing one of the Hashira. And so now we have Kanao and Inosuke against the number two. Who Doma is responsible directly for killing Kanao's sister and Inosuke's mother. So they have very personal grudges against him. They have like people they can kind of avenge 
because by killing their loved ones, they really hurt them as well. But like, it's like really emotional just because there's so much anger on Inosuke and Kanao's part during the entire fight, but also the desperation because for the longest, longest duration of the fight, they can barely touch him because of how strong his blood demon art ice magic is. And so they're really struggling to just keep up until like towards the uh, critical moment, Shinobu's poison that she had infected Doma with earlier starts to kick in. And that starts to, you know, slow him down just enough for Kanao and Inosuke to be able to stand a fighting chance and really continue to uh, fight back and push him to the edge and finally... Even then, it's they still have to make sacrifice because Kanao, in order to see Strew like this giant Buddhizakwa that Doma creates to shield him and like find uh, openings in order to attack Doma, she has to use a forbidden technique that like costs her like one of her eyes basically. Like she has to sacrifice like her eyesight in order to land a critical blow. But even then, like she just doesn't, she doesn't have the strength enough to cut through Doma's neck. So Inosuke like throws his swords, like through her sword. So the pressure like goes through Doma's neck and cuts his head off. And it's just so satisfying that this guy who has murdered a lot of people close to the characters has been utterly untouchable until this moment. Like, finally, through the teamwork of Hanau and Inosuke, like, they are able to take him down and, like, avenge their loved ones. And again, as I mentioned before, like, the chapter after that, like, kind of reflecting uh, and just them kind of emotionally, like, breaking down in tears over the fact that they had one but also like reflecting on what they have lost too is just super powerful and emotional so like just in terms of both the the desperation of it and then the emotional catharsis Kanao and Inosuke versus Doma is definitely like my number one favorite and then uh, I guess to give some honorable mentions uh, in Jujutsu Kaisen Itadori and Toto versus Tsunami was a super cool fight Toto's boogie woogie power which allows him to like switch places with someone is used to great effect and I like seeing uh, Itadori learn how to use more Jujutsu uh, techniques and it's a really cool fight with a lot of great action in it and uh it's just a lot of fun. And also Child Emperor versus Phoenix Man. I just like, I always liked Phoenix Man. And I like that he had this whole transforming gimmick where he's getting stronger and stronger every time Child Emperor taught he was uh, putting him down. And I thought that also had a lot of stakes and desperation. Child Emperor was figure, trying to figure out a way to stop Phoenix Man uh, for good in a way that he wouldn't like just revive himself and become stronger afterwards. So uh those are some of my favorites that was gonna be my honorable mention yeah i think i think out of all the just to get into my stuff here like uh, out of everything in one punch man this year like i think that fight was probably the most entertaining like i I have this weird thing with one punch man this year where it's like it's been it's been good but like none of the fights have like really stuck out to me that much Maybe Tornado's fight against um, Gyoro Gyoro, or however you pronounce that his name. That also was pretty good. And of course, you, 
the Saitama one-shotting Orochi is also insanely satisfying because you know it's gonna happen, and there's this entire but there's this entire chapter of like Orochi just trolling out everything so Saitama won't touch him, and then when he finally does, it like one shot explodes him. So good. I also I also love. I actually probably want another one of my favorite moments I forgot to mention was uh, Saitama just interrupting his monologue being like, dude, come on, just fucking do it. <laughs> yeah, like him just telling off Orochi is like, oh, oh, you guys, it's always you're the king of something or whatever. You're the you're, you're talk of a big game, but it doesn't matter because every single time without fail, I beat you in one time. So I'm over it. I'm not impressed. You know, I know how this is going to go. <laughs> um, yeah, it's yeah, so good. good. But no, yeah, Child Emperor versus uh versus the Phoenix guy. Yeah, that was that was probably my favorite fight from One Punch Man. Especially especially the latter half where it's like, you know, the, he he has to put like all the energy into his robot right before it like self-destructs and and you have that just giant beam of energy from underground that shoots up so high into the air that you get like a good shot of like where Saitama punched the moon or whatever. Um, or landed on the moon from that one other fight, I guess. Um, I thought that was a, that was a nice little callback. Uh, but I, I think my favorite fight this year has to be from Chainsaw Man. And it's, it's the, it's the, I mentioned it earlier. It's the fight between, uh, Denji and the, and the Katana guy from, uh, ah. uh on the train from chapter 37. And, you know, it's not a very, like, complicated fight. Like, it, it amounts to a lot of, like, the katana guy slashing off denji's limbs to the point where denji's like i'm gonna make a chainsaw come out of my leg and cut him in half but uh you know like just just the like chainsaw man is just one of those series where like and i think maxi might have mentioned it on a podcast we've done before but like i don't think since dragon ball we've had something this like this well sequenced as far as like paneling and like action choreography and just it's really something else. Like I love I love Chainsaw Man's style and I think it really I think it really contributes to how it handles its action. Like uh, I'm kind of flipping through the chapter here. I, I love the two page spread of uh of the katana guy kind of slicing through Denji and you can you can clearly see like it's a, see actually I'm just now noticing this you can clearly see like the line of motion from where he launches attack to like the other side of the train but I think that's also supposed to make up like the sound effect of his uh of his blades like clashing with Denji's chainsaw like that kind of stuff is amazing and no yeah like again the, the fight's not too super complicated like Denji has the guy like basically cut his chainsaw head chainsaw. <laughs> You know, as a distraction for Denji cutting him in half with his chainsaw leg, and it's and it's just so cool. I love it. Like I, I've I've been really loving a lot of the fights at Chainsaw Man this year. Oh yeah. But uh, yeah, I think I think that's all I have to mention on my end. Uh, and I guess we can move on from that to favorite manga protagonists of 2019. And uh, I think I could go first with this one because after a lot of thinking. I'm gonna have to say my favorite protagonist of the year is Anya from Spy Family. I'm a real sucker for cute kid characters because <laughs> Anya is probably the best part of Spy Family, quite honestly. Like, I, I like honestly, if if I if I could just say like the the like the Forger family unit as like a character, I probably would have I probably would have said that because it's like I love their dynamics and I love seeing them interact with each other, and I just want to like adapt them all. 
and I <laughs> and I just I just want to adopt their entire family because I love watching them just just do stuff together. Um, Yor is a pretty is probably definitely my second choice just because of how badass she is and just like I just she she's so like unassuming but also like she she has like some of the best action sequences in the series so far just like just like her her like her like kicks and punches just always look like they hurt and she just like she like always scares Anya with how like strong she is and I'm, I'm kind of all, I'm kind of going all over the place but like Anya in particular like I just I, I just I just like her role in the story where like she's the only one that's aware of like what's going on in that like she she knows that the fa- that this family that she's been adopted to is for is mostly for show and that she's aware of that Twilight's a spy and that uh, and that Yor is an assassin killer whatever um and I, and I just I just like her awareness of like what's going on around her makes the series all that much funnier I think and like her her reactions to to being adopted by this quote unquote spy family like you know, she she's just so like entertained by it, like, and it's just I don't know, just 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 some something about the way that Anya is written is just like she she's she's the funniest character in the entire series. Like I I just I just love seeing her react to the other characters around her and how she kind of like moves the story forward in some chapters. Mm-hmm. She's gifted with the ability to know what others are thinking, but she herself is also still a child, so she gets very excited about, like, cool spy things, and she wants eagerly to help Lloyd in his mission, but she misunderstands things, she also gets full of herself, she's also, you know, she she also is very much prone to, like, get caught up in, like, her own wins as well, so she's a really funny fun character to just follow and i think that she's really the heart of spy family and like the chapters that are strongest are the ones that really focus on and follow her explore and navigate different situations i guess i'm kind of curious well how about you love so my absolute favorite character was k from octage uh you know she had a lot of great character developments here i mean i mentioned before act on chapter 54 where she kind of stood up to that producer and like showed that she has gained a great support network and it now is very comfortable in defining herself uh and very assured of her own self-identity but even beyond that like uh, the very first arc after post the uh, Night of the Rock Railroad arc is like her going back to school and then just trying to make friends with like normal kids like outside the acting world and like her just kind of relearning how to just be sociable and just forge friendships on her own without like being put into like a forming friendships on the job but just like casually and it's through like the cinema club and just also reaching out to people and then kind of reflecting on how distant she had used to be and then trying to make amends for that and apologizing like to Hina who ends up becoming like her best friend which is also very adorable later uh, but beyond that we have her like kind of just continuing to grow and like uh take on challenges and be proactive and like showing off that she is and can be a capable actor uh, and stand up to the best of the best, like with her fulfilling Ogami's challenge to prove that she can be a big enough screen presence, a big enough personality that to stand up to him, stand next to him, and not be overshadowed by him. And then also, like her rivalry with Shioko, 
to like show off which one is the better actress and then like kind of learning to separate like her feelings of Shioko is my friend and then like no Shioko is my rival and I want to also beat her and challenge her as well and then of course like in the recent chapters now that they've been putting on the play the princess Arfan playing like she is struggling you know to to channel both her anger in a way that enhances her performance but also hold herself back for not getting lost in her anger not like there's in these incredible scenes where we see inside her mind and her inner child is like yelling at her to like why are you doing this play is this play more important to you than your mother and what that woman did to your mother like how she had hurt you, you should be directing your anger at her and not focusing your attentions on this. And Kay is like, you know, the adult version of Kay inside of mine is like saying, no, I'm an actress. This is what I do. And I will, this is what's important to me. But like, she's, it's like this back and forth with her child self in her mind, as there's this, this raging waters inside her mind, like showing that she's, on really turbulent ground like she is struggling to like keep herself composed and like it's all building up to this climax which i don't know like if she's going to be able to pull her at the very end because at the very end of the play uh the character of princess rfa needs to be able to let go of her anger and forgive so will Kay herself be able to do that is something that I'm interested in seeing. But like just the psychological like struggles that Kay has been grappling with in addition to like just the the both growing as an actress and also learning to become more social and more confident self, like really being on her own without the direction of anyone else to to guide her and uh, mentor, mentor her and how to improve her performance or how to direct her on what to do is like been really compelling to watch. And so she's like my favorite like protagonist in uh, Jump as a whole right now, but and also definitely my favorite protagonist of the year. Uh, but beyond that, a close runner-up is definitely Uega from We Never Learn, because Uega also had an incredibly amazing year. Like, the year started off with Uega deciding that he will refuse the recommendation. The thing that, you know, like, the series was kind of built upon is that he was tutoring Fumino and Ogata in order to get the recommendation, but he willingly chooses that that's not what he wants. He doesn't care about the recommendation anymore. He doesn't want to pursue that original career path he had in mind where he was going to get a very... He was going to go to a good school so he could get a high-paying job to support his family. And he, like, kind of confesses this to his mother, and he's like, you know, I'm sorry, but that's not what I want to do anymore. I think I want to pursue teaching like Dad did, and his mother, like, tells him, you know I just want you to do what's best for you and I want you to be happy and you to prioritize your own happiness first and that's super moving and Uega that's his direction in the rest of the year is him like preparing to like study uh, for himself, for his own future, and, like, for his own happiness. But in the process of doing that, he's still helping out all the other characters, like, kind of gets through their final, like, emotional hurdles. And by being very attentive and empathetic and considerate them and trying to, you know, just make, encourage them. Uh, like, the ways in which he helps Rizu learn to like herself or assures Asumi that, you know, even if the Kobe Nami clinic is sold off, like that doesn't mean like the end of her dream. 
and like what she like has been studying for and like what she wants to be as a doctor and then we had like this moment where it seemed like Uwega was going to miss the exam because he helped out this dot lost dog and you know slipped and fell but then you know it, it's a huge moment where like everyone you like Aruka comes to Wega's aid and helps him get there in time. Kirisu like also helps him get there in time. It's like this huge emotional thing. Like he takes the test and reflects on like how much like these people care about him and like how grateful he is about for that. And then of course the year kind of just ends with uh, a great chapter towards the end where he's giving like notebooks of encouragement to all the characters as they're fretting out about like the impending uh, exam entry exams for the colleges and worrying like, Oh my God, uh, you know, I'm worried about failing. Like I'm, I'm super stressed out about this. And Yuega gives them these notebooks and words of encouragement that calms them and allows them to focus on their studying, which is just, super super sweet and satisfying and then of course the year ends with like ever all the characters succeeding in their dreams thanks to Uega's tutorship and then Uega being confessed to by Aruka like Uega just had an amazing year in terms of like be being like an incredible protagonist and helping like all the other characters around him grow and be the their best selves and pursue their dreams to live their happiest lives and then him himself deciding you know, I should also do that too. And, you know, receiving res- the support from everyone around him to do that is also super, super satisfying. So, like, you know, I think we mentioned this before in our We Never Learn uh, episode, but it's so rare that you can say that the best character in a harem rom-com manga is the main male protagonist, but We Never Learn is that rare ex- exception where Uega is not only, like, the best character in that series, like, in one of the most compelling and uh, just a great, admirable character. But he's like one of the best characters in the entirety of uh, any jump manga currently running, I think. And I, I really, really am fond of like everything he did this year and his character development in history. But uh, yeah, Uega and Yanagi are my favorites for sure. All right. Well, you can't have a protagonist without an antagonist. And that's what we're going to be talking about now with our favorite manga antagonist of 2019, and I'll just get mine out of the way and say that uh, for me personally, I think Ibarra from uh, from Doctor Stone has to be my favorite antagonist this year, just because uh, every every time he's on screen, he's just creepy as shit. Yeah. Um, he really reminds me. He looks like Jafar to me. Yeah, honestly, he's like if Jafar were like one hundred times creepier than he already was. Like, oh yeah! Like, but Boichi is so good at like, uh, so good at like drawing Ibarra in like the most menacing, threatening way possible. I think a lot of my favorite like pages, uh, just a lot of my favorite art in Doctor Stone from the past year has just been like his reactions to things and like uh, how he reacts to certain characters and like how he presents himself to other characters. Like he's just so. He's one of those characters where it's like, you're not intimidated by, like, his strength or anything, but, like, he just has his presence. And you could tell that, like, he he is the puppet master behind everything going on in this village. And he is definitely a force to be reckoned with. And, yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing him ultimately get outsmarted by Senku here pretty soon. And really, my only other choice would have to be... uh 
and and I won't go too much into it because I don't. Are you caught up on Ajin at this point, Lum? No, I haven't. Unfortunately. Okay, then all I'm gonna say is Sato is at it again. <laughs> <laughs> that old man. Oh man, yeah. I I recently just caught up to uh to a year's worth of Ajin, and uh, yeah, I mean. Where where I left off at Ajin the year before, they were just about to kick off, like, the plan against Sato, and basically this entire past year of Ajin has just been, you know, them trying to fuck over Sato, but, and not, not to give too much away, but uh, it ultimately doesn't work, uh, and he's always thinking, like, a step ahead, and it's just, I forgot how amazing Sato is, and I and I just... I, I, I love I love seeing him think his way out of things and he's just he's such a he's a good villain. I love him and he's definitely my favorite thing about Ajin as a whole right now. Um but what but what about you? So uh, this is an unconventional choice because when you would think of antagonists, like they may not necessarily come to mind immediately as being the antagonist, but like I, I do think that in terms of the role that she plays in the story, she is the antagonist of the current arc for sure, and that's Hanako from Act Age. And what's great about Hanako is that initially you don't think that she's an antagonistic character. Like, she's set up as a mentor character for Kay. Like, Kay meets her while kind of preparing to get into her role in the mountains, and they seem to kind of bond over kind of their own weird, like, quirkiness in terms of, like, investing themselves in their art so deeply. But again, uh, speaking to that moment I mentioned earlier, one of my favorite moments of the year is like Hanako's confession to Kei. I'm not going to reveal what she says to Kei, but like just what she says to Kei, like that recontextualizes the entire relationship she had with Kei and like what she was actually trying to get out with her, out to her and like the entire premise of the play. Uh, and like Kei's role in the play is like really shocking. And it's like almost disturbing in a way because Hanako, much like Kei, has a deep resentment and hatred of Kei's father. And the entire play of Princess Iron Fan is basically her writing out her feelings of anger at Kei's father. And then at the very end, trying to work through the character to find to get herself emotionally to a place where she can finally let go. Because she has been mired in just stewing in the hatred of over like her, her Kay's father betraying her like a long time ago and her unable to really move on with that and be satisfied with her art again because of that. And so this is like her attempt to finally break herself free of that and she's using and manipulating Kay by stirring up Kay's own anger to draw out the most out of her performance, you know, to kind of cathartically, vicariously express her hatred and her emotions through her and find release that way. She was, she is like psychologically manipulating, preying on Kay and using all the other actors too, just in this big scene that is like just for her own personal gratification and satisfaction in terms of like finally getting a release from just those feelings of anger and resentment she has towards Kate's father. And so she's incredibly interesting and kind of complex person in that way. But she's most definitely in the antagonist of this arc because she's actively antagonizing Kay to make her more mad as the play goes on, to bring out the most of her anger. And she's like trying, I don't know if she 
she doesn't necessarily have anything against Kay herself, but it like she the fact that she does kind of is kind of using her as like kind of a pawn in this like grander like motive of hers and is like willing to push Kay to her psychological limits in pursuit of that just makes her really really disturbing in her manipulativeness and uh like I I really find Hanako very compelling and interesting and I'm kind of curious to see like beyond the play like what is going to be the fallout from this in terms of Kay's relationship to Hanako and then Hanako's role in the story going forward like she's just incredibly interesting to me uh but beyond that kanako i also really really uh think ghetto is incredibly interesting ghetto from jujutsu kaisen we have this whole big backstory of ghetto and gojo's time as uh, jujutsu searcher as a jujutsu high and you know kind of the circumstances that made ghetto disillusioned with the way things are with how jujutsu sorcerers are treated and how they deal with curses and then ultimately come to the conclusion that it would be better to make a world where the only people who existed were Jujutsu sorcerers and there wasn't anyone who was like quote unquote like people who could not perceive curses or, or be sorcerers. So he's like he comes up with this idea to kill every non Jujutsu sorcerer and like the circumstances that lead him to like considering that extreme of legitimate is an option or like him seeing how other people who are different or people who are who are persecuted for you know being able to perceive curses and whatnot and just being increasingly delusioned with just people in the world and growing a deep hatred for humanity and so he decides to ally himself with curses in order to like destroy humanity basically and in that way like Geta really reminds me of Shinobu Sensui from Yu Yu Hakusho and uh, I find him very compelling and interesting for that reason just like because he starts out as a very idealistic character wanting to protect people uh, and believing that it is a Jujutsu sorcerer's responsibility to protect people. And then that 180 he takes because of a series of traumatic circumstances and bad experiences with the worst of people lead him to turn against the entire humanity. It's just really interesting to me. Uh, so Ghetto is definitely a very cool antagonist and uh, definitely one of the most intriguing characters in Jujutsu Kaisen. And then uh, I also want to shout out Reze from Chainsaw Man. Like, she has really made, like, the last half year of Chainsaw Man or so, quarter, year, third of the year. Like, that, the entire Reze arc it was incredibly fun to read. She is a very similar character to Denji in many ways. She seems to genuinely wanted to get to know him better and care about him, but she also was, of course, had her own mission and need to destroy him because she too is kind of being a pawn in a grander scheme and uh being manipulated much like denji has been by makima and like the end of the resi arc like in the most recent chapter with her being killed off by makima just as she had decided to risk it and see denji again you know and was like happy to you know see that denji was waiting for her like just makima appearing in front of her and then like killing her off was just so heartbreaking and uh i think like that she was wearing compelling antagonist and it's uh sad to see her go but like it just made her story was very satisfying to read in terms of like how the character was explored and just even the tragedy of her demise was felt kind of poetic and fitting in a way and then finally you know i mentioned it before but joma from demon slayer again like 
the personality of Joma, I think, really stands out. And we kind of talked about it on the Demon Slayer podcast before. But in contrast to other antagonists in Demon Slayer, a lot of the other demons, Joma is not redeemable. Like, Joma does not have a sympathetic backstory. Joma was always a sociopath who believed in uh, manipulating people and did not think much of other people's lives and looked down on people. And kind of gleefully indulged in his murder and cruelty and in taunting other people. And so even at the end, in Doma's death, like he does not like feel any sorrow or sadness, but he actually kind of takes pleasure in even the act of dying. So it's just like Doma is a, was a very standout antagonist for Dean Slayer, for being like one of the very few demon characters who didn't have any sympathetic end to him or any uh, redeeming aspect to him, like in terms of a tragic upbringing that made him the way he was. Like, Domo was outright, perhaps more so than any other character or any other villain besides Musa himself, like truly uh, despicable. And that just made his defeat all the more satisfying at the hands of Kanawa and Inosuke. And so, yeah, I really, really uh, enjoyed him as an antagonist. And Demon Slayer also, you know, Demon Slayer has great antagonists like Kokushibo, his backstory and relationship with his brother that made him jealous and turn to becoming a demon out of jealousy of his brother was also a very interesting backstory. But I think Doma, uh, because of his personality and because of just the gleefulness of his cruelty, stood out to me even more. But now we're moving on to our favorite manga series for now is 2019. Like, uh, time to kind of start wrapping up in our final categories by talking about series that are ending or have ended in the past year. I just want to go first and say that uh, obviously one of my favorites was Gintama. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> have you caught up on Gintama yet? No, I will eventually. I should. I, don't, I mean, I read the final chapter, so you don't have to... Do you know what happens before that, though? Because I got Yeah, I have a general idea of what happens. So you don't have to worry about spoilers. Okay, because I'm going to say that uh, the the chapter before the final chapter of Gintama, it might actually be one of my favorite chapters this year of manga. Because it is such a... I mean, obviously, you know, we have the, the defeat of Utsuro, finally. Uh, but what makes it so special is that, in a way... Uh, I'm not going to go over exactly how, but like Gintoki and Takasugi basically end up taking out Utsuro together, which which I thought was kind of interesting. And, uh, oh Christ. Um, yeah, uh, let's just say that chapter made me cry and uh, really just left me, uh, left me pretty hollow, uh, for lack of a better word, by the time it was over. Like, t- Takasugi's character arc is... It has such a great like conclusion in that in that chapter. It's just 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 the way it like bookends is just so good, and I cannot wait to see it animated. He has a great send off, Takasugi. I think um, if it weren't for the fact that you know there really wasn't like much of Gintama this year, I think altogether there were maybe like maybe six or seven chapters of Gintama all this year. And he didn't really have, like, a lot to do. I don't know. Takasugi might become... He he might be one of my favorite characters this year, actually. Just because, like, he had a really satisfying end to his arc. Um, But 
overall, the ending of Gintama, I personally think, is the most is the most Gintama ending we could ask for. Uh, because it has, you know, what you what you kind of expect. Like, you know, you, you, you have all the characters trying to, like, talk about how how they want the series to end and how the Shinsugumi want their own spin-off series. Um, le- legitimately, though, the ending of Gintama is kind of interesting because, like, it takes place... You're kind of led to believe that it kind of takes place within, like, Tama's memory banks because what what they're essentially trying to do is, like, update Tama on, like, all, on, on, like, everything that happens because they're still, they're still trying to repair her after the events of the Silver Soul arc. You don't have a very clear idea of, like, what is actually happening and, like, like, between what's actually happening in reality and, like, what's happening inside her head. Because they're feeding her all this information and that obviously, like, uh, manifests into, like, what, what, like, what happens inside of, inside of her memory banks. It's really interesting, but, uh, I, I assume it's one of those things that, like, when it gets animated, they'll probably be made a little more clear. But, uh, but no, yeah, like, I think Sirachi ended Gintama as best he could. Like, he, he's gone on record saying that he wanted Gintama to end in a way where it didn't feel like the characters were saying goodbye, basically. Like, he didn't, he specifically didn't want the odd jobs uh, or Yorozuya's backs turned to the readers. Like, he wanted them to be facing the reader, running off, basically so that way the readers feel like the characters will always be there, that their story isn't over, they're just going to have adventures off screen. And I think he did a very good job of that. And uh, when when that movie eventually comes out, assuming it's going to be, assuming they animate the end of the manga, I'm going to cry buckets. I'm, nothing emotionally destroys me more than Gintama. Um... But uh, outside of Gintama, um, I will say that I think the finale that, like, kind of left me the most speechless was uh, the ending to The Last Sayuki. Uh, and we we talked about it, like, when the series ended, but, like, you know, it's, uh, The Last Sayuki is one of those things where, like, we really wish it could have, like, kept going because, like, it was it was legitimately, like, one of the best new series of this last year. And the last chapter especially, th- though they do, they do do that thing where it's, like, okay, we only have so many chapters left, we better explain everything that we wanted to do throughout the rest of the series, because we don't have the time to explore it in detail. Um, But the last chapter concludes in a way where it's like, you know, like, it's very hopeful. And like, you know, it ends with with them uh, eventually facing the monster that was kind of hinted at towards the beginning of the series. And I just, that smash cut of uh, of Ryunosuke swinging his staff and smash cutting to a baseball being hit and propelled into the sky, like, that's gonna stick with me. I I think, artistically, that's, like, one of the coolest things I've ever seen in a comic, and uh, was definitely one of my favorite moments in manga from this year. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, it was a super satisfying ending. Like, it was, it's amazing how satisfying and, you know, emotional the final chapter could be for a series that was cut short, but like they really pulled it together at the end with such an inspiring message of like, you know, this place isn't hell. Like, uh, even though you think that the world is irredeemable and can't be saved, you know, I will fight for it because there are people that I love and I want to spread love. And we're going to encourage everyone to be brave and face the future together. And, no matter what, there's no fear that we can overcome. 
And yeah, just the cut between him, uh, them fighting the monster and then seeing the baseball, like implying that, you know, the world survives another day and then like people are able to enjoy themselves in the future and play baseball and games and continue living like past the past this big climatic event. Like it's really great message. It's really satisfying, uh, really artfully done. Yeah, it was really good. Um, but that's about it for me. How about you? So Boys Over Flowers Season 2, we mentioned, ended this year, and it had a great ending that really brought things uh, to closure in a really great way. I mean, the biggest thing, uh, you know, that was really satisfying to see was Haruto uh, meeting Domyoji, like the person who he inspired him and wa- he wanted to emulate so badly, like he gets to meet him, kind of realizes that Domyoji, you know, he did not really think much of like helping Haruto back in the day, but that's just kind of the person he was. But like Domyoji gives Haruto like kind of words of encouragement and support and like Har- that makes Haruto like on cloud nine. Like there's just amazing uh, image of like uh, Haruto like he's just jumping in the air just so happy like that he met like his hero again and like he kind of has this kind of closure and on that front but he also is able to help Domyoji which is even better because he helps him find Sakushi and like reunite them together and like help them resolve like some miscommunication in their relationship and that was also really satisfying to see you know just kind of how you know, passing in the boys over flowers, like that Domyoji and Tsukushi, they still had some troubles and in their relationship in terms of kind of having to meet the demands of Domyoji's family and what they expect of uh, Tsukushi and whatnot. But then, like, just them, you know, finally being able to reunite and, you know, work through the problems together and stand firm against, like, the family expectations is just really nice to see. But just on the front of like Harto and Oto's relationship, like, you know, it's great that ultimately the end of the day they finally do become a couple and they consummate their love. There's a sex scene, you know, they, they go all the way. So they are truly committed in a happy relationship now. But like the ultimate final final note that's super satisfying about the series is that like Harto like he helps this kid who is being bullied. Uh, like he kind of scares off the bullies and he gives this kid who is kind of being manipulated by his bullies like words of encouragement to like not go down this path and then the next day like the kid goes up to Haruto and like thanks him for like helping him out of that situation and like he tells Haruto that he wants to be like him and it's like a complete like kind of a uh, going full circle from where Haruto started, where at the beginning of the series, like what he wanted to be most like was Domoyoji because Domoyoji helped him in a similar situation to him helping his kids. So now he's kind of come full circle. He's like become a mentor figure, a person like respected and admired in the same way that he respected and admired Domoyoji. And it's just such a great signifier of how much Haruto has matured and over the course of the series. And, like, how much he really has grown into his own. Like, he's no longer kind of chasing after emulating Domiyoji. Like, he is, like, now his own person that people are looking up to and respect. And respect. And then it just ends on this great note of, like, you know, no matter what problems lie ahead, like, he's, 
like he and Ocho, they have their friend circle and like everything will be fun. Like the next day will be sunny and they'll greet it with a smile on their face. So it's like just a really satisfying end to the, the series in terms of all these fronts, in terms of the personal character work of Haruto and then Haruto and Ocho's relationship. Like, yeah, it's just really, really solid end. Like you, this is the kind of ending you kind of would want out of just any romance series. So yeah, I really, really appreciate it and was very satisfied with how the series ended. But uh, the other shout out I'll mention in terms of series ending is Dr. Snow and Reboot Byakuya. Like, that entire, like, mini-series was really enjoyable, ultimately. But just the noted ends is also quite emotional. That Ray the robot, like, for thousands of years, against all odds, has survived and is still up in space. And still is twinkling a signal to Byakuya thousands of years later, waiting for him to return. And, like, it's just really emotional. Just that loyalty of Ray and just that belief and hope in Byakuya and just that that one aspect of legacy uh, of Byakuya is, is still being carried on and it's still waiting for Senku up there one day up in space and like it's just a great note that's just really satisfying and very touching and moving like uh, I really do hope that uh, the, this uh, entire story with Rei is canonized in the main series and, like, when they eventually do go up to space in Dr. Stone, like, they, they meet her, her and they, you know, they can reflect on, like, what Byakuya meant to them. And, like, another thing that Byakuya has left behind for Senku and for humanity is just, it's really, really emotional and satisfying. I don't think of that a read at some point. I still haven't actually, like, read it. But anyway, yeah, I think we can move on to our favorite new manga of 2019. So, I will just get this out of the way. There was a new Rumiko Takahashi series this year, and of course, that's one of my favorite new series of the year. It's Mao by Rumiko Takahashi. Like, to me, it's really interesting because for uh, the way I see Takahashi's work is that she likes to iterate upon herself and take ideas that she's explored in previous series and go on a new direction with them and, uh, like, a more matured perspective, like, kind of having figured out, like, what did work and didn't work what she did before and now like what she wants to do this time and so Mao is definitely like kind of a fusion of this is the kind of character dynamics we had in Renee and kind of a similar feel but like this is more story driven kind of mystery fantasy concept like Inuyasha and I like the marriage of those two things and I really like the characters of Mao and Ante. I like the mystery that's being explored with the Biyoki and like what who is behind the murder of Mao's master and like what is the actual circumstances that you know led to Mao being cursed and this whole you know situation and that as we kind of are meeting now, like other disciples of Mao's old master and like kind of peeling back more layers of the story. And that way, it's also very much like Inuyasha and like how there's this initial assumption that Inuyasha was the one who portrayed Kikyo or and from Inuyasha's perspective, Kikyo was the one who portrayed Inuyasha. But in reality, it was Naraku. And then there's more revelations and mysteries behind that. And so similar, there's kind of a similar thing going on here is like, People think the Biyoki is at fault, but actually the Biyoki tells Mao that no, there's like an there's like an even greater conspiracy at the work. So I just like 
the more layers of the mystery being peeled back and more twists and turns in it. And there were some really great reveal and surprises uh, in the manga in terms of like who characters really are, character relationships. And uh, I am really, really excited to see where it goes. But uh, there is some one series I think I know you're going to bring up. So I guess the other one I'll bring up for now is, uh, you know, I mentioned it before, but I really, really enjoyed Yui Kamiyo Let's Lose. I liked how it became like a dark gothic battle manga with uh, primarily female combatants and fighters. I thought that was really cool. Uh, there were some really cool fights in the series with uh, Honoka and Ayako. I loved the creepy powers. I loved the aesthetic. I, I thought it had a lot of potential. I'm very, very sad that it ended because I would have loved it to continue on further in the direction it was going. But uh, I'll, those are what I'll mention for now. And what are some of your favorite uh, new series, Colton? All right, so... This might this might surprise some people because I really thought it was going to go one way, but uh, when I really thought about it, I have to say my favorite new manga of 2019 is The Vertical World. Awesome. Look, I mean, like, if you didn't listen to our our Manga Plus Start episode where we talked about that Torture Princess and uh, Easted to the Night, Vertical World is just so interesting. Like... And not only am I a sucker for the series that involve people exploring an unknown world and having info being fed piecemeal to me as these char- as our characters are learning about said world, it's it's a, it's a big reason why I fell in love with the Promised Neverland at first, um, and stuff like Hunter Hunter and whatnot. But like Vertical World is probably the most interesting one of the most interesting manga I've read this year because. It's literally vertical. That is how you are supposed to read it. Uh, it literally does not work any other way. You you have these people that live in a giant vertical tower that extends like you know however far into the air and however below above uh, or below ground, and it's just it's just them like falling into this tower and meeting a bunch of different people, and there's like there's warping involved and. You you don't know like how far this tower goes, and it's just like it's it's such a like it's 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 such a like suspenseful action adventure series, um, and I just I I love it so much, and like you know, and we mentioned before that like you know that the art isn't like amazing or perfect, but like it's it, it, we would put it in the same category as like one's art in like One Punch Man or Mob Psycho One Hundred, like. The actual art isn't polished, but, like, the actual draftsmanship of the comic is very well done. Where, like, you know, when characters are falling and you're scrolling upward vertically through the page, like, it really feels like... It feels like there's a sense of movement sometimes where characters are just falling. Like, it's just... It is literally, like, one of the most innovative, like, manga I've ever read. It's it's just so cool. It's It's just not something I've ever seen before. Literally, if it weren't for the vertical world, Spy Family would probably be my my new favorite series this yeah. year. <laughs> I think that one was definitely a given. Like everyone knows, Spy Family is amazing. Everyone loves Spy Family. Like every chapter is a delight to read. There's a reason why it's like one of the most popular series on Manga Plus, and became so very very quickly. Like that in terms of like I think the general consensus. I think we can all agree, Spy Family is one of the best manga of the year. Much less one of the best new manga of the year. Oh yeah, like so good that Viz picked it up and now it's on the Shut and Jump app. 
Like, if you're not reading any of these new titles, like, do yourself a favor and please go read them. They're they're all really worth checking out. But I guess, uh, I guess it's time to move on to favorite currently running manga of 2019, huh? Oh yeah. You go first. I want to say what I want to see what you have to say. Well, first off, I'll say that you know there was a, this was actually a really good year. I thought for a lot of manga, especially the Shonen Jump stuff, like a lot of series had great years. But I don't think it should surprise anyone that my favorites were Act Dodge and Demon Slayer. Like by far and away, every chapter of those series this year, I absolutely like was in gripped by adored like i those were like the first things i wanted to read every week because i was super super getting into them and they had like the best moments and character development and things i really really uh got into this year like i i absolutely just fell in love with those series this year i've got so much that you know it became like an addiction like i needed more of it and i kind of broke my uh, code to never read a scanlation again but you know i've got broke me that much uh, like oh my god i need to read more of this now it's so good i there were more chapters out there i need to read those like I, like i was just I'm super enamored with Dodge. It's like my favorite thing uh, to read currently running. And Demon Slayer is very close behind. Demon Slayer and this entire climactic arc that he's been doing this year has just been killing it. And literally, literally, there's been a lot of killing in Demon Slayer this year. But uh, it has been so good. So so many emotional stories. So sad. So many awesome fights. So satisfying. Uh, but then beyond that, I will also throw nods to. First off, I want to say Haikyuu had also an incredibly great year with their big climactic match in the tournament. I'm like, with Haikyuu, it is a little hard for me to like go into detail with it because to be honest, like I don't remember all the names of the characters in Haikyuu and some of the moments do blur in my mind. But I will say that Haikyuu super captured my attention like towards the uh end of the year and especially like when it did a huge swerve and like kind of subverting expectations like where you would think this would go with characters realizing you know this one set idea they had for themselves is not like the only thing out for them and then just the conclusion of the match and then the time skip to years later showing the characters in adulthood the entire arc with uh Hinata in Rio playing bleach volleyball and doubles and uh, learning new skills and learning how to grow and then you know the entire friendship he forms with pedro it's, this is just a cute small thing but i just love that he forms a friendship with his uh brazilian roommate over like their shared love of one piece it's just amazing and, that, and now like the the series seems to be heading into a really climactic match with the character another time scale characters or adults and uh, like anata is going to be uh, playing against a team that has uh, Kageyama on it. Like, they are actually going to be playing each other again uh, for the first time since, like, the very first chapter of the series, which is, like, super, super exciting. So, like, Haikyuu had a huge, huge year, and I definitely want to, like, reread a lot of it uh, more closely from the beginning. But, like, I was super impressed where Haikyuu went this year. I'm really excited for, like, where it's going to go with this upcoming match and how it may potentially conclude. But I really, really appreciate the message of it, like, that, you know, this high school sports, you know, in, in so many of these sports mangas, like, 
considered like the this the most important thing winning against the highest the most important thing it's so tragic if you lose but in high queue like they subvert that completely and they just make it no this is just one step in your journey and you have so much more room to grow and it's going to be challenging but there's just so much more opportunities waiting for you and so much to learn and i just absolutely love that philosophy and message so so much uh, but beyond Haikyuu, again, uh, another series that I also want to shout out are Jujutsu Kaisen and MHA Vigilantes because they also had solid years. Like, a lot of stuff happened in them. A lot of really... Uh, both of them had really com- long and compelling backstory arcs, like, towards the middle of their years, too, that really shed light on characters in an interesting way. And, yeah, I highly recommend those as well. And Jujutsu Kaisen especially, like, is in at a point where, like, some really big stuff is happening in terms of the villains' plans in Shibuya and their attempts to steal Gojo. So, like, I, I'm on my edge of my seat now, like, seeing where this current arc is going. But, like, this has been a fantastic year for both those years as well. But uh, what are you some? What were some of your favorites uh, of the year? All right, so I'm just going to say for the second year in a row, my favorite weekly series, my favorite series to keep up with week to week, no matter what, was Dr. Stone. I think I mentioned it on the last Best Of podcast last year, where it's like, after the Stone Wars arc, I, you know, some people were like, oh, where could the series go? But like, man, like the story is still just as engaging, even without the main bad guy, even without Tsukasa, even without him around, like, it's still so engaging to see Senku and his friends, like, gather up all the materials they need to figure out, like, how to build, like, drones and all this stuff, like... St- st- stuff to help them perform stealth missions on this on this new island they've never been to and, and and to like uncover the mysteries of like how this island works and like who's actually running it and it's just man i just i love it so much like i i, I am convinced that any that anything written by retro inagaki if he has a series running in jump it's going to be my favorite because I I loved Ice Shield twenty one and I love this like I I love the way he writes his stories and Boichi's art obviously is amazing as always um, some real standout moments of, as far as the artwork I mentioned uh, Ibarra earlier he had a lot of really good pages this year and uh, the, the 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 last time I got to read like ten chapters of Doctor Stone in a row like wow that was a thrill ride uh, just seeing everybody like go after the petrification weapon and like trying to figure out how it works and just them trying to survive petrification again and oh man like so many good twists and turns so so much good like emotional desperation to the point where like Senku and everybody have to like revive people that used to be their enemies and now they're their allies whether they like it or not and it's just it's so good if if you are not reading dr stone i don't know what's wrong with you you need to start reading this um i'm gonna be really sad when it ends i don't want it to end i love it but enough gushing about dr stone uh my, my other choice would have to be chainsaw man you know, like, cause, uh, I, I've really gone through a, like a real roller coaster with this series because I, I started off really loving it in the beginning. I, it made a really good first impression. And then it got to a point where I didn't really quite gel with Denji's motivations as a character. But again, that, you know, when you, when you think about it, it's, you know, Denji wants what he wants, you know, and, in, in, in this case to cop a feel is because he, he hasn't had a lot of like he hasn't had a lot of like you know intimacy in his life. He hasn't really had a lot of contact with other people. 
Like, Denji is lacking the very basic human needs in order to be a, like, a well-rounded person, which, when you think about it, is really depressing and kind of sad. Um, and it's just him, like, living his life now that he has, like, everything he needs. And it is, and that part of the series by itself is really interesting. That coupled with just all the bat shit and crazy, uh, crazy fights and demons and stuff that existed, Chainsaw Man, um, like Denji, you know, he fights against people like people made out of katanas, people made out of bombs, and one of his best friends right now is a shark person. (laughs) Like, there's a literal Sharknado. (laughs) <laughs> in Chainsaw Man. Oh my god, Denji riding beam into battle was the ma- was so amazing. Like that's the best way I can describe Chainsaw Man. It's just to it's just to throw out all the stupid shit that's in the series, <laughs> but it, like it all works somehow. And and like a, like I was saying earlier, like uh Fujimoto is probably one of the best comic artists that I've seen come out of jump so far. Like He's literally doing things that, like, I've never seen other jump artists do with incorporating, like, sound effects into the action and the way he sequences his panels and his action is just so mind-blowingly good. And uh, I think I could say for sure that, like, I'm pretty hooked on Chainsaw Man for life unless it, for some reason, gets really bad, which I don't think it will. I'm pretty confident that it's going to stay pretty good for a while. Hell, honestly, like... I'm almost wondering if it's going to overtake D- uh, Dr. Stone for me next year, but I don't know. We'll, we'll have to see. Yeah, I mean, people really like Tatsuki Fujimoto as a writer and uh, a com- an artist. So, like, you know, I have uh, faith in Chainsaw Man and the direction it's going and that continue will be to be amazing and surprising in all the best ways. And I definitely will agree that Dr. Stone and Chainsaw Man are definitely... They, they've had amazing years too. Like, they, those were also incredibly fun and engrossing to read. Like, especially, uh, in Dr. Stone, uh, with the entire arc on the petrification island and now in Chainsaw Man, especially recently with the Reze arc. But even before that, with the whole Katana Demon and all that stuff before, like, it, it's been really great years for both those series. Oh, yeah, for sure. But no, yeah, we listed a lot of really good series that uh, are currently running, and uh, I'm interested in seeing what makes our list next year. But I think it's time for finally our final category, uh, manga we promised to read in 2020. And uh, Lum, before you give yours, I'm, I did take note of what you promised last year. Yeah, and I imagine I did not uh, succeed at any of them, but let's go. Well, let's go down the list here. So... Uh, you mentioned that you wanted to catch up on Crunchyroll Simul Pubs in particular. And that did not happen. I mean, I'm up to date with Seven Deadly Sins, but that's about it. I think I goaded you into mentioning uh, Urusei Yatsura as like, uh, what do we, what ser- what series do you want to cover on the show? And uh, we didn't really get to that, but uh, I think we're going to do that this year. So. Yeah, I mean, we attempted to, but then uh, it didn't work out. So that what and what would have been the uh, Modern Matters episode was the first episode of One Squad instead. And uh, I mean, my goal is just to we will definitely cover your Seattle on the show this year, but also we will continue making more One Squad episodes. All right. Uh, and then you mentioned you wanted to read all Jump Vault series that you haven't read. 
That also did not happen. I, there are still several series in the vault that I have not read, uh, especially now that they added like the entirety of Boys Over Flowers, the original. I like, only ever read the third of that before uh, years ago, so I still have that to go through, but then there's still stuff like Claymore to read, so still, still things in there that I haven't read yet. All right, here, here, here's the big one. So what... What what are what are your manga resolutions for the year? Uh, well, I set up a new tread where I was like, well, I have this stack of books that keep piling up that I need to read, so I'm gonna read one volume a day, and then I want to read everything we need to cover on the show. And uh, there are some authors I want to dig into more closely, especially to prepare for some podcasts or some projects later on. So, you know, more manga by Moto Hagio and Takako Shimura and Fumi Yoshinaga, uh, Yu Watase, the rest of her stuff that I haven't read. And I would like to catch up on To Your Eternity and Wave Listen to Me at the very least. And uh, the stuff on Manga Plus that's still ongoing. Is there is is there anything that like you want to cover for the show in particular that like you're really looking forward to that you really want to hold yourself to or I mean I want to read everything that we have planned to cover on the show. So I mean Yona of the Dawn like stuff like that, you know, stuff that I that would be really kind of new territory. I mean, I read, like, the first couple of lines of Yona the Dawn, like, a few years ago, but I have not, like, uh, caught up on it, so. I think I got, like, three volumes in, yeah. Yeah, it's about as far as I remember going, uh, and as far as other stuff, no, Chiafru is a big one. I have not read any of that, so definitely would like to do that. Our Dreams That Does Seem is a pretty easy one, since that's only four volumes. And then Adoro Hedoro is another big one where I haven't like read before. So yeah, those are what I guess I'd be looking forward to, because those are like stuff that's definitely new to me. All right. Uh, well, uh, I think those are some good picks for the year, and... Uh... I can't wait to hopefully get to all of those, uh, especially since uh, I think you accidentally picked one of my picks as well. Um, and then here, so let's see how I did. I probably didn't do that well either. Uh, I said I wanted to catch up on... Uh, no, wait. Oh, okay, yeah, right here. I wanted to catch up on Food Wars in 2019. That did not happen. Put a pin in that, though. I'll come back to that in a little bit. Um, I did mention that I wanted this, I wanted to start and finish Yu-Gi-Oh! We, I mean, I did do that. Um, unfortunately, that podcast is going to be a little late, but it is going to be coming out this year, I promise. And then, uh, I said I wanted to start one weekly non-jump simulpub and catch up with it. Uh, I threw out some suggestions like Wave, and, uh, I don't think I really did that. Honestly, I didn't really like start any like, as far as any non jump stuff goes. I didn't really start anything new, so didn't do a very good on, on that one. Uh, I said I would read one series from the Jump Vault, um, which I mean, if you really want to be technical, I read uh, I read through Yu Gi Oh, I read through Dragon Ball, I read through Golden Kamui. I feel like there might be more, but so far that's three. So I'm I'm gonna give myself a pat on the back on that one, even though I. 
technically I really wanted to read something I wasn't already reading for the podcast, but uh, whatever, I'll take it. Uh, I said I wanted to catch up on Vigilantes, and that didn't happen. Um, I gotta get on Vigilantes. Um, I, I might, I might read that in my own time. Uh, and then I said I wanted to catch up on new, on all the new Jump Simul pubs. Um, that one I'm not gonna take too much flack for because it was literally just until like this past December that they started doing backlog chapters for for uh, Jujutsu Kaisen in particular. And then they, uh, I will give them credit that they have been doing backlog chapters for Kimetsu, for uh, Demon Slayer. Um, but th- I think that's still going to take a little bit. And then uh, Act Age, I'm sure they will do backlog chapters for this year. But again, I think that's, I'd be surprised if they finished uploading that by the end of the year this year. So I don't know. I want to, I want to read all those series. But again, I am, I am not as brave as everyone else and starting in the middle. I just cannot do that. So. I'll put those on hold for now, but like I do want to get to those, especially with Jujutsu Kaisen. I've, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty convinced till I start reading that after hearing what you and uh, Stefan have to say about that. So, okay, so all in all, I, I, I didn't do as bad as I thought I would, but like I could have done better. And uh, so here are my resolutions for this year. Um, so Jigoku Raku Hell's Paradise is coming out in print this year. Um, so I want to catch up on it and I want to do a podcast episode on it this year. I think we're finally due for, for a discussion on, on Jigoku Raku in particular. And then, um, I know I've been saying it ever since I start, ever since we started the stupid podcast, but this is going to be the year that I finally finish Food Wars. It's going to happen. (laughs) We're... Uh, we're uh, I, th- I think if i say we'll do a podcast on it i'm more inclined to do it so i will finish food wars and we will do a podcast episode on it and then uh as for other stuff that uh as for other like new stuff i haven't read um this is going to be the year i read doro head doro because i have way too many people on twitter who who love it to death never stop sharing fan art never stop talking about it i can't get away from it I might as well join the party and read Doro Hedoro. As far as like o- other simul pubs go, I don't think I want to make any too big of uh, declarations on simul pubs. I'm just gonna get to, I'm just gonna get to something new when I get to it. I'm just gonna do it on my own time. Though, out of everything that I want to get to, I think it's safe to say that I would like to try and start reading Jujutsu Kaisen this year because I think out of everything that has like the best chance of. Uh, of having its gap filled. And maybe other than like Haikyuu. I know Haikyuu's getting pretty close. Haikyuu is very close. There's only 30 chapters left. Three volumes left to close the gap. Yeah. And then uh, I think the last thing I want to do is... Uh, I really want to read Crossmanage this year. Especially since now that we have uh, Blue Flag coming out. I figured now is probably the best time to to finally read that series. Because I I know too many people who love it. I know you and Maxi uh, secretly scorn me and judge me for not reading it, but I'm going to read it this year. I don't scorn you for not reading it. Well, I'm, I mean, I'm also exaggerating. I'm sure Maxi does, though. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, but no, yeah, um, I I, I want to read Crossmanage just because, one, I, I want to read it, and two, like, we didn't do any Cancel Jump series podcast last year, and I want to fix that this year. I want to do at least one this year. And so, yeah, I think uh, 
Yeah, so Jigoku Raku, Food Wars, Dorohedoro, and Cross Manage, as far as podcast titles, that's everything I want to cover on the podcast this year. And so, yeah, I, I, I think, I think we could do those personally. So, yeah, I think it sounds like a good plan. I mean, we have a schedule that we have planned out, so hopefully, we are able to stick to it. We don't have to delay anything, and we can uh, go through with it. I would definitely like to cover a lot of different kinds of series on the show this year, a lot of a uh, variety of different kind of series for sure. Mm-hmm. And I mean, uh, so uh, I won't say all of what we have, but just kind of looking over the schedule, I. I think we're doing. I think we're doing a pretty good job of not being entirely jump focused. But I mean, like, guys, I I know I know sometimes we get people who are like, you guys talk about jump too much. But it's like, I'm sorry, we like jump. Like, I don't know what you want me to do. We're never we're never gonna not talk about show to jump. That's just not. That's just that's it's not something we're not gonna do. You know. Um, yeah, we're big fans, but definitely we can. Uh, hopefully make more of an effort to cover you know different types of series uh, a little bit more too no yeah i for think sure. that uh, 2019 was a good step we definitely you know branched out into series that were not running in jump we finally actually covered chojo series uh for which was a long time covering and uh hopefully we can continue that trend in covering series from different types of genres and outside the jump uh, brand uh, this year as well mm-hmm. and beyond okay but uh I think that I think that's it. Uh, at f- over five hours, we're done. <laughs> oh man! Yeah. Oh boy. Well, and, uh, yeah. It's uh, nighttime now. It was day before. Don't but... say that. You're, you're you're depressing me now. Um. Anyway, so now that we're finally done podcasting all day, apparently, um, now that we've burned the midnight oil. It felt like the sun had just risen, and now it's already set. I literally felt like I woke up. Like it, it feels like it feels like ten o'clock in the morning for me was like an hour ago. <laughs> oh boy! Well, uh. look, you know what? It's fine. Uh, this was this was still a good episode. I still enjoyed it. But I'm definitely gonna have to get food soon. So here, yeah. <laughs> oh, we covered a lot of ground, though. No, so. we did. We did. So. So uh, let's start wrapping up here. So thank you, everybody, for listening to this episode of the podcast and for sticking with us for another year during 2019. And we hope you we hope you stick with us during 2020. Um, just a few like small reminders. Uh, again, we mentioned the survey at the top of the show. Uh, we will leave links for the survey in the show notes for this episode. By the time this episode comes out, you'll still have a couple of days to fill it out. So please, 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 please go fill it out if you listen to this podcast at all. And, uh, you know, g- give us as much feedback as you can. Just, you know, l- let us know about things about what your ideal length for the podcast is. It's probably not five <laughs> hours. Um, you know, what, what some of your favorite segments are. Uh, and, and also, don't forget to leave us your email if you want to, uh, you know, if, if you want to win some manga, possibly. Uh, again, we will be we will be picking at least three winners randomly uh, when we eventually cover our survey results on the show. So, yeah, like I said, we'll leave a link to that in the show notes. And um, I guess as far as other stuff goes, uh, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash manga mavericks. Uh, we talked about our latest bonus episode, at the uh, bonus podcast episode uh, covering Shonen Jump throughout the year 2019. But as far as our next bonus podcast goes, sign up for the Patreon uh, by or before January 31st uh, at the $5 tier, and you will get access to a new bonus podcast where we have uh, Stefan Koza on, uh, translator of Jujutsu Kaisen for Weekly Show to Jump, 
to talk about Kazuki Takahashi's The Comic. You know, for those of you who don't know, Kazuki Takahashi is the author of Yu-Gi-Oh! And the comic is essentially a miniseries that uh, he came back to do for Jump back in, uh, I think, 2017 at this point? Or was it 2018? I think it might have been 2018. Um, It's definitely kind of, it's a little old at this point. Uh, We've been wanting to read it and talk about it on the podcast, but we just haven't found the time. And so now we're just going to talk about it and upload it as a bonus podcast. So... Again, if you want to support us on Patreon and get access to exclusive podcasts such as that one, uh, sign up for the $5 tier uh, and you will get access to at least one bonus podcast at the end of every month. Um, Or if you don't have as much money to spare, you know, uh, we also have a $2 tier uh, where you'll get access to early editions of the podcast whenever they are edited, depending on when they're edited. And so, yeah, uh, again, support us at Patreon, patreon.com slash manga mavericks. And, uh, yeah, so I guess we can go ahead and plug the rest of our stuff here. So, Lum, where can the people find you? You can find me as Lum Romayasha on Twitter and as Lum Romayasha at a variety of places, including Animation Revelation and Anilist, wherever there's a Lum Romayasha, that's you can find me. And you can also read my reviews on all-comic.com. We've got a lot of manga reviews incoming, so you can definitely look forward to my thoughts on books such as Don't Toy With Me, Miss Nakatoro, a tropical fish yearns for snow and uh, stuff that hopefully will be written about by the time you're listening to this, like the Paradise Kids 20th Anniversary Edition. So definitely look forward to some more manga reviews on there. All right, yeah, definitely go read Lum's reviews at all-comic.com. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's where you can... Well, actually, I should probably plug my stuff first. Uh, I'm Colton. You can find me on Twitter at SniperKing323. I host and, rep- uh, and produce a lot of other podcasts all of which you can find on my personal blog at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. You can find uh, links to shows such as, uh, you know, Life Lessons, the Gintama Manga Cast, One Podcast Prevails, and the Poltergeist Report. Again, links to all those shows on my personal blog. Again, that's at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. But as for the podcast, uh, you could listen to every episode first over at all-comic.com. Again, unless you're a subscriber to our Patreon at patreon.com slash manga mavericks. You can listen to early editions of the podcast over at the $2 tier when you sign up. Um, but let's see. You can follow us on facebook.com slash all.comic or on twitter.com slash allcomic underscore. But if you want to follow manga mavericks in particular, you want to follow us on Twitter at manga underscore mavericks or at Tumblr at mangamavericks.tumblr.com. Uh, both of those are the best way to get uh, get the latest updates on the podcast. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash manga mavericks. Uh, we post different excerpts of the show, including reviews and news pieces, and even some exclusive content every once in a while. Uh, again, that's at youtube.com slash manga mavericks. Uh, email us anything at manga mavericks at gmail.com. Uh, what are some of your favorite manga moments from 2019? Some of your favorite series from 2019? Uh, what series should have made our list? Email us anything about the podcast or or just manga in general at mangamavericks at gmail.com, and we will read them on the show. But the most important thing, guys, is that you subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcast, uh, the R is formerly known as iTunes. Uh, you know, it really helps the visibility of our show when you uh, leave us a rating and review, a five-star rating, review, whatever you want to leave us. Uh, really, really helps us get our show out there and become more visible amongst all the different podcasts out there and so yeah please go do that if you so wish but that's gonna about do it for this episode for this super long episode of manga mavericks uh 
again, uh, we hope you guys enjoyed this one. And uh, yeah, we, we have a lot of stuff coming up and uh, we hope to see you there. And so this has been episode 109 of the podcast, and we will see you guys next time for episode 110. Bye, guys. Sayonara. Sayonara.